beaucoup de silence et beaucoup de justesse. Ah. Bien lentement et décontracté avec moi. Bien ensemble. Je voudrais le répéter encore le début. Bon. D'abord une attaque bien ensemble, ça m'arrangerait. Maintenant, si vous êtes pressé, c'est le moment. Bien lié tout ça jusqu'au bout, que j'ai pas de trou du tout. Voilà, et voilà, on peut y aller. Hello, welcome to Callous and Witness, the podcast devoted to personal explorations of the New York Film Festival, hosted as always by myself, Ryan Swen, along with Dan Malloy. And for the first time, we're recording not in my, or first time in person, we're recording not in my apartment, but in Dan's mm-hmm. apartment due to the SAG Screen Actor Guild Awards taking place. Stupid <laughs> celebrities <laughs> ruining our lives. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes... it. Because it's taking place at the Shrine Auditorium, which is literally a stone's throw away from my apartment, and oh, yeah. thus there's massive street closures. Been, yeah, I've seen zero celebrities since I moved to LA. You saw James Gray. Oh, I say I saw. I maybe saw James Gray. It was the one day I was working <laughs> at my old job and didn't have my glasses on. So <laughs> that's course. that's ambiguous. But uh, otherwise, I've seen no celebrities. But I have been inconvenienced by them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for whoever decided to build a prestigious university and various other residences around a landmark theater. Yeah, who, brilliant. Whoever, <laughs> whoever decided to do that. But welcome to the new year 2019. 19. Yeah, where this is t- a, almost a one-year anniversary podcast because we recorded the first episode on January 28th, a oh. day uh, well, On tomorrow. the same Sunday. Yeah. Was that right? Sunday? I actually yeah. don't remember if it was a Sunday or I, not. I think it was a Sunday because I had nothing to do on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we didn't get that episode out until February 1st because I was still very new to editing. Technically our anniversary, even though this is our 11th episode and not our 12th. Yeah. But that's to, due to other things as well. Yeah. I'm surprised we only November. missed one month in yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was hoping to get to all get every month in there. Yeah. Yeah. So we're hoping to, we can maybe work that into an actual schedule, but... Yeah. yeah. For now, we're sticking to this our is... month and episode. Um, yeah. And consequently, we are doing top 10 lists. Dan has decided to go rogue on me and yes. <laughs> completely toss away any no rules. rules. No rules. The rules no don't rules apply. at all. Rules, yeah. Rules don't <laughs> apply. I mean, yeah. rules have not applied to yeah. me for, for a long time. <laughs> for the most part, I'm sticking to my rules, but we'll go uh, basically down our top 10s. First, we should do some honorable mentions yeah would you like to start um yeah so i saw in the holiday break instead of watching some movies that i didn't watch for this podcast i watched some films that have received some acclaim this year (laughs) so i saw uh, i watched shirkers at home the sandy tan documentary about um her sort of lost film that she made at like 16 and 
16, no, like 19, um, and in Singapore and the sort of weird man who helped produce it, her sort of modern day hunt for it. Uh, I mean, it's mostly worth watching for the older footage. Uh, it has the sort of spunk and has the feel, like the audio is lost to that film, but it has the feel of a sort of teenage impersonation of like Jarmish and, and maybe even a little like Demi in there and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's, you know, it's a fun evocation of that time and it has a sort of like DIY zine feel in the mm-hmm. modern day stuff too. But then once it becomes a mystery, it's yeah, not the greatest, but it's still, still, still very good. Surprisingly, the Spider-Man movie was pretty good. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to go too much in depth on there, but I saw it on Christmas and I had a big soda while I drank it. So I was happy. <laughs> uh, Clint Eastwood's the mule. Yes. It's a wonderful time. You know, just a grand old time of uh, hearing him sing along while he drives pecans <laughs> and, <laughs> and drugs around uh, the lower United States. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I, I enjoyed for the most part. Same with Monrovia, Indiana, although that film kind of depressed me <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> Black Klansman is, uh, has stuck in my mind quite a bit more than I expected. Really, I think maybe the biggest surprise of the year is that A Star is Born was actually really good and yeah. it stuck around, but maybe that's just because my girlfriend and I listened to the soundtrack a lot <laughs> over the break. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, some of those are also on my honorable mentions. I haven't seen Shirkers. It sounds interesting. I'm not sure if I'll really take to it, but it sounds, at least given the personal connection, that could go either way, of course, yeah. uh, of the director to this material. But I, I'm interested. In, I'm 99% certain it'll be the better of two films set partially in Singapore. Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that movie's like a blip in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> I have not seen it, and I never will. Yeah, that's a that's definitely the way to go for yeah. that. No Oscar nominations. Though, no, despite thank God the best efforts of the billboards <laughs> around town. Yeah, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was fun, definitely, and it yeah. surprised me. It, but I do think that it's not nearly the film that a lot of people are. Yeah, I mean, are making it out to be no no disrespect intended, but it's the Lego Movie with <laughs> Spider-Man people. Yeah, and it's. I, I do really like what they did with the animation in general, yeah, and of course, but fun. the general coming of age uh, mm. origin story arc was not challenged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the most it does is really hyper condense it, which is fun to see. It's fun that they're playing right. around with that, but you, yeah, I mean, I wish they'd just have a different, you know, set of tools at this point yeah. to tell the Spider Man yeah, story. Definitely. The, the better version is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Uh, well, at least for his, for Gonzo, as comic book yeah, aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't ask for much better. Yeah. There's um, The Meal, definitely a film that I, I loved and felt like a... And also 15th Century to Paris as well. Um, yeah, those are hand in hand. I don't know how it worked as a double feature, but yeah, <laughs> as far as a two-hander for directing this year it's all about clint right absolutely and it's a it felt like a, a warm hug like yeah. a warm cheerful parting hug yeah it's Ma- sort maybe of like this I've... weird visit with your grandpa and he yes. just keeps talking <laughs> <laughs> and you just kind of keep listening but you yeah. know there's two threesomes in it they, yes yeah the yeah. advertisements don't lie <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh stars born also uh fantastic and for for other honorable mentions for me there's two very very much independent features very, both exactly an hour long uh, classical period by ted fent and notes on appearance by ricky d'ambrose 
both very attentive, very almost singular in, in their aesthetic. Mm-hmm. One shot in 16 millimeter and composed basically purely of literary discussions and oh, yeah. various discourses on history and in a way that feels deliberately very unstructured. And it's the kind of film that I naturally mm-hmm. take to quite a lot. And No Time Appearance, a 4-3 exploration into maps, uh, uh, <laughs> maps, documents, various facsimiles of newspaper clippings. I think slightly less successful than D'Ambrose's shorts, but I'm still mm-hmm. grappling with some of the issues raised in terms of how it deals with a sort of intellectual far right, <laughs> for lack of a better word. <laughs> the Commuter by Homkale Sarah. Oh, yeah. A very fun time. Yeah. Terrific. William needs some fights with a guitar. Yes, he right? does. Yeah, an yeah. electric guitar. Yes, uh, that I the believe the soundtrack there. adjusts yes. accordingly, <laughs> even though it's not plugged in. <laughs> yeah. uh, Western, which is oh yeah, which is a film I'm still thinking about, and I if I rewatched it, there's a chance that it might have entered my top ten. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I wish I want to see that one again. Yeah, Ismail's Ghost, very fun time. Mm-hmm. Uh, some great. Matthew Amarik losing his mind moments in there. Mrs. Hyde, the starring Isabel Hubert, oh, yeah. uh, where she becomes, <laughs> where she becomes this electric incandescent being after being struck by lightning, <laughs> turning from a very mousy, very quiet and timid science teacher to one more assertive, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and it's also genuinely interested in in teaching and the ways that teachers interact with their students in a way that I found quite enlivening yeah. welcome to marwin uh oh yeah yes <laughs> like, that one. yeah a really it the kind of film that takes from the sort of it's a wonderful life template of understanding that you need to to in order to get that sort of saccharine emotional sort of ending mm-hmm. you have to earn it by oh. empathizing with and showing in detail your protagonist's suffering and struggle yeah. before we vanish by kiyoshi kurosawa Another extremely fun time and also very wild. I Love Dogs by Wes Anderson, the most misunderstood film of the year for me. <laughs> Claire's Camera by Hong Sang Soo. And to close out this honorable mention, the great Langian Unfriended Dark Web oh, yeah. by first time director Steven Sisko, which is to be blunt about it, it's maybe the film of the present that I yeah. saw this that I saw oh, from twenty eighteen. Yeah. Yeah, Kafifi. Yeah, there's oh. a Kafifi mentioned in the first minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did you watch all the endings or did you No, I only saw the The one I saw was it was like pulling back and you saw all these yeah, yeah, screens. That's oh, okay, that's the one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is I think based on what I read of the other ones, that, that this one's I think the I think perfect. That's ending. the strongest yeah. one. Yeah, it felt right. Yeah, and it has and I don't think it's necessarily as quite as deft in terms of its actual filming as the mm-hmm. first unfriended. Yeah, the but first one. It's awesome. It's awesome. But yeah. I think this one just burrows deeper. It's so in tune yeah. with what the consequences and implications of a massive network. Yeah. Of, um, similar to Lang. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it's about young 20 somethings living in LA oh, definitely yeah. <laughs> makes it hit, hit home harder. And they're mo- and they're generally very nice. Yeah. And, uh, even if they play cards against humanity yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it really deals with that yeah very well <laughs> so just some really really strong moments in there honestly i'm kind of sad i can't put it into my top 10 yeah it's, it's that impactful and I, I don't think any film got me more or a few films got me more viscerally than that one yeah um, 
Um, so shall we start with yeah yeah we might as well start from I'll go from the bottom yeah. up on yeah. mine and this is probably the best film new film i saw this year yeah. uh zama the lucretia martel film which is just i don't know kind of gobsmacked me in a way i mean i had seen martel's films before but i don't think that they're formal sort of precision and her use of sound and space really made that much of an impact on me until it was placed in the sort of you know zama atmosphere and the sort of muggy just horrible uh colonial environments and just the sort of ridiculousness of the the entire enterprise and the endless waiting it sort of builds to almost nothing and then the second half sort of switches and the ending of it is just like this astonishing sort of underplay of what you might expect from if you knew what happens there i mean the sound design alone is just absolutely incredible like never like forgetting the sort of labor involved like the slave labor involved and propping up these colonial regimes and just a wonderful tale of a horny man (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a it's it appears higher up in my list Mm -hmm. your list is alphabetical alphabetical unranked alphabetical unranked and by just whatever 2018 adjacent films you happen to see in 2018 so new films of some sort of release (laughs) that i happen to see in some sort of new some sort of new release yeah undiscovered films yeah it's a yeah but this is a I definitely agree. I think it's a. It was the second Martell I think I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. I after La Cienega, and yeah. it's. I really really love the other two I've seen. This one, I think, I've seen it twice, and I feel like I need to see it again. Yeah, it, because I it definitely do. inhabits, even from those other films, it inhabits a more. I think it's more remote. You, I guess you could say, from the its protagonists, um, yeah. from the central characters than the other to the La Cienega and the Headless Woman, but mm-hmm. it's absolutely essential for how this film operates because it's tackling a historical time and yeah. it's implicitly about the way in which people operated in that time with all its bureaucratic systems and this sense of entrapment that Zama feels throughout yeah. the film. And there's just something just so stately, so, so poised about yeah. it that... I think as the film develops further and further, it deliberately loses and it's a, it becomes even stranger, even yeah. more, even, while maintaining its central aesthetic. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it depicts like a sort of rigid environment without ever being too rigid itself, even right. though it is, I mean, it's not like a movie that has these sort of, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like how very very lesser directors would film it and it would be these sort of tracking shots of like the jungle and sort of whatnot but you know martel keeps the camera sort of in one place but it's never sort of slow cinema aesthetic either Mm -hmm. it's this very deliberate i mean actual like formal precision of like trying to get the most out of each shot and just showing the sort of formalism within like the actual characters and the environment and all of that but never letting that become oppressive in the filmmaking itself it still feels sort of free in a sort of sense um, and i think yeah the, i mean the fact that she was working on, like this comic book adaptation beforehand and then tackling you know this novel which is a very well-known argentinian mm-hmm. text and then what she was working on beforehand was like maybe the best known Argentinian comic book or something like that somehow that process sort of translates here as well and sort of taking something that's maybe bigger in scope but never becoming grandiloquent about it 
Yeah, absolutely. It sticks with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, as far as like things that actually were released this year, it's probably my favorite. But maybe not. Maybe there's another one. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, My number 10 was Let the Sunshine In by Claire Denis, starring Julie Binoche. And it's strange because it's I I saw it earlier in the year, or I think around May or something like that, when Mm. it played in SIF. And it's a film, as with pretty much every Claire Denis film about sensation about mm-hmm. and it's and that's implicitly tied into Benoche's character Isabel that's her name right I think so yeah, yeah it's been I, a while I wonder what Benoche thought when <laughs> she had a character <laughs> named maybe names in in tribute to Bear yeah but, possibly yeah but I just loved the sort of round delay nature of it the yeah. how how much filming style shifts based on which particular character she's interacting with. Yeah. I especially am really fond of the the first one with the director, Xavier Beauvoir, mm-hmm. where it's just this circular track into them as they're talking at a bar. Yeah. And it, I think, repeats that a few times. And just the... There's certain moments, of course, that burst out of the firmament, like the last use, I think, of At Last in the... The later bar where she dances. Right. Yeah. Where... And there's this sort of jubilation of that that's simultaneously, consciously a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. but how free Benoche feels in yeah. it and just how confident Denis is in letting that freedom and mix with self-consciousness be a part of what Isabel is looking for. Yeah. I think that is really strong in that regard. I, it's a... Yeah, I yeah. think, yeah, it's like a movie that depicts, like, a woman, fine, you know, sort of very, like, cheesy, sort of, you know, what every, like, rom-com tries to do is, like, right. you know, a woman, like, finding herself, but in this case, you know, it feels more like an actual person because it's not just in one romantic partner, but it's in finding sort of this fulfillment right. within herself and in her own life, but also it, it has an awareness of, like, the, the awareness that comes with that when you are, like, sort of truly expressing yourself right. and feeling comfortable. The film has that sort of awareness to it mm-hmm. as well, so it downplays a lot of these scenes, in it. and it also shows, you know, these sort of normal interactions that she has with, like, the like the market owner yes. uh, by her place. The, the and, fish market, right? Yeah, the yeah. fish market and those sorts of... And and when like she's in the artists, she's with all the artists and they're just walking and they're all talking about <laughs> nonsense. She just screams <laughs> at them to shut up. Yeah. It has this sort of awareness of that too. It's never, you know, taking the environment to be... You, you can always like not just poke fun at that, but also just like acknowledge how stifling and, and right. irritating like these ways that are... You lives get set up can be and just the need to like express to break free of that and we'd definitely be uh, remiss if we didn't talk about Gerard Depardieu in his, his uh, single credit. or one and a half scene but it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. 15 minutes or something like that yeah. of this sub 100 minute film <laughs> yeah yeah he really takes over at the yes. end but never i mean he doesn't even totally take over he's just sort of very pleasantly there yeah. uh and it has the, a great su- support great yeah sort of foundation upon which that particular scene rests on which to some degree applies to the other actors as well especially yeah. denis regular alex de yeah well. yeah and the uh, and definitely the best end credits of the year oh, yes. they just sort of roll over yes. the final scene <laughs> This one's also on my list, so yes. we'll just to, other we'll top it. half. We'll yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the next up is Transit, Christian Petzold's film, which I guess is getting more of a wide release uh, in 2019, but I saw it at some random festival that I don't even 
I wasn't even aware of the rest um, at the Egyptian down here. It's an adaptation of the Anna Sager's novel, which I, I haven't read, but it transposes that novel set and, you know, the rush up to World War II. I think it was written in like 1942 or something and transposes it to present day Europe. And so it basically tells the same story and there, you know, there's like no cell phones basically or anything really obvious uh, about modern day markers, but it doesn't, you know, probably due to budgetary constraints, it doesn't try to make this absolute period film. And somehow that becomes the sort of freeing gesture um, of the film. And like the SS who would be in Nazi garb in the period version of this film. I mean, they look like ice agents or SWAT teams here. You know, it's, it's truly, It draws the parallel between past and present, you know, way better than, you know, a hundred thousand think pieces or any number of saccharine or overly didactic period films could do to like really make the point clear. I mean, even like in a film I generally otherwise like Black Klansmen, when Mm -hmm. like they make the explicit mention of, well, you know, there's never going to be somebody like that in the White House. (laughs) Wink, 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 wink. And, you know, even like the use of the Charlottesville footage at the end of the film, that's Spike Lee. So that's a different thing. But it even so, like just this is such a more subtle version of that. And it really just draws how we not only live with the ramifications of the past, but that we also forget it. And these things just pop up in new forms, basically. So, you know, these people can like be wearing old clothes and sort of deal with crumpled papers and talk about your pa- your papers and whatnot. But there are TV screens in the film and they're used that way. So, But, you know, like the sort of modern environments are just as easily like susceptible to fascism and and any other ways you'd want to describe it as they were before it's not like you know there isn't any like strict demarcation where it's like this stuff is over as as Mm -hmm. anyone living through 2018 would surely know yes Uh, so you know it's it's definitely a film of and for the present in ways that movies we need right now or movies that tell us about the present moment definitely are not um, at least in terms of like the political moment that we lived through. I think it's a film people should see in 2019 for sure. Yes. Yeah. I'm definitely very, very interested in seeing it and it looks amazing. Yeah. And I don't need like through the festival circuit. I don't think it really got that much buzz. Well, I mean, it, can't, it- was in berlin i think it was in berlin competition but yeah yeah but but even so it never didn't have the same sort of sustaining feel as something like other films right i mean even on our own podcast only really got one mention yeah that's that's true yeah i'm not exactly sure why i I think it i'm pretty sure it played tiff as well yeah it's Uh just sort of i think a muted response yeah because it got no release this year is probably maybe but it it depends it certainly depends and Aside from Phoenix, I think Petzl is not necessarily right. extremely popular in right. the um, in the states at present. But I'm I extremely changes. Yeah, I'm yeah. extremely excited to see it. Yeah, I really, really love Phoenix, and I think that just based on just the trailer and the images I've seen, it, it just looks sumptuous. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's in its own really way. fantastic. I can't wait to see it again. Actually, yeah, my number nine is Zama, and <laughs> so. Would you like to take your, your Yes, eight? we'll just go yeah. right on up. Yeah, sorry uh, about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, we'll skip mine, too. Let's support the girls, the Andrew Bujalski film. It's only like the third Bujalski that I've seen. But I was, I mean, I was expecting this to not. I'd heard a lot of like the groundswell of support for it. And I actually never, 
I haven't seen it in a theater. I've, I've seen it twice, but only on iTunes and like Hulu, I think. But it like really didn't get, at least when I was in Portland, it got like no release. It got a release in like a small town in Washington um, outside of Portland, which is really strange. But either way, I think it's just, um, you know, it's a movie about sort of service industry, you know, nonsense and bullshit and how that sort of work really like determines people's lives. And like, you know, I've worked through that part time and I've seen like people who do that job in addition to like other jobs full time and deal with customer service and like all this sort of nonsense of how many hours are you getting how long are you work all these other like building your entire life around working at some like sort of nonsense place in this case it's sort of a local hooters ripoff but it could be you know any other i think it could be any other sort of working environment the fact that it is this sort of place which has this sort of expectation and the fact that it's an all-female staff definitely lends like a certain uh, camaraderie to it that would definitely be changed if it were you know if it were working in a different type of uh, retail or restaurant space but i still think it's a very accurate and heartfelt depiction of like american labor especially in this age where like workers i don't think have American workers don't have that much uh, control over their own lives, and so it's it's up to people like Regina Hall's character, and you know, just a fantastic performance right. to actually care for the other for the people who work there. Uh, and so it's that sort of small scale solidarity depicted in the film that's really really beautiful about it. Right. It was I, I definitely loved it as well. I actually saw it at a screening at USC with Wojcicki in person. Uh. It's the fourth Wojcicki I think I've seen. Uh, mm-hmm. and, my second favorite after computer chess. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is entirely different from anything else (laughs) he's done. Uh, But I I do generally like him and I think this is, this was really excellent as well. It it has of course that sense of camaraderie. And even though it did, I think perhaps necessarily for the, for what the film was going for, but Mm -hmm. I'm not totally sold on just how the film goes fully into that sort of day from hell sort of style. But that's what the ending with them yeah. screaming on the rooftop yeah the with fact this, the it, fact that it isn't just a day from hell like that right. it has that ending that sort of coda yeah. to it that, is that's really, really important yeah. yeah absolutely and i love the just how almost episodic it feels at times yeah. in the and how regina hull's character deals with one thing after another after another <laughs> yeah and, and to, to varying levels of success i yeah. think that was it's a really loving time and takes them at face value it takes all the characters and yeah just the wonderful cast in general not only yeah. Regina Hall but also Shana McHale and, oh, yeah. and is, that, ha- is that Jungle Pussy, yeah, Jungle Pussy okay. and Haley Lou Richardson Haley Richardson yeah. yeah she needs to be the next big thing yeah. in America yeah she's and it's interesting because it's a different sort of register from her other performances like mm-hmm. like Columbus, Columbus or, or Edge um, of 17 Edge, Edge of 17 yeah, yeah. or Split <laughs> or Split yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a totally different register but it has it's so fun and it's so genuine yeah in it's sort of it is it's both lampooning and and genuine and caring yeah, yeah. it's one of those characters that's like a depiction of a ridiculous person yes. but it's so it's scaled back enough that does resemble the actually ridiculous people that right, you know absolutely you know we we really encounter like yes. <laughs> in our day that's sort of overly friendly yeah. later <laughs> at some place that's just hellish yeah it's an interesting because i know that this is very far from computer chess and i think even far from results which i haven't seen it's but, similar to results actually yeah it's interesting yeah i wonder how bajelski is going to move through this sort of more commercial more yeah more accessible like yeah. period of his career because i've seen like beeswax which is the other one i've seen it's, 
is not like computer chess, but it's not like this at all. Right, right. <laughs> Very much more mumblecore. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely, it's more commercial, but it has that same heart, that same yeah. warmth that yeah. is key to the success of this film. Yeah, absolutely. My number eight is Burning by Lee Chang Dong. Uh, we've discussed it in the past and we will have to discuss it in the future as well. Yeah. I'll, I'll just say that I think it's a really mysterious film, of course, that's yeah. baked into how it, uh, but not only in the actual narrative, but just in beat by beat character moment by character moment. I think it's a uh, really accomplished in, in acting and how characters are just organized and yeah. what Lee chooses to focus on at one point or another. And it's, well, I definitely want to see it again. Yeah. Soon, yeah. I hope soon that. and I'll definitely see it again in the future. But I do sort of get people's reservations about it. And mm-hmm. I guess I maybe have a tinge of that as well. But just every single time the, the score by Moog <laughs> <laughs> comes up, I mean, I'm just into it. It yeah. has that sort of hypnotic, lulling sort of rhythm to uh, that sort of two and a half hour film that I find. Yeah really compelling and i there's so many granular moments that really characterize it for me and make it that much more strange and that that really gripped me yeah my um hot take on i don't know late 2018 our art house releases i guess lemley releases because i saw both these films at the lemley by my apartment but right. cold war should be two and a half hours long and burn <laughs> should be 80 minutes long <laughs> that's my feeling about it but i hope that i turn around on burning when i inevitably uh watch it again yeah all three leads also for me just yeah or three, oh yeah three i mean they're all fantastic yeah. yeah i mean yeah Stephen young is just something i'd never expect i had seen the walking dead previously <laughs> in my life but i'd never expected that from him mm-hmm. yeah so controlled so yeah. casually frighteningly charismatic yeah sort of um there are some like sort of classic hollywood performances that that he sort of channels mm. in there too that that's sort of noir i'm trying i can't remember the specific actors now but i'm thinking of some and he has that sort of glassy feel mm. to him mm-hmm. the next film on my list is the one that is probably the, not a 2018 film it's personal problems uh by bill gunn which never really i mean it was i guess aired on like public access new york tv but it was never really released uh, as its own work until this year when kino lorber put it out and it's basically like a almost three hour experimental soap opera as it's described by it's directed by bill gunn and uh written by ishmael reed and it stars i mean bill gunn is in there for a bit but it stars actors who i i mean i can't even remember their names right now but it's just this sort of portrait of this um hospital worker in new york you know it's all it's entirely black cast basically um and it's basically just these long scenes of she talks to the camera about her life but it also just has like these spaces where you know these women get together and talk about their own lives and it depicts tragedy, it depicts disappointments, and um, just these sort of long, like, scenes uh, of, you know, just intense, like, family conversations that just sort of drag themselves out um, forever. And it really, I mean, like, I think maybe Graham Carter said that it's sort of the closest he's seen to just living a life on mm-hmm. screen. And I think I think that's very accurate. It's just people going day by day by day and sort of just the... I mean, I saw it in a screening space, too, so that's sort of why I put it on the list. Over three hours with an intermission and just the sort of 
always just sort of staying with it and it's shot on this three quarter inch videotape so it has i mean it's early video it's not high quality at all there's no way to really restore it or you can maintain it as properly as you can but it's gonna decay and so there's these sort of the restoration is as good as it could be but there are still just these like lines that sort of go across the screen when the camera moves or when people move within the camera and it creates this almost surreal quality that may not be necessarily intentional but it, right. i mean it could have been because this video you know like it's the tape was there at the time too it had that sort of quality and so it you know creates this sort of languid sense of just moving through life and through uh, these sort of very quotidian tasks and you know nothing it's it's an experimental soap opera and that depicts sort of melodramatic situations and it has the sort of trappings you know a hospital worker and um all that other sort of thing and, you know marital troubles and family <laughs> troubles and there's a funeral and a wake um and where all the family grievances come out but it subdues them as much as possible in this sort of video format and you know like the hiss of the video is always there too and that also sort of lends a hypnotic quality to it Interesting. it's really it's Unlike most things I've ever seen, it's it's really fantastic. Yeah, it's one I it does and it doesn't count for 2018. Yeah, and I mean, it, yeah. I have a film coming up later that I sort of falls into that same category. Oh yeah, but I I do I am very excited to see. I haven't seen Gunjan Hess unfortunately yet, but uh, the other Bill Gunn film that I know of, I, I think there are some other ones as well. But these are the two that have really seeped into yeah. film culture, for lack of a better yeah. term and well those other ones are yeah like impossible right, to see like basically stop right? stop yeah. and i think maybe one or two others right but yeah. it sounds really lovely it yeah. sounds wonderful and for some reason i keep thinking it's longer than it actually is you, you say yeah. just over three i for it's some reason I just think about it, three for yeah. some reason i think of it as five i don't know why yeah that stuck it in my could, mind it could feel like that for sure <laughs> okay. but yeah i think i'm pretty sure it's just three okay yeah yeah I'm you know, definitely catch up with it at some point. Yeah. It's it's on Canopy currently mm-hmm. and on a Kino Lorber Blu-ray. And yeah. it, it sound it definitely sounds essential. Yeah, uh, I'm, it uh, it certainly is. And yeah, just sort of putting something different on my list is also why I sort of <laughs> threw it in there. <laughs> right. My number seven is basically seventeen by Robert Green. Robert Green's been a, a favorite of mine in in the documentary realm since 2016 with his K Plays Christine, and this is my favorite of his work to date and it's a account of the by of the centennial reenactments of this heinous incident that took place in 1917 in the town of bisbee yeah. arizona where striking mine workers most of them immigrants were deported to outside the town and left in the desert to die and green follows the reenactment he connects with a lot of the people who will be portraying people some sometimes they're actual relatives or descendants of people on both sides. Some of them are mm. recruited um, or are unconnected or they've come to the town in the intervening years. And yeah. it's an exploration of all of these different tensions, these different factions that not necessarily factions in terms of the actual form, but instead right. just a more ideological, more personal sort of conviction. Yeah. And those convictions, of course, shift and, sh- and are shaped over the course of the film. Right. And it's in six chapters, I believe. And it's a unexpectedly really emotional experience for me. Yeah. I oh. for I still have not cried at, at a film, but I, <laughs> I felt close in just because of the strife, because the actual 
reenactment it's filmed in a how real it feels for yeah. like a better term which yeah. is undoubtedly a very fraught term but that anger that genuine mm-hmm. that of course is meant to be meant to reflect the times and that's in the very title but right. it still does not prevent it from coming to the surface at every single moment possible and, and also yeah. there's some really beautifully filmed segments that are reenactments not part of the actual reenactment but reenactments that that green made for the film there's the introducing the one of the people who becomes one of the central figures this queer mexican i think immigrant but a, mm-hmm. but a, a young man basically living yeah. in bisbee and his introduction is this long take that go that's three or four minutes long that goes through the town and goes into this bank that oh, and wow. through that bank it goes into this sort of theatrical space oh and wow. the film and it actually makes a good use of 2.39 to 1 in hmm. in a documentary <laughs> so it's it's a it, i wasn't necessarily surprised because i do also really love k plays christine but mm-hmm. i think this is a really exciting development for yeah green. yeah i've yet to see a robert green film but I, yeah yeah th- this would probably be the first one I'd yeah it's definitely and is. yeah it has that sense of conviction and you can of course uh robert green he's left his but i think the space that he gives uh, while still maintaining of course that clearly he's on the side of the of the miners and, yeah. and the wobblies who were who were deported right i think that sense of perspective while also showing some genuine interest is, yeah. is key. Yeah. I mean, it's def- it sounds like less of a tract than uh, the, the Travis Wilkerson, an injury to one, the Travis right. Wilkerson film about, I think maybe not the same incident, but a similar one. A least. similar one, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that one's very, I mean, mm-hmm. that one's markedly leftist and it doesn't make room for anything. Yeah, <laughs> his, uh, I saw his, uh, did you wonder, yeah. who, did you, did wonder, you wonder who fired, who fired the, gun? the gun? Yeah. Which is, which is good, but it had mm-hmm. its, it had its own issues. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be a slight honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> so my next film is The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, mm-hmm. Another, is it really a 2018 film? It's a 2018 film. film. This let, one let's, is. Let's yeah. be clear about it. It's, yeah. it, it has... It has digital footage, for yeah. heaven's sake. They have the line about this is before cell phones. Yes. So. <laughs> Read by an aging Bogdanovich. By, yeah, it has aging Bogdanovich voiceover, yes. too. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is just, you know, it's the Orson Welles movie. Uh, we talked about it beforehand, I think. And uh, it's just absolutely, you know, fantastic. And it's just, uh, <laughs> I think there was one dispatches from the internet i read about it was that this film is hopelessly dated for one thing it's a visually compelling <laughs> film that has more than one idea yes going on. yes i saw that as and well that is i can't remember who said that but no. that's like a very perfect uh, mm. encapsulation of this film in comparison to just about everything else in 2018 yes. Uh, I found a lot of 2018 movies even the ones i really liked to sort of to have like sort of one idea and for all the sort of visual competency that i think that a lot of them have they're never truly as aesthetically uh compelling as this film i mean just working with different formats i mean even when 2018 films work with different formats they do it in the sort of grand budapest hotel style where everything's very clearly demarcated you know, this is when we go to this aspect ratio <laughs> and this and, the, and it's just the way that Orson Welles sort of threw all those not yet even written rules right. out the window when he was making this film. And the, the fact that, you know, it was this sort of almost archival project, too, of 
cobbling it together and sort of respecting his wishes, <laughs> but also creating something that's cohesive and comprehensive is just fantastic. It's, you know, moving through the party and the, and the sort of death of Hollywood um, before anyone even acknowledged it. It's just... Yeah. Amazing. And yeah, with with personal problems too, these sort of resurrections of uh, other times is, you know, something that was really exciting in 2018 that I didn't even see coming. Right. It's, it, this is also higher in my list. Yeah. And I, much higher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Technically speaking, I don't know. If, uh, yeah. This is, yeah, this is definitely on the higher end for yeah. sure. It's a, it's the, I think it's a film that we'll probably never stop talking about because yeah. it is so rich. It's so, complex and how it goes about just on a moment-to-moment basis just the i still am surprised that after the narration it begins with that scene in the steam baths or something like that oh (laughs) yeah the which i think is the only time that the film within the film has dialogue though who knows if that would have been stripped out in the quote-unquote final version of the fictional film the other side of the wind right but there's so so much to parse yeah. not only in what's being spoken but exactly how wells and his collaborators from beyond the grave chose to <laughs> cut it together yeah. but it's just a such a kinetic film such a film full of life full yeah. of and yet full of death yeah and not not just not only actual death but you feel like you said the death of hollywood but mm-hmm. it's not even it's sort of in the midst of the of new Hollywood, but right. at the same time, it feels almost a culmination it's, of that. Yeah, as well. it's it feels um, sort of like that. Well, there's two things that it reminds me of is that one thing that Bogdanovich has mentioned in interviews of like him being at dinner with George Cukor, and for some reason Dennis Hopper was there, like <laughs> screaming at him that yeah. like we're gonna bury you. And so it feels like that sort of tension is there in the whole film, uh, especially with like this sort of rising intellectual film writers who are just like (laughs) playing themselves. Yeah. Playing themselves and are like little uh, pigeons sort of nipping (laughs) John Huston's heels. Um, But there's the other thing it reminds me of is um, in the book, this is Orson Welles, the interview book with Bogdanovich. um, There's this one section where Welles apparently just started shitting on like every classic Hollywood director that he hated and it was redacted from the book and right. instead they wrote this very nice letter that Wells had <laughs> thought of it, you know I've I know how it feels to have had uh, myself you know like I know how it feels to have been in that position I was putting other people in and I, I just don't want to do it uh, so take it out please and it feels like this film is what was redacted <laughs> so that that may have been why he redacted yeah. it instead it's both, I think, a film we'll never stop talking about, but then frequently we'll just not know what to say. Yeah. It's so rich. It, yeah. It's such a packed text. Yeah. I packed mean, with maybe self-confessions, confessions about other people, confessions about the yeah. nature of the medium itself. I think it's a film that maybe, I wouldn't say it would have changed things in cinema, but I think a lot of imitative films would have come out of it and (laughs) i mean i think apparently i think there was some talk about i think there were some screenings of parts of it Uh and that the edited parts yeah of the edited parts and i think for instance there was uh, oliver stone i think they 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 said that he took the editing patterns for jfk oh yeah 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 that sort of thing so even in its even yeah in in its its protean form yeah, it had that, it had that influence well. yeah yeah it's a film that like we sort of miss the absence or the influence of but it's 
it's still there in these sort of permeating forms and right. maybe it'll it'll come back but i don't think that the infrastructure is even no, there anymore so. so it's just this sort of dinosaur almost but yes. but a very very glorious one yes <laughs> so glorious <laughs> and even though we're not sold on netflix in terms of what it does with its theatrical releases yeah props yeah. to them for this yeah and, and for mean, other other fantastic films this and, is yeah i mean it, they should be promoting this more than roma but <laughs> i agree with that i, I yeah. like roma but i, I is, like roma too but uh, this is know. singular yeah yeah there's absolutely. i don't i can't think of a film that's really like it yeah my number six is the ballad of buster scruggs by joel and ethan cohen another netflix yeah another netflix film we've discussed this before but it's such a another really warm film and mm -hmm. one that really took me by surprise and i just find each segment to be like all, all the segments i think have force that that's unique to its own and i think i don't think there's a, a bad or even a mediocre moment in the bunch but it ends with the best two yeah which, oh for sure which, which helps for sure yeah and there's such a joy even in the more contemplative moments and yeah. when they really let their performers fly it mm -hmm. there's uh, there's just such a, a life to it yeah but between I, I still think that like the sort of 100 plus like 120 plus minute runtime does right. it wears down a bit you sort a of feel bit. that you're watching six sort of longish short stories right. play out uh it's still yeah i mean it's still like a fantastic um film but i do i think it's interesting that after lewin davis which was sort of the most insular and singular um not like you know sort of like main character oriented films of right. their career that they've gone on to hail caesar and now this which mm -hmm. is they're just so like kaleidoscopic yeah. almost and what they're depicting and how many different styles they pick up i mean right. the one thing that i really love about this film that's that i really think like the sort of i wouldn't say is a deconstruction but their sort of evocation of the western genres that they work in so many western formats so right. there's the sort of snow western and the liam neeson segment there's the prairie western <laughs> uh there's the sort of stagecoachy <laughs> environments uh and you know the more action oriented ones too um, and you know, of course, even the minor, yeah, uh, yeah, and the mining one, <laughs> Tom Waits looking like Nick Nolte, <laughs> uh, and you know, yeah, like the sort of also acknowledgement of yeah, like whiteness shaping the yes, you know, Western landscape, and you know, the expansion of the United States is is there, maybe not as present as I think people want it to be, or think it should be, or interpret it to be, but but it is there, and it is you know a nice uh addition when you do a western now you know you kind of have to do something with it and i think right. that they do uh very well and what's so interesting to me about you, know, you say the sort of maximal sort of cast mm -hmm. is that in these individual stories they invest so much into yeah. the central characters in that and yeah. that's something for example that i thought was missing in hell season yeah which yeah. is a which is a fun time and i do right. like it but it's that that like, one's yeah, yeah. star-studded but all you know it's right. most like the most you see of any character is Josh Brolin in that film. Yes. And here you really, yeah, you get a full sense of each one, even if it's shorter in length. Yeah. Even fuller like picture. James Franco's character yeah. in near Algodona's is pretty. It's a well really, drawn. that's a crazy. Yeah. I mean like that. I don't think that casting was, I don't know the fact that it was like James Franco's first uh, film to come out after he was, you know, accused yeah, of right. um, all his sort of sexual misdeeds was very interesting. Uh, I, that's, I guess, more meta-textual. Right. 
It's, that's it's one yeah. of his best performances. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's easily it's better than his Tommy Wiseau. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> let's like, let's bury that. One. Let's bury that. Yeah, but yeah, Ball- Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It, I was really taken. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, that should be obvious, but it's. I, I'm still surprised that the Coens had this in them, yeah. e- even though True Grit is also fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's. I don't even know what to expect from them anymore, no, and so that that, that this sort of came out of it was yeah, it was a pleasant surprise yes, for absolutely. sure. I'm ho- hopeful that this is a this marks new territory. Yeah, yeah, digital territory. Digital, yes, territory. digital. Yeah. yeah, very beautiful digital. The next film that I have is Minding the Gap. Uh, this is Bing Liu's uh, debut documentary about himself and also. Um, two other young men in Rockford, Illinois. So just outside of Chicago and this sort of development over a few years in their own lives. And it follows Liu himself. Uh, I, I forgot. I, there's one kid named Kier and I can't remember the other guys. It's like Josh or Jason, something. Jason, right? Could be. I, yeah. I mean, he's, he is his own character, but somehow his name doesn't make an impression. Um, but either, either way, it sort of follows them uh, through skating. Um, that's what really connects them originally. Zach. Zach. Okay. Yeah. Zach, Jason, Josh, all the same. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, it, the white, the, yeah, white, the white guy. guy. Bing Liu is, you know, uh, I think he's Chinese, his family. I think so, yes. Yeah. Chinese. Um, mm-hmm. And Kier is black. And so it, what it, initially, it starts out sort of as a skating documentary. You almost sort of roll your eyes at it because it's really just like these guys, you know, doing these skate tricks basically. And it has this sort of music to it. But very, very quickly, it sort of shows. I mean, Zach uh, gets his girlfriend pregnant and then has the kid and then they're both sort of working bad jobs and their relationship sort of moves in and out of stability, um, especially around the kid. And, you know, eventually the girlfriend reveals to Liu that um, Zach has been abusing her. And so that opens up this whole other can of worms of how all three of these kids were abused by their parents and either abused or neglected and sort of the lasting impact that has on them and how it brought them to skating, how it, you know, created these anger issues within them, how they work through it and justify their own behavior through it just because of how they were raised. Uh, And it leads to this very emotional confrontation between uh, Bing Liu and his own mother who, you know, remarried this man who abused him and his brother. Just the the film walks through the house where all that happened. And, you know, it's it's just a very very uh, sort of harrowing. And so when he directly confronts her, I mean, it's this very emotional moment. Uh, but the person in the film who I really followed the most was Kier, just because he's this, this, he's the youngest of the bunch and he sort of is figuring out his own life and trying to just get out of this place that he's been in and eventually he does at the end of the film. And it, the fact that it takes place over many years doesn't really become apparent until the end of the film um, because they don't really change in their appearance too much, except for Zach, his hair always, <laughs> always tip his hair and his facial hair always change. Yeah. But um, you know, it's this, it's this film that you know, this young documentarian made looking back on his own life, on his own trauma and on the trauma of others and never, never makes any statements on like American masculinity in 2018. That's true. It, depicts it but it never defines it and so that you know i i really enjoyed it enjoyed it and was very touched by it as well i I did find it touching but this is the 
I guess the film on your list I don't feel quite as strongly about, or I, I feel like it may be, I, I do think that, of course, I sympathize entirely with what it was trying to do and yeah. sort of showing the abuse, but I think that just how the film handles it or how just the sort of shape of the film, I don't think it really lends enough to it. I, yeah. I feel like because the it's so because the skating aspect of their lives is so central that of mm-hmm. course that he has to keep returning to it. And yeah. I think that if he had focused on one or the other more, I think maybe 10% more, they can 10% more say to the, to the abuse side, then I think it would have been quite successful for me. But I yeah. think for whatever reason it felt, I, I just could not fully buy into it. Maybe it was yeah. that some parts were left were less interrogated than others or yeah, just definitely. the s- some moments I think are didn't quite land for me like the sort of climax where Zach is giving this confession yeah. while care is searching for his father's grave while Bing's mother is yeah. is giving this very tearful confession I think the, yeah those the, are sort they, of yeah they're sort of pushed together in a way that feels a bit uncomfortable if they rather had just played out individually but yeah yeah at the same time i see why you know it's definitely a first film sort of maneuver very personal and yeah a very personal film to make your first film as well um so it definitely yeah it definitely has those sort of awkward touches to it and this would probably be the lowest on my top 10 but it it definitely made a surprise. I wasn't, I was really not expecting more than a skating documentary when I went in. Yeah. I'm, it's, I do, I'm really taken with the editing and mm-hmm. with very fluid cinematography, like yeah. during those skating parts. And I do, this is probably terrible to say, but the skating parts are my favorite, I think. <laughs> or, or like if it had gone full, say, Harvard SEL and just, yeah, been, just skating down that would have been streets, fun. it would have been fun. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not sure if it would have reached as many people, but I think no. there's a certain, because it moves between those modes, I think a little bit more than I was expecting. I was exactly comfortable with that being said, it is a very good film. Yeah. It's just, it's not, it didn't really get there for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally understand that. My number five is mission impossible fallout <laughs> directed by Christopher McQuarrie with the, perhaps the true auteur is, Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise's death wish. Tom Cruise's death wish, yeah. yes. Uh, which has permeated his entire body yeah. and, and mind by this point. And I, all the better for it yeah. <laughs> for me. <laughs> it's to, we, we should get something out of the way first, which is that this is by no means one of the greatest action films ever made. It's, if if you think that you have not seen enough action films. Yeah. Let, let's oh, just no. No, it's a very, very strongly yeah. serviceable action uh, film I, I i'd say it's just very above. very strong yeah 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 but, but it's it's not i mean you know i don't know i wouldn't even say like mad max fury road is one of the best i don't think so I, it's made. it's i do need to rewatch it again but yeah. it, there there are some moments in there which rank up with yeah yeah thing, yeah but, absolutely. but in just this this film is just uh fallout is so wonderful and I, because i'm much more of a of a fan of the series as a whole than mm-hmm. than than you, Dan. Yes. I, I think it hit me a lot harder. And yeah, it's not necessarily. I, it's one of those films where I think the the emotions come out, the viscerality of it, of out of yeah. that sort of freedom of motion that yeah. is so key to how this film operates, and that it manages. And whereas the 
predecessor, also directed by McQuarrie, mm-hmm. Rogue Nation was much more about finesse. This one is about yeah. brute force, but in a way that I found very, very delightful. Like following the following the skydiving sequence with the with the bathroom sequence, which is second only to to other side of the winds for great yeah. bathroom sequences. Of oh yes, twenty eighteen. Yes, there's just a such fun. Mm-hmm. It's it's a of course, really fun film, but also that it gives time to letting these scenes play out. That there's the just five minutes dedicated to just Tom Cruise running through on the rooftops of London. Yeah, <laughs> there's it's yeah, it's a very good, it's a fun romp, uh, it's for a romp, sure. certainly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, fun globe trotting film yes. and whatnot. Uh, it's just the same thing with the Mission Impossible series is that I can't follow why they're doing any of this and I don't particularly <laughs> care and the stunts are just sort of compelling enough to keep me going but right. at the same time I, I don't know why this has to be in the series. I think the first one was the best one and I, you know. I think I, I do I do love it also. I, I yeah. love basically every entry in this except maybe the third one. Yeah, the third you, one's terrible. That's good. <laughs> it's it's, it's it good. Is. It has a <laughs> It is not. But <laughs> we'll move on. Sure, but it's a I just find a lot to grasp onto in yeah. terms of its grandiloquence and its yeah. boldness. Yeah, it's um and Henry Cavill's Henry Cavill, arms. His arms are very very strong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great set pieces throw yeah. in, and, you know, I was carried through by it, but I did, I mean, I watched Rogue Nation like three days before I saw this and I didn't remember anything about either, <laughs> um, you know, going in. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I like when they embrace that it's just, this is whatever, but now it seems like the franchise is sort of aiming for continuity and, you know, like yeah, we'll query just signed on to the direct the next we'll two. We'll see how those pan out. Yeah. I, I have faith, but yeah. we'll see. But yeah, you know, like the fact that each one sort of felt like its own giving like the action director of the moment, like the highest budget possible, mm-hmm. that's sort of gone away now. And now yeah. it's becoming this different thing. So we'll see. I mean, hopefully the action's still great and that's all that really matters. And yeah. uh, maybe we'll get to see Tom Cruise die on screen <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> he really wants to. Yes. <laughs> the next one for me is Let the Sunshine In, which we've already discussed. Yes. So. so number four for me is The Day After. By oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize I could have put that one on. Did you see it this year or? Uh, no, I saw it last year. Okay, so then, I guess that's yeah. why I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> for your... This is why I I yeah. follow the rules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and keep a running list so, yes. so you know <laughs> as you go along exactly how I like how this making it showing. up at the end. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a certain fun to that too as yeah. well. But yeah, the day after, I, I guess now Hong is in a black and white phase, but this yeah. is the, fr- the one that kicked it off the first one since one of his masterpieces, The Day He Arrives. And oh, this yeah. one, I guess it's sort of in that lineage, but only in the sense that all Hong films are. And mm-hmm. I find just so... This one definitely it grew on me as I watched it. Uh, this is I think I saw it three times. Oh I've seen it three gosh. times. The, wow. But spread over a period of time. Yeah. So enough of a period of time to give each time to really linger. But mm-hmm. I think it has some of his most searing, most devastating passages, but also some extremely funny <laughs> passages as well. Yeah. There and there's sort of a certain pivot that happens in in the midst in the middle when the two timelines of the film sort of intersect and mm-hmm. become a, a cohesive whole. Yeah. But I, and I'm just fascinated by how Hong's, his sense of the, of the religious, uh, the sense of, 
a more personal self, a more introspective self, or mm-hmm. even even more introspective self have come to the fore, especially in this film. And yeah, it, I, from what I can tell, his next two and possibly more, <laughs> probably more, probably more. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I want to watch this one again. The one when I saw it at the New York Film Festival in 2017 at an encore screening. I think the audience had a hard time telling the delineation between the hilarious moments and the heartbreaking ones. And so that really uh, threw me as to how I reacted to it. But I, I, yeah, I love this film. Um, And what happens in the day he arrives didn't fully click to me until the second viewing. And then that film really opens up in a lot of ways. I feel like that's what you have to do with these Hong films Mm -hmm. and especially the trickier ones, which may or may not be in black and white um, (laughs) is you got to, you have to sort of see them again, see where, yeah, like the, where these sort of tricks (laughs) intersect, where like he, where his writing sort of takes flight and, um, and yeah, let the film sort of open up. But you know, the things that I remember from this film more than a year out are like uh, Kim and he in the car. Yes, um, absolutely the that sort of restaurant scene that just sort of drags on forever <laughs> and um the opening the bookshop at the end uh or or the publishing company right um like that when, when she of, comes back yeah when yeah, she comes right. back at the end and just the, the sort of like just a very slippery nature to this whole film um i mean yeah it's been a been a bit too long for me to really say much more about it but it it sticks around in my head a lot Right. Yeah. And I, I, even though I still hold On the Beach at Night Alone in a bit yeah. higher esteem, but they're both absolutely, well, all, all three Hong films from yeah. that premiere last year are great. Yeah. I mean, their yeah. Own way. They, yeah. They, they would make a 2017 or 2018 list. Right. Uh, regardless. I, Claire's camera didn't quite crack yeah. it. It here, didn't quite crack it for but, me as well. But yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's one of his best visually directed films as well yeah. just oh, absolutely. not only in the black and white but just exactly which character he chooses to pay onto at a particular moment just the and because a lot of the film is predicated on three characters interacting yeah especially in that scene the the two scenes with three characters in the sort of sitting area mm-hmm. and and you can just tell based on which which person is sitting by themselves and which two characters are sitting next to each other, yeah. how, how they're <laughs> interacting, how, what, yeah. the, what the state of play is at that time. Right. I just find it like with most Hong films, just endlessly rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely deserves those repeated viewings and repeated sort of discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Of it. So my next film is the grand bazaar, uh, which is Jody max feature length animation. Although it's only like 65 minutes long, right. which we talked about before yes. too on, yeah. Catching up with the festival, um, selections. And so I won't talk about it too much longer, but yeah, the ways that it, uh, sort of, what did I think? I said it sort of merges like Peter Hutton's at sea, right. <laughs> that sort of view of globalization with like the feel of like, uh, Peter Gabriel's sledgehammer <laughs> music video. Of, like, you didn't mention that part, okay. but, I, but that definitely makes sense. Yeah. The sort of like <laughs> kaleidoscopic colors moving through everything, right. the sort of animation style that's sort of effortlessly and endlessly playful moving through this <laughs> very, not even intellectual, but just this large system of like communication and not beyond communication, just like uh, how the world is structured now, the sort of globalization that we live in and feel the effects of, but don't actually see the, the work that goes in. It, Mac animates it so that it isn't just this thing 
working on its own. It's humans creating it, but at the same time, it's humans creating it unaware of what that the, what they're creating. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, some of the connections that she makes with other systems don't quite um, pan out at the end. But even so, I, I think it's just so much fun. It's an hour. It's yeah, yeah. It's so, it's amazing. the The score yes. is like one of the best parts of it too. It's one of the best like soundtracks, you know, music created for a film in 2018. Right. It it yeah. I said before it was one of the most intelligent films I've seen of the year. Yeah. And a film that I keep returning to just in its sort of connections. It's obliqueness and yet its clarity and its obliqueness, for yeah. lack of a better term. Just what she chooses, how she chooses to structure it around music and how mm-hmm. the various different styles, I guess you could say of music inflect yeah. what's appearing on the screen. Hopefully it will become a 2019 film and get I distributed. Hope so. I hope I grasshopper or someone is working yeah. on that as we speak. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. They could book this at Metrograph and just play it yes. for weeks. And yeah. Show at the, at the kids matinees. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then play it out here somewhere. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, yeah. It's yeah. a yeah wonderful film. Uh, we discussed it last episode, but right. hopefully we'll have another opportunity to discuss it maybe next year. I hope so. Yes. My number three is my is my rule break, I guess you could say. I, I went just by what films played for a week in New York City. If you want to sub in a film that technically qualifies within premiered less than two years ago, then you can sub in if Bill Street could talk. Mm, but yeah. for my number three is King Who's Legend of the Mountain. Nice. from 1979 and it's his I, I guess there's been a s- sort of restoration craze for King Who which is yeah. great because he's well he probably consistently sells tickets <laughs> yeah I hope for so for the wuxia style yeah. one of the if not the greatest action director to ever live oh, I yeah, think probably and his and this is a sort of not necessarily a departure because it's very much in the vein of his previous films, but this was released the same year as Raining in the Mountain, which I haven't seen. Mm. But I think by consensus, this is his final great, great work. Right, right. And in its director's cut form, it's three hours. And it's a, and it's actually not really a wuxia, technically speaking, because I don't think there's much, mm. much martial arts in it. But it's more of a, almost like you could say akin to like a, a Chinese ghost story sort of film oh, okay. in that it follows the, the, his sort of stock mean actor, Shu Chun, <laughs> one of my, one of my favorite performers in all of cinema for just his sort of befuddlement, continuous, <laughs> continuous befuddlement and amazement at what's going on around him. So I think he's traveling to help. It's been a while since I've seen it, but help, I think copy a manuscript or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he falls asleep and, what may or may not be a dream transpires over the next three hours of, of this sort of fortress that's eventually revealed to be populated entirely by ghosts. Some of them are benevolent. Some of them are malicious. Yeah. One of them is played by the main actress in many of, of whose films, Tu Fun, who's the lead in A Touch of Zen and, uh, and The Fate of Lee Khan, which are both well, Touch of Zen we'll discuss in a few episodes. Oh, yes. For hopefully quite a while. <laughs> and so... And she, she plays one of the malevolent ghosts. And <laughs> even though this is not necessarily technically accurate, this this is the sort of progression I have for my favorite of whose films, so Dragon in the last 10 minutes or so, mm-hmm. are what characterize the entirety of A Touch of Zen. Oh. And the last 30 minutes or so of that film are what characterize the entirety of Legend of the Mountain for me. Oh, wow. 
it because it takes place enti- almost entirely in this ethereal realm and mm-hmm. i think this is the most i've seen who shoot just landscapes and nature surrounding mm-hmm. his characters some maybe maybe his best looking film which is quite wow. a feat considering how damn gorgeous his other <laughs> films are as well and he takes the time just really to luxuriate in the workings in yeah. this in just the the pleasures that this film offers and yeah i think it's just the i'm probably underrating it i think it's just the utterly fantastic film yeah. fantastic in multiple senses of the word oh yeah i gotta i gotta get up on king who yeah. and more chinese cinema in general but this is definitely something i'll be looking forward to i think it's on canopy too oh yeah um, it could be I have the if it's, a, if it's kino i think um, it's kino yeah, yeah yeah i have a blu-ray pretty sure it's kino yeah so if, in that case it's yeah. probably on canopy so i should probably some hop great to it soon great drum work yeah well yeah it, a lot of much the, of that yeah a lot of the battle is done with hand drums oh cool yeah. <laughs> so next up for me we might as well do it because this is yeah we, we might as well discuss it together so my, my number two is the other side of the wind yeah might as well and, just get that one out yeah of and my number one and your second on the list second to last yeah is first reformed the yes. uh, paul schrader film um yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I've been hearing about this one until it got released and the sort of idiotic marketing by A24 <laughs> uh, in which they, I don't know. Pepto-bismol challenge. The Pepto-bismol in which they turned a very good scene of the movie into its completely idiotic meme. Uh, I don't, I don't, the, our issues with that company are, yeah, subject for a later day. Yeah. But it's sort but of. They, they, they've released some some of the best films of the past. Yeah, oh, absolutely. For, four or five years yeah yeah and they're set to continue that again so yeah they're doing something right they're doing maybe maybe not their marketing or their branding or many of their other films but they're at least releasing some of these yeah i mean yeah yeah i mean yeah i guess the point is that as much as like their online presence can irritate you and how they package a film when you do actually get to the film it is just something like this which is just absolutely fantastic and you know this just yeah despairing uh very <laughs> anguished film from uh, a g- very grumpy old man um <laughs> you know the, and the fact that this is schrader's real recognition um as a writer director is really <laughs> just kind of hilariously ironic because it's his most i wouldn't say like scolding but it, is, it right. is his most sort of very confrontational at mm-hmm. least and how i mean it's the fact that it's an environmental story uh def- or that it deals with this sort of environmentalism and very accurately sort of depicts the despair of um living in the, you know the late 2010s where <laughs> you know we get reports about just how worse the climate is going to be mm-hmm. and and things seem nothing seems like it's going to get any better i think he somehow tapped into that in a way that uh, his facebook posts don't uh and channeled all that very strong energy and uh, you know the ways of his influences as well you know the brisson and bergman and the sort of transcendental the drier influences as well uh really i mean they would just like that, you know they mix together like pepto-bismol and whiskey <laughs> in this film it's and he, of course ethan hawk is just oh, a, probably yeah. probably the best performance of yes, his career i, I mean well, and, oh yeah and of the year probably yeah now. yeah probably yeah it it's just the kind of film where i felt that basically every single i think just every single shot is just so etched and mm-hmm. so rich with meaning and of course 
shot in Force Three and on and digital on very beautiful digital, yes. very rich digital. Yeah, and it should be. I don't remember who said it should. Sean be, Baker. Yes, it yes. should be shot no, in digital. Shot, yeah. The entire point is that yes. it's shot in digital. Yeah, it's very much a film of the moment, but mm-hmm. in a way that nevertheless feels not only because of its cinephilic references, but in terms of the how much it relies on religion, on the sort of foundational tenets of it, that I find yeah. it feels like it somehow transcends that. Yeah, um, and the the sort of visual textures of it, the very digital visual right. textures of it make it feel... Um, I mean, it looks like Costa. Yeah, 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 it does look like a Costa film. I mean, if it goes into something like hyper real right, almost right. like into this sort of reality that we can't accept that we can also manipulate and you know like a very you know probably the film's most uh cinematic scene right. um you know how we can transform reality but at the same time like we have to confront it too right. and things i mean this is it's a very well shot film but it's depicting very ugly things yes. and it, the, the yeah, like the sort of precision of the digital camera and using like this sort of extremely high quality camera that, you know, uh, had he made this film and even like 2007, it wouldn't have, you know, those textures wouldn't have come out. It would have been grainier. It wouldn't have made that same impact. But in 2017, when it did premiere, it, you know, really like has that. I mean, it feels almost 3D in a way, especially that opening yeah. slow crawl mm-hmm. of the church. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just unbelievable. Yeah. I think my favorite singular moment in any film in 2018, I think, is just the push in on Ethan Hawke's face as he's debating with the doomed man. Yeah. And it, as he says, like, as he's talking, comparing it to sort of his wrestling with uh, wrestling with the angel in the desert that yeah. Isaac mm-hmm. did. And he, and he says, I found it exhilarating. It just, that single moment has never, I don't think will ever leave my mind. And yeah. There are other moments, of course, but, and others general scenes but there's such a but i think that acknowledgement is so central to what to that journey that mm-hmm. that reverend toller faces through the entirety of the film and i find that its sensitivity its clarity its conviction is just nigh unparalleled in recent cinema yeah yeah i think yeah. so it's yeah it's i sort of it's so weird that yeah it's just this late man and you know this late film that's sort of right. the summation of this very strange and underrated career yes. um that really could become so precise and it, you know, it's like sharp as a nail basically absolutely. um yeah, yeah. And, and it, it punctures yeah and absolutely. yet i almost feel that the ending could almost be kind of hopeful yeah. in a certain sense there there is yeah. that because it's not necessarily transcendence it's not necessarily full transcendence but it's perhaps one of a more earthly more physical more tactile nature which yeah it's a film of tensions of course yeah. it, it works through so many tensions on a moment by moment basis and yet it manages to unite them all under a single aesthetic a single performance yeah it's, it's yeah i mean yeah probably the best way to put it is that's a very singular film yes and that, yeah you wouldn't you won't find it anywhere else. Um, so then the next film that I have... Yeah, we, which, let, let's give a preview for... Yeah, we're going to be looking year's. forward a little yes. bit. Is Ashes Purest White. Uh, this is the Zsa Zanka film that we discussed on the last episode too, I think. Right. As part of our AFI uh, recap and what had played in the festival this year. And, you know, it remains just as 
fantastic as it was. Um, and once it does get its release, it'll definitely be the best film of 2019. And uh, everyone should strive to be half as great as yes, this film is. I, I don't think we need to talk about it too much more. I don't more think now. so. It's my second. It's my second favorite of 2019 at the present moment. Right. I don't anticipate moving up. It might move down depending on some other films that may or may not blow my socks off yeah it's possible yeah but oh yeah yeah i just remember what your first is right yes <laughs> yes uh, long day straight tonight yeah right the this the smash box office hit of the chinese of yeah. the veneer in china yeah oh yeah that's right <laughs> so, yeah god bless Mark those marketers um yeah i mean hopefully that's yeah. just purest white breaks uh all of crazy rich asians oh, records god. let's uh, hope so yeah, yeah. let's let's strive for some representation that involves a genuinely exciting and wonderful aesthetic yeah yeah so that concludes our top 10 top of 10. 2018 um, countdown for me i found it to be a lot better a lot more rewarding year than 2017 i, I know that you weren't yeah i found it to be very lacking and mostly yeah. uh garbage <laughs> <laughs> uh, i i'm i'm pretty positive on it i'm not over the moon for it like most people are but yeah it, it's a promising and just based on the festival coverage and some of the films that we've already discussed on this, on this top 10, 2019 might be the best release year of the decade. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope it picks up because uh, the, yeah. the, yeah, I mean, just getting back to the festival for a bit, the other 2018 festival films I saw Oh yes. Uh, in the last recording session were The Favorite by Yorgos Lanthimos, which I did not pick and I was not, I did not pay for. Uh, nobody paid for that, thankfully, because none of us liked it. Uh, it was really boring. And <laughs> all these very obvious uh, choices that Lanthimos makes and uh, just, I don't get it. I don't get why he's becoming a cultural force we have to deal with now, but. Uh, it's fun. It's, some of it's fun. Nicholas yeah. Holt is fun. Nicholas Holt is um, fun. Emma Stone is really irritating as ever. <laughs> um, Olivia, yeah, Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weiss are they're both very good, yes. but otherwise I didn't find much in there at all. And another film that I didn't find much in at all is uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky's Cold War, which I chose because it was 80 minutes long. And it, the fact that it is 80 minutes long, it feels like he cut out everything that made it actually interesting or compelling or just make any sort of sense because I don't. I don't get why these two people kept having to uh, connect with each other over these uh, grand changes in time. And I couldn't even tell what those changes were without the uh, markings because a scene would end before I could even tell what was, what might happen in there. I don't, I don't get the praise for this film. I don't get the Academy Award nominations for this film. That's strange. Yeah. I, the, yeah. Stars, I mean, Stars Born is better. Yeah. Oh, Stars Born is way better. And the fact yeah, that Bradley Cooper was shut out so that Pavlikovsky's, uh, very obvious another film of very obvious aesthetic choices yeah uh, could i, be I so agree highly with that, praised. But, um yeah i don't know i don't get it <laughs> at the very least yeah uh, it's we'll discuss them in further detail yeah. much further down the line yeah only other nif film that i saw a lot of the nif films that i've discussed in the past are could also be kind of honorable mentions <laughs> for my 2018 list but the only other one that i saw was shoplifters which i was pretty surprised with and pretty taken with um relatively speaking for Koreeda because <laughs> i guess this one well and i, I liked the other Korea films mm -hmm. i've seen but this one just has a greater sensitivity and i like how it creates these different microcosms within this outer within this world this unit and it takes all of the all of the family members at face value and invests 
a good deal of emotional energy into them and i liked it yeah i maybe wish i saw that instead of cold war but <laughs> maybe <laughs> it there it my, your mileage might vary yeah but. yeah probably i'd rather maybe not be held hostage to <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah anyway we'll, we will be back to discuss more films yes many more films yeah Welcome back. Uh, now we'll be beginning our discussion of the 1973 New York Film Festival. The 11th edition. Yes, the 11th edition. Uh, just quickly want to uh, make mention of three gigantic figures who passed uh, just in the last week yes. uh, who are all sort of related to pretty significant um, NIF films. Uh, the first being uh, Jonas Mekas, of course, yes. uh, who you know made reminiscences of a journey to Lithuania and the Brig that we saw, and you know countless other works. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have just, another one later on, but mm-hmm. later later enough on that. Yeah, we'll be able to talk about it. Yeah, far from this, but uh, yeah, I mean, just I mean, he was ninety six or so, yes. ninety six or ninety seven, uh, mm-hmm. just a titanic figure yeah. uh, in the New York film scene, and in sort of getting film to be recognized as an art on its own. Right. Um, I, I mean, he was, he was huge. I mean, his, mm-hmm. his impact is just on, yeah. yeah I mean, it's hard for us to summarize it, but you know, like we wouldn't be doing a podcast like this if it weren't for Probably him. Not, and yeah. our sort of communities are the graduate programs we're in sort of film being recognized, uh, the way that it is. And, you know, like the path I'm on the archival path probably wouldn't be there without him. And, uh, you know, his founding of anthology film archives, all that sort of thing. So just a, a, you know, huge, huge legacy. Um, and he was, yeah, I mean, he was still up and at it, you know, well into his nineties. So it's amazing that he, he lived as long as he did. Yeah. And just, he gave so much to us and yeah, yeah, had Village Voice film section, mm-hmm. his uh, anthology, his just writing in general, his yeah. criticism. Yeah. It's just so many gifts and just his wealth of knowledge, his wealth of dedication. Mm-hmm. Incalculable. Like yeah. We, we can't say how much we're in debt to him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other is uh, yeah. Dusan. Dusan Makaveya. Dusan Makaveya. Uh, who directed yeah. Love Affair or The Case of the Missing Switchboard Operator. Yeah. And WR Mysteries of, of the Organism, and also Sweet Movie. Sweet Movie, and uh, yeah. the Coca Cola Kid starring Eric Roberts <laughs> in the 80s. Did not know that. But yeah, yeah, another very radical filmmaker, deeply invested in experimentation. And of course, we're, we're not necessarily, we're kind of split, the yeah, two of us, but for I think sure. there's still 
a lot to be gained from that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was you know definitely pushing boundaries in a way that sure. others weren't, especially in a you know in Yugoslavia too. Yes. So in a very um, oppressive regime, there's a lot to be said for that. And yeah. even if I don't love the films in question, you know, mm-hmm. the, his work is yeah very very important and uh, influential and yeah. really yeah like really pushed and changed film and pushed boundaries right. in a lot of different ways. I mean, I think the explicit sexuality of his films mm-hmm. is yeah very influential in you know ways <laughs> good and bad yeah, but sure. but nonetheless he was yeah. yeah may he rest in peace yes and also the very 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 great michelle legrand oh yes yes uh, we didn't mention it during our discussion with the other side of the wind but he's oh yeah extremely crucial to that film's shift sense of shifting that sense sense of rhythm probably the best score of last year and yeah. i think as fitting a as fitting and monumental career capper as bernard oh, yeah. herman's score for taxi driver yeah just the yeah. fact that he came out I and mean, it was a new score too it yes. wasn't uh yeah right. it wasn't old work that he had done for the film that they sort of put together i mean he came out and did it and he was ready to i mean he when we saw it, there was a sort of q a section the part that i stayed for they said he did it he came out to LA and then he went to go work on something else too. I mean, so he was yeah. working, you know, right up until, uh, until his passing yes, as well. Yeah. This, this wasn't his final score, but right. it's, it's a, it's a capper for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely for, his final most significant yes, score. Yeah. yeah. Work for, for fake, for, for various Joseph Losey films, for Viva Sevi, for Band of Outsiders. I mean, he for, wrote the song for I the mean, Charleston and of course the, the two, two of the, films, yeah, the two yeah. of the greatest musicals ever written yeah absolutely yeah, at least 30 percent or 40 percent responsible for them and just that sense of some sense of melding that sense of mastery yeah yeah i mean i i don't think that i think he might be my favorite composer for for, for film, film. Yeah. yeah i mean certainly certainly up there i'm just looking at his um his listings and so you know along with all the classics that we mentioned there's sort of random ones like clint eastwood's breezy yeah. Uh, the Smurfs and the Magic Flute, <laughs> uh, Atlantic City, the oh, Louis Mal yeah. film, uh, Yentl, Yentl, <laughs> Never Say Never Again, a uh, Bond film, so and and an Altman film, uh, Preda Porter, uh, mm. so you know just like an endless adaptability. Yes. Uh, I don't think I mean probably a lot of it was for hire, but it would never feel yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, just an absolute titan of his craft. Yeah. I will never forget the moment where. He's name checked in the Young Girls of Rochefort. Oh yes, <laughs> but yeah, just that—that's one of the great films without yeah. question. And, uh, yeah, and, and same with with Ambrose Sherbrooke. Yeah, huge, huge fingerprint on yes, all of those. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Another bit of of not necessarily business, but personal mm-hmm. <laughs> pleasure. Apparently, this podcast is oh, at, yes. at least and not necessarily listened to yet, but but it's yeah, it's been heard of sure. heard of by. Dennis Lim, the yeah, how did this long, come about? Well, a long-standing uh, member of the New York Film Festival right. Selection Select Committee, Committee. Year, year-round head of programming at Film Society of Lincoln Center, doing some, of course, amazing work for yeah, and in, in criticism uh, as well for many years now, and he was in in town for the Are the Real uh, Los mm-hmm. Angeles opening night, and <laughs> I mentioned to him that i had this podcast he said that he had heard of it oh wow yes so uh, I'm, and he had 
he's meaning to listen to it. So if oh, you're listening, boy. Dennis, hello and hello. Apologize there for yeah. long Please forgive meandering. Us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, but yeah, I mean, just that alone just made my entire week, my entire month. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. this entire endeavor. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, it, that, that people who are intimately involved and who mm. are deeply connected with this incredible institution that we call the New York Film Festival is just, really really wonderful yeah yeah Yeah. it's a very uh very enriching or uh uh, validating thing to hear yeah absolutely on to the actual festival yeah yeah i hope at long last yes i hope that if you're listening that you had remembered that last episode had a two-part introduction as well yeah i hope so if not it always a good idea to check the descriptions of the of of your podcast yeah in case there's <laughs> demarcated introduction two parts but for the 11th edition the selection committee was richard roud as the director richard corliss arthur knight arthur Mayer, andrew saris is in sontag and Henri Lenoir. and this time interestingly enough it took place most for the most part at alice tully hall but also the opening night was at Philharmonic Hall. Mm-hmm. All the films were played twice except for Day for Night because of the opening night status and right. because it was in Philharmonic Hall and Dr. Mabusa, The Gambler. Um, <laughs> for length? Or for, for, for length. But yeah. I mean, there are, there are other long films in there as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that for some reason, this festival had a surfeit of long films. Yeah, which I didn't get to watch because <laughs> of their length. Yeah, and... Interestingly enough, there was a strike on the part of the New York Film Harmonic Orchestra, which threatened the cancellation of the opening night because uh, the stagehands were and other employees were refused to cross the picket lines. Oh, interesting. But they d- agreed to a um, the orchestra voted to withdraw the picket lines for opening night. Hmm. So I mean, it's in. What was the cause of the strike? I think just pay or something oh, like that okay. for for the orchestra, actually for the orchestra members themselves, which is interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. Hmm. Interest. I yeah. wonder if that was because that was reported on extensively in the New York Times. I was wondering <laughs> if it was mentioned by Raud or the the committee members on the actual occasion of the opening night. Yeah. Regardless, yeah. it's that's huh. an interesting tidbit and a reminder that the real world is often <laughs> deeply connected to what goes on in this rarefied world we call cinephilia. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, everyone should be paid well. Yes. Absolutely. Solidarity. Yeah. As with the past edition, tickets were in <laughs> great demand and sold out very quickly. And there's a very interesting bit of reporting on how the tickets were actually gotten. So there were two options even before the actual ads came out with mm-hmm. the what was being shown when and how you could purchase tickets. So there was a subscribers list. So where you you were assured seats, but you checked off the dates and the ticket prices. You didn't know what films were oh, being shown. Interesting. So you just had the show times well, and the seats. That's a cool way to do it. Yeah. So that could, that's it. I would sign up for that. I'm not exactly sure if I'd be that willing to go for a yeah. blind chance. But yeah. I mean, you yeah. might get. <laughs> you might get something. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of something bad, but this one actually <laughs> didn't have any yeah. true stinkers. Yeah. And the mailing. And there was also a mailing individual ticket list where you got the opportunity to purchase tickets a few weeks before the times or the village voice ad this was the most successful festival yet oh. and what did you think of this edition um it was sort of pieced together for me very quickly sure. um, at the end of the month because i was pretty busy uh leading up to this recording but i think that it you know for all the films that 
uh, we know very, very well, like uh, Day for Night, I mean, the opening and closing night, uh, Day for Night in Badlands. Um, You know, there's a lot of very strange um, films in between there that aren't, I mean, even the most conventional ones are a bit more off the beaten path than others or than what you might think of uh, the other films. Uh, It's... I can't say that I found any sort of unifying theme or unifying quality to the films. There are a few that I'd seen before that I wish I got the chance to rewatch, but you know, there, I mean, I think there's one film that sort of, (laughs) I wouldn't say it towers above the rest, but is so singular and uh, unique that Mm -hmm. it really, it stands out. It makes everything sort of seem a bit more conventional except for maybe, you know, like the strobes, but um, yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't. I can't quite put my pul- my finger on the pulse of this right. one just yet. Yeah, th- this was definitely. It's one of my favorites. I I yeah. did actually make that ranking that was threatening. Oh, and so it's my third. <laughs> uh, 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 it's top three for me. Okay, and I I can see how. Yeah, for sure. And there's I just not only because of the standouts, but I found in general there was a very strong base of of films, and yeah. I can't actually think of any real stinkers um, no i mean yeah i can't either so and that was definitely the case definitely some interesting tributaries and just a great deal of great great films in this yeah i would say yeah it kind of it's up there with the 1971 for sure right yeah 19 yeah 1970 and 1963 are oh yeah still the two ideals i guess you could say uh, for lack of a better term yeah i should say there's no there were no special events as far as i could tell oh, maybe because of the two the films showing twice. two yeah yeah and then two very very or three three there's at least three movies that are over three hours in this yeah festival. plus a two and a half hour one I think. right yeah uh and so not included in this one uh was the i mean just going through the other festivals the berlin silver bear uh there's no smoke without fire um the seven madmen um and uh, Wedding in Blood, the Chabrol film, mm-hmm. won the Fipressi Award at Berlin. Uh, those are just two other sort of significant ones, but not really named directors either. Right. Uh, can the Jerry Schatzberg film Scarecrow won the sort of equivalent of the Palm there. Um, and Tied with The Hireling. The this, Hireling, yeah. yeah, which I can't remember the director of that one. <laughs> yeah. And the winner for Best Actress there was Joan Woodward in uh, Paul Newman's film The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon, Marigolds, <laughs> uh, which is very, that. yeah, never heard of until like a week ago for Directed some other by reason. Paul Newman? Directed by Paul Newman, yeah. Uh, this was follow up to Rachel Rachel, <laughs> or maybe <laughs> uh, sometimes a great notion, I can't remember. Uh, and the best actor award there went to uh, the lead actor in um, Lena Vertmuller's Love and Anarchy. Uh, also, the jury prize winners of Wojciech Casas' The Hourglass Sanatorium uh, and a film called The Invitation. And uh, out of competition played uh, Hodorowski's The Holy Mountain wow. and uh, the concert documentary Watt Stacks, uh, which is a very interesting choice for that. And uh, Nicholas Ray's sort of, I mean, his sort of other side of the wind or his F for fake, whatever you want to call it, a We Can't Go Home Again, yeah. which, yeah, I mean, would have made a nice addition here. Yes. And in Critics Week was... Uh, Gunn's other major film, Ganja and Hess, uh, and in the director's fortnight, there was Werner Herzog's uh, Magira, The Wrath of God, the James B. Harris film, Some Call It Loving, and um, Jibril Jiyab Mabedi's Tukibuki, 
some big films in there. Yeah, yeah, some sort of major titles. And all ones that I think Agira made it to the U.S. a little later. Right. You know, the other two films are sort of still permeating. I mean, Tukibuki kind of came back, but, you know, Some Call It Loving is still sort of in the ether, um, so mm-hmm. to speak. And then other films, uh, the you know, Japanese animated film Belladonna of Sadness and the French animated film Fantastic Planet. Uh, Hal Ashby's The Last Detail, Don't Look Now, the Rogue film, another uh, recently departed yes. director. Which we didn't actually acknowledge. I don't. He doesn't have any films at the festival, yeah, but so. still a pretty pretty prominent figure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But not relevant to us. <laughs> uh, Bogdanovich's Paper Moon, his sort of last picture show follow, or his What's Up Doc follow-up. Uh, Fellini's Amacord, uh, Mani Calls, Duvida, Bergman's Scenes from Marriage, Verhoeven's Turkish Delight, uh, Fassbender's uh, other film of this period, World on a Wire, and uh, the German film Willow Springs. Yeah. All sort of films that could have been in there, but never never made it. Especially Amacord. Yeah, 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 that seems like a very obvious choice, yeah. but I th- some of it seems like they got like sort of major American releases right. anyway, so yeah. it wasn't really there. I mean, it could have even been earlier than the festival. Right, right, definitely. And so for the New York directors, new films, actually most of them I hadn't heard of and only a few featuring in NIF, but might as well read them anyways. The Cremator by Yarat Hertz, Daddy by Nikki de Saint-Fille, and Peter Whitehead. Goat Horn by Matodi Andonov, Helen, Queen of the Notch Girls by Anthony Corner, John Reed, Insurgent Mexico by Paul Duke, Kodu by Abakar Samb, The Zozos by Pascal Thomas, who does have an appearance in the festival, Peasants of the Second Fortress by Shinsuke Ogawa, Tenrock by Claude Feraldo, Time Within Memory by Toichiro Naoshima, and Tonight or Never by Daniel Schmidt, who has an appearance in the festival. I've heard of none of those films no. or directors. No, and yeah. I, new directors, new films can vary, definitely. And yeah. And we'll see a lot of that variety over the next 50 years or so. Yeah. But either way, interesting. Right before we dive in, I just want I caught up with The Assassination of Trotsky by oh, Joseph yes. Rossi, which I, I liked. And it has its qualities. I think that actually what makes it not extremely successful or not, mm-hmm. not terribly successful is that I think Losi just gets lost in the sort of political sort of climate of yeah. Mexico at that time and the just how Trotsky exactly <laughs> figures into all of it and <laughs> the various factions that are on display. And it's probably best when it actually focuses on Trotsky or yeah. on Alain Delon's, I can't remember his name, his, uh, his, his strange assassin, assassin character. Yeah, his, his assassin yeah. character. Uh, who has amazing soul deadening yeah. sunglasses. Oh, yeah, yeah, which yeah, are, yeah. Which do, I think, go a ways in differing his character from other characters that he's played in the past. Yeah. It sort of has that, it gets sort of there in establishing that sort of tone that characterizes, say, the servants, but I don't think it quite gets there. Yeah. And it's most comfortable when it's just letting... Richard Burton just talk. Yeah. His character is Trotsky and, and it uses the long take and often some walk and talks quite well. Yeah. yeah. I think we'll get into this later, but, you know, Color Losey feels like an almost entirely different director. Yeah, that's, that's ways, fair. Which yeah. is, it's just disorienting <laughs> at the very least. It's sort of disorienting, but also I think his actual f- filming style shifts in order yeah. to, to respond to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's get into the, yeah, into the main slate now. Dive on in. Yeah. 
Welcome back. The opening night was Francois Truffaut's Day for Night, also known as La Nuit Americaine, which roughly translates to the same thing in terms of actual film production. Mm -hmm. And it is his one of his more famous films, I guess you could say. Probably um, aside from Forge of Blows. Yeah, it's probably his second best known film. Yeah. Or Jules Jules Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Spielberg watches this every time before he makes a movie. Oh, I didn't know like that. that. Yeah, it's like it makes that sense. well. Yeah. Know, kind of it's in like that category right, almost. Right. Which is both the blessing and a curse, I yeah, guess you could say. Sure. Yeah, and it's his sort of loving portraits, but actually not as loving as its popular. The score is very loving. The score is very I think loving. Yes, influences a lot. Of course, but it, I think it's more smart than some people give it credit for. Certainly, oh, yeah. Jean Luc Godard. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Godard is a bit unfair on it. No, yeah, uh, it centers around the production of this film called Je vous Pamela. I. I want you to meet Pamela. Yeah. Wait, no, sorry. Uh, Something like that. Je vous présente Pamela. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Meet Pamela, I think is the translation given in the film. A sort of melodrama. <laughs> Probably one of the most like insipid movies within a movie you could imagine. <laughs> but then again, the, 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 one of the things that makes me like it so much is that I think that even if it's not meant to be good, it's still good because of how, because of it's the... the talent involves yeah yeah definitely yeah, on both a textual level and on a actual production mm -hmm. sort of level and so it's directed by Ferrand who's Ferran, played by yeah. Truffaut himself right um, and it stars Jean-Pierre Léod as Alphonse <laughs> oh yes <laughs> this sort of, this <laughs> extremely juvenile this, sort of this bratty, bratty yeah, yeah. <laughs> Braddy's sort of whiny, yeah. cinephilic little cinephilic. snot, <laughs> which he's sort of also like that in another film in the festival. Oh, yeah. We'll get <laughs> well, to that. Yeah. And Pamela is played by this British actress, Julie Baker, who's played by Jacqueline Bisset, and also various other people, including the, the plot is in the film centers around Leo bring this this woman this british woman back to right. to his parents and then yeah. his father and Falling the woman fall in love yeah, and so the father's and played by alexandra this this very well-known actor played by jean-pierre amont it just generally follows the rhythms of production the sort of highs and lows the, yeah, yeah and, many complications and frustrations yes yeah and which are all weathered by the cast and crew the yeah. producers the various assistants i think the my favorite character in it is joel played by natalie bay his yeah assistant director i believe right who is in general sort of a bedrock of the film yeah and it's very much an ensemble cast but certain characters Absolutely. of course just by nature of their relative importance in the production game prominence or yeah don'ts it's sort of difficult to exactly say like on the surface it sounds like it would be just pleasant and predisposable, yeah. but something about the way in which Truffaut infuses his cinephilia throughout and his mm -hmm. genuine love of production and the fact that he actually films the act of the actions of production really well. Yeah. Yeah. And the sort of very minute frustrations like directing a cat. Yeah. <laughs> this movie gets very well and then yeah. it sort of influences how you watch cats on screen thereafter but also yeah like the various frustrations and also sort of the personalities involved mm -hmm. in production i mean it feels like a bit like vincent minnelli's film two weeks in another town which is another film that would seem to romanticize film production but it's actually just this sort of 
it's not i mean i think two weeks in another town is more damning <laughs> because that's <laughs> this, this sort of it goes fully into lurid melodrama right. but this kind of acknowledges the banality and mundanity of like you know every night the crew goes back to the hotel and uh, then what do they do they go watch movies or they don't think about movies at all or they you know sleep with all sleep with each other <laughs> in various formations right. um and, you know, like what happens when you bring in uh, stars with entourages or with their own sets of problems mm-hmm. and insecurities that come with being as famous when you uh, it shows the sort of production of that as well, how the production of the film leads to the production of the stardom. Um, and, yeah, I think I think, as you mentioned, like the, the bad film at the center of it, it still comes from a time when bad movies had very, very <laughs> great uh opening shots which you see through Mm -hmm. the first scene of this film um yeah i think you know at this definitely like this Legrand score Mm -hmm. um very oh delarue sorry oh delarue yeah yeah i got them mixed you know that very much leads to the sort of um easy interpretation of this Mm -hmm. film as like his love letter to the movies um but I think, you know, the Truffaut that sort of comes out in uh, Two English Girls is also sort of borne out here yeah. a bit more, too, and sort of acknowledging darker elements of right. uh, of these various personalities. What could just be like a fun sort of almost, you know, like a, a comedy of sorts through this uh, becomes, you know, quite a bit more like tragic with the death of the leading actor yes. and the acknowledgement of like his like secret homosexuality, mm-hmm. um, all that sort of thing pops up. And then just like the kind of grim acknowledgement of that and then just moving on with the production of the film right, and rewriting right. it very quickly mm-hmm. um making the move the film itself just even like a dumber more trivial <laughs> final product is i think it, yeah i think it's a bit more and you know um Ferran's aspirations versus what he's actually producing mm-hmm. are you know it's there's a lot more going on there than just yeah. uh, just an ode to film and i think yeah it, you know spielberg i think can say that he watches it before he makes a film but i think the reasons that he's watching it are very different than what you know comes through when he says that right yeah and i i think that what's really important is that none of the characters are just the butt of a joke yeah that, that he lends a certain perspective on them how say a intern working on it can suddenly <laughs> become a very important part yeah absolutely. Of the, that influences the actual production because of because personal of the, entanglements right and i like how much the film delves into like it sometimes asserts different modes at certain yeah. times like the beginning is films it, it's part of a television production or like or a television coverage of the oh of the yeah, production yeah, yeah. Where yeah the where leo and ferrand and Truffaut and other people give interviews yeah very very brief interviews about how they make films and and how that's all incorporated into the tapestry of the film and there's also for whatever reason the shamelessness of the cinephilia almost makes it makes it more palatable to me like when literally little Truffaut yes yeah Yeah. Truffaut stealing a citizen cane lobby card yeah which yeah I mean he's upgraded from the 400 blows that like where Duanel steals a lobby card and right but it's not of a particular film but this time it's citizen kane it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, sort of loftiness yes and the scene where ferran receives a package of books that he puts yeah. down one after another the like brisson, brisson. I got, I think billy water maybe godard as yeah. well yeah, yeah. I, just, I can't quite remember the actual yeah ones, but the sort of highfalutin i think boom well for sure oh yes yeah definitely. but the sort of highfalutin aspirations <laughs> that he strives towards yes. but never quite achieves right. um yeah i mean 
it would be very very easy um for Truffaut to have just made a film about like his own mm-hmm. making of films and right. you know but instead he sort of chooses like a studio product that I mean maybe he had made with some of his other like the Bride Wore Black or some other sort of lesser known films of his but he sort of acknowledges something that's maybe <laughs> I mean slightly like beneath him but he never he never like judge and the fact yeah. that he casts himself definitely adds to that too mm-hmm. I mean he's not judging he's putting himself in that position too right i mean of course it's dedicated to lillian dorothy gish oh yeah <laughs> which is handwritten on a on a film still from one of their films and that's right. right at the beginning and i think in that sense maybe it's not only the the birth of film or the mm. real beginnings of film as a business as an enterprise mm-hmm. but also it's sort of heralding like a genuine acknowledgement of the craft involved in these films yeah. and in all films great not great yeah terrible good. terrible good yeah from from meet pamela to citizen <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah i mean I, yeah i think it's much more than just a love letter right to the movies it's yeah. very long it's a real letter yes and there's just an individual moments i really love like there's the when Ferrand has to give Alfonso a sort of pep talk after he's <laughs> incredibly distraught and, <laughs> and moody after being dumped by by his lover at the time. Right. And he talks about films being almost like trains in the night. Yeah. Like, which I think like, is just such a lovely term. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very, yeah. yeah and, sort of acknowledging yeah. that these are fleeting things for mm-hmm. everyone. The production, right. the viewing, the memories of them. Yeah. yeah. And the prop man's wife is sort of outraged about all this <laughs> bed hopping and all the all the strife that's causing and one of the one of the actresses one of the main actresses who's a, a little bit older she talks about film as this or this is i think a recurring thread throughout but how film they feel like they need to give more to yeah. each other they need to like it can't just be like a simple sort of affection it has to be like kissing or something yeah. like that which i mean you could see as sort of a sort of a self-defense but it comes just as much as a genuine acknowledgement of this love that they have for each other yeah in some ways this film is a catalog of things all related to film but i think they're weaved together pretty well and the anxieties front has he's he's dreaming of this light this cinema or production troubles or this pair of actresses I think we're German. Yeah. Say, oh, why aren't you making a political film? Or why aren't right. you making an erotic film? Right. And, yeah. The sort of conversations at right. the time kind of crop up mm-hmm. in this way. Yeah. And how it shows certain tricks. Like there's to show a hotel to purportedly show that the two young people oh, are yeah. staying in a hotel opposite from the house. They build a they, they build, window, yeah. just, just a single window just <laughs> at five stories up. Yeah. <laughs> so that they put can put the camera yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, and in general, it's just very attentive. It's very much in the rhythm of how the f- how film production operates. Yeah, so, and all the sort of when you put a camera to that, you right. see just how like insane it is <laughs> right. that people yeah. are doing this. And the intricate nature of how sometimes the camera is the POV of the actual camera. Sometimes yeah. it's filming the production in a way that functions as a balance to the actual camera. Right. I think it's pretty skillful in that regard oh yeah yeah it's a very layered film yeah it's not quite the other side of the wind but it's it's somewhat in the same ballpark (laughs) the next film is one that neither of us were able to track down it is gianni amico's ritorno he directed a previous film yes he directed tropici i believe oh Uh, yeah which which was a film i think set in brazil Yes, it was also in the film. Right, right. And also notes for film on jazz. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, yeah. The truly unavailable. Yes. 
I, I think there was a clip up, but I, I don't know about Leota is actually in Tropics. I oh, didn't know at the time, but oh. that's yet another one for his for his collection. The description is. Andrea receives a telegram that his father is dying. He and his wife drive through the night to get to the bedside, only to discover something more sinister when they arrive. The discovery provokes them into a journey into their past, a confrontation of the children they used to be with the adults they have become, and the result is disturbing. Beautifully conceived, the film carries beneath its apparent simplicity a moving sense of what time can do to friendship, to values, and to love. Laura Betty contributes one of her great cameo performances. Oh yeah, just one of one of those very well known <laughs> cameos. <laughs> Apologies if if Laura Betty is is more well known than than well, we know. Than we know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The only one from this festival that we we're unable to see. Uh, I wonder if we will someday be able to see a Gianni Amico film. Uh, yeah, maybe the restoration will come around yeah. at some point. He has one more chance in 1978. <laughs> we'll see if. It pans out then. The next film is The Illumination by Christophe Zanussi, his third film in the festival and his fourth film, I believe, overall, that could be mistaken. And it centers around a young man named Franek uh, over about 10 years in his life. And it's sort of in a more, in a hybrid sort of vein because it intersperses narrative with these interviews, discussions, it's been a while since I've seen this, so I can't. Did you see this? I didn't get around. Oh, to you didn't this see one, it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but it's kind of strange in how it tracks the the way his life develops. Mm-hmm. It, he begins. He, I think he's a very good student, but he's not exactly sure what he wants to do. So I think he just chooses physics because it's the more the most current sort of science or the one that's most <laughs> rapidly developing. And then there are various discourses on exactly the the nature of of physics and it has a lot of different elements in it I, mm-hmm. I, and i found that sort of mix kind of exciting even though i can't exactly put my finger on or exactly remember what was being discussed in them right. but it's <laughs> has a above all it's kind of, it's pretty fleet in the way it progresses and how it represents that searching for illumination that yeah. and that sense of searching that sense of unfulfillment and i think it's chronological but the way it's edited makes it somewhat muddled in that, oh, in that way. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of how family life felt to me. Sort of. Yeah. But I mean, that, that one is centered in a single right. sort of setting, then whereas this, this one, one is fairly wide ranging. And yeah. And fairly I, searching. I mean, I have the file for it and it seemed like pretty short in general. So I right. thought it would be this first sort of compact first. I had no, I had mm-hmm. no idea what it was going to be going in, but yeah. Oh, I mean, it sounds very interesting. I, I definitely have, I think I've seen another Janussi film um, somewhere along the line, right. mm-hmm. but yeah, I I want to like him quite a bit more. <laughs> I just I don't know. I mean, hopefully this film gets there for me, but hopefully there are other opportunities. Yeah, as well. I mean, I, I I think I so this is reading even more directly from my notes than usual, but it's sort of a less satirical, more examinative and ruminative version of like a Machiavelli film. Oh, okay. And so I'm mean, that's a as coherent uh, description as i can think of and it searches for that sort of concreteness that sort of sense of understanding reality but that's also intertwined with say he has some some explorations of religion for example Mm -hmm. and that scene is intertwined with a scientific explanation of the brain oh and so it it's operating in that sort of register a lot of the time yeah well i can't say that it necessarily fully came together all those different strands for me i think it was interesting and it has some dream sequences that actually 
reminded me of a like a better version of Andrzej Sulawski. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> in that sort of surreality, that extremely yeah. wide angle sort of photography. Yeah, right. And it has just and its strangeness is the kind that comes out of the fabric that mm. that feels endemic to just the way the film operates. And there's a lot of different influences that I thought of like the opening examinations almost exactly like the opening of identification marks none that sort of oh, thing. okay yeah, yeah 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 and it has that same lecturing sort of format like it actually yeah. lectures in the very beginning as a Machiavelli film for example right and but it like you said there's actually a sense of compression to the individual scenes it's just oh, there's okay. quite a lot some of them oh, okay. are just like yeah. a single shot right. or maybe even a single short shot Oh, okay, hmm. and it moves on. So that's interesting. It's yeah, a, it's, I mean, a more, it's a more flighty film. Than, yeah, say a family life. I'll definitely, yeah, I'll definitely catch it's up with this yeah. one. Uh, yeah. It just was couldn't quite make it right. under the wire, um, but definitely interested in the Polish uh, school, so yes. to speak. Um, the next film is a western, also like one of the only sort of American studio-ish films here. I believe so. In this lineup, at least. Yeah. Um, it's directed by James Frawley, best known for the Muppet movie. All, another rest in peace. He oh, died I this, didn't know that. this week, I believe. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, best known for the Muppet movie and various episodes of the, of the Monkees, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot of TV, yeah. too. Um, this is, yeah, I don't quite know where it fits in his career but um this is his i don't think it's his debut but it's it's an early film uh, oh uh no it's not his debut but it's pretty early yes yeah um and yeah this is kid blue uh starring dennis hopper as the titular kid blue sort of like a train <laughs> robber yes I guess. yeah um and warren oates as his uh, good friend uh, dennis hopper sort of leaves his robbing he puts his robbing days behind yes, him goes into him. this town uh and i can't remember what state it's in or what territory oh, it it's would, the town dimebox texas texas okay so a texas town and he kind of like lives in this boarding house and he's like always eating supper with everyone <laughs> like communally it has a sort of like there were scenes like that in buster's yeah at the beginning too. of the Gahugat rattle yeah so. exactly so like though that sort of feel is present although it isn't quite as um finely tuned as uh the cohen's made it of course um but he and uh the warren oates's character um sort of uh you know kind of create this bond to each other but then uh, warren oates's wife uh yes sort of starts coming on to dennis Mm -hmm. hopper and then there's like a sort of pregnancy scare at some point in the film uh and eventually his past as kid blue is sort of born out um the the town sheriff. Yes. I can't remember who plays him. Ben Johnson. Ben mean Johnson. John. Yeah, Mean John. <laughs> mean John. Always, always gives mean him the John stink Simpson. guy. Um, <laughs> mean John Simpson. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Sheriff Mean John Simpson. Uh, yeah, always kind of giving him a side eye, saying, I think I know something about you. Um, and, you know, the film, I, I think it's a fun time. It's way better than um, Bad Company, yes, I agree. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but you know it kind of kind of meanders a bit yeah. no there's never any resolution and hopper is a very interesting choice for this but i think it does, there's a lot of good character work that's yeah more than anything that's probably the best yeah that's the best yeah. thing about more, it more notes sure. has a lot of <laughs> it, he's very very warm <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's strange their sort of relationship because it's all it's homoerotic at some points like there's Almost, a yeah. there's a prominent scene where they share a bat together yeah yeah <laughs> 
and like he and he repeatedly makes references to how the Greeks would do it. Yeah, <laughs> he has yeah, he's always obsession with. Yeah, it. he has. He there's this very strange scene where he says that like, well, the Greeks would just say that they loved their friends <laughs> and they they would say I love you to each other and it wouldn't be a thing, you yeah. know. And it's it's this that never really acknowledged and never really goes anywhere right. otherwise. But it's a very yeah strange sort of like weird intellectual understanding that like people of this time period right. sort of had based on what their reading material yeah. was basically yeah i mean i cannot even like remember like the plot yeah. of this movie it's I kind mean, of it's, plotless it's sort of and yeah. i it's trying to be a, a comic western but i think at yeah. times it's a little bit too the emotions or the actual tone doesn't quite land yeah so it's, it's sort of in a vague in between though there are mm-hmm. certainly quite funny parts yeah it's and, sort of confused yeah. and um, yeah there's too many I think there's just too many characters that they want to focus on that some yeah. feel short-shrifted. Like there are these Native Americans that I don't think are handled pretty no, well. This this not, trio not very well at all. Yeah, like one of them, he says he wants to be baptized because the pre oh yeah the, the, yeah yeah preachers, they're like English speaking yeah has mm. promised that they'll get their land back if, the, if they get yeah. baptized or something like that and doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. never yeah. like deals with those implications whatsoever. Right. I mean, I don't think that was, there was any expectation to at the time, so yeah. they just didn't. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very weird like we get these sort of weird westerns that sort of trickle yes. down <laughs> from like like the sets are like still there and the landscapes are still there. So like I think the, and the films are being made, but these are the ones that aren't you know they're not like um they're not like McCabe and Mrs. Miller or like the real like interrogations of the Western genre. They're not revisionist necessarily. No. They're just kind of weird Westerns that are being made at the time and starring people like Hopper and Oates, but that doesn't necessarily make them, you know, like, yeah, interrogations of the genre in any sense. And there's also Peter Boyle as preacher Bob, preacher Bob. this sort of hippie preacher who's yeah. hard at work building and what he calls an aerocycle. Yeah. Sort of a prototype <laughs> airplane. I mean, there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of anachronisms in here. Like there's yeah. a assembly line factory that's very right. prominent. There's in this, the, yeah, this weird sort of like, yeah, because Hopper's always working these odd jobs right. and he kind of hops around to one from one from one to the other and he works in the factory at one point or Oates works in the factory. They both do. Yeah. And he, he's throwing coal, I think, into the yeah, phone. Yeah, at one that's point. right. And yeah. the factory, for whatever reason, is making both U.S. and Confederate flags. So that's right. a further sort of confusion of yeah. the and that's in Texas remember so it's right. sort of a confusion of what exactly the film is when it's set right which could be productive but I don't think it's necessarily borne out by the actual procession of the film no I don't think so I mean I think it's a it's a fun time but yeah. it's certainly like a confused confused just even what, in what it wants to be or what it is right but you know of yeah. course Anytime with war notes, it's yes. a great time. Yeah, and Dennis Hopper is interesting because he's more relaxed in this film. He's more quiet yeah. than a lot of his other roles, but in a genuinely interested way. I think yeah. that a different vibe from, say, his Easy Rider, for example. Like yeah. it, He's not sullen at all. He's genuinely wants to be better, I guess right. you could say. And M.M. Yeah. Uh, at Walsh yeah. is in it. He so. plays a, a, a barber. So following... Yeah. His, yeah. His, first, his first boss. Right. So following, um, you know, Roger Ebert's M.M. Uh, at Walsh <laughs> slash Harry Dean Stanton <laughs> role, this film isn't all bad. Oh, I mean, it's a, it's a good time. Yeah, it, yeah it, absolutely. Yeah. Good, good, worth it for the Hopper-Oates relationship. Yeah. yeah. The next film is a, another one by our faves, History Lessons by Jean-Marie Strobe and Daniel Huey. 
And this is, uh, I guess, an, another film set in Italy. Though this yeah. one's in German. Right. And it's an adaptation of a Bertolt Brecht novel fragment, The Business Affairs of Mr. Julius Caesar. Right. <laughs> and it's even more... I think this one... Very fragmented. Yeah, very yeah. fragmented. I think this one is clo- the closest we've come yet to the popular perception of Strapoy oh, as... Sure. as utterly inaccessible mm-hmm. that being said i still loved it i, I really loved it you weren't i wasn't it. too high no. no i mean um i it yeah i mean it was hard for me to penetrate basically is right. um you know once you do get into the discussions um which sort of detail like the formations of power especially in like the sort of roman era um and how because the main character is sort of this modern yes. person wandering through and talking to right. these, um, you know, Roman. Uh, it's sort of like Othon, but, you know, like with a, a modern traveler yes. through um, yeah. there. And so once you do get into those discussions, I think you can get more wrapped up in the film. But uh, then the interstitial scenes are, I mean, literally him behind the wheel of his yes. car for five minutes. Yes. So. Yeah, I, and, I counted it up and... There are three driving shots. Right. The first one is around eight and a half minutes, and right. the second and third are ten minutes. So that's a, th- a third of it's the It's a third film. of the film, yeah. and so that that weighs down a bit for me. I mean, not that, I mean, not that watching people drive can't be interesting, yes. but, you know, yeah, your mileage varies, I think. And right. so, you know, mine, mine waned a little bit with this, but... Um, but I did find like the discussions to be interesting, if right. a little sort of hard to follow yes. quite what they were saying. It wasn't quite Oton for mm-hmm. me, you know. Yeah, Th- this wasn't a. I watched this one through a file, so I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure if this is the exact manner of the subtitles because right. most, pretty much all the subtitles were there. So I'm not exactly yeah. sure if this is the <laughs> the straw the straw approved version. Right. But nevertheless, it basically so aside after these driving scenes, there's there are these four interview subjects right the most of the time is given over to this banker but then there's also a farmer a lawyer and a poet and the it seems that i don't as far as i could tell they were mostly minor historical figures but they were also figures that were present at that time or had known and they have their perspective that is very different from the modern perspective and the modern right perception of things and it's so i think what the film is it's about discourse of course but it's also Mm -hmm. about how perception influences political matters yeah and how knowledge of the past of course is crucial to how we operate in the present time yeah i think like the merging of the past and present is sort of similar to like transit in a way that like it influences it but it's also the present is still sort of dealing with the ramifications of it it's the same space you know like the earth is like the same space where it all happened and so i think that's maybe what the driving scenes sort of hone in on is like we still move through the places where these events happened um i think i might like this more if i looked at it again right but um it, it it was a very disorienting viewing experience to say the least yeah it is disorienting but i think for me at least it seems like all of it including the including the interview scenes take place Mm. in the present and it's Uh, more that the and it's not the traveler that's traveling through history though i think the driving scenes are meant to evoke that sense of it's almost like 
this act of driving is like its own sort of time machine yeah. or its own sort of transportation through history. And uh, also another main point that I don't think was necessarily I was supposed to take away from it, but that became readily apparent to me over the course of the driving scenes is that 1972 Rome was one of the worst places to drive in oh, history. God. Yeah, it sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not even stop and go traffic. It's just no. you you drive for a bit, then some people just walk in front of your car, yeah. <laughs> then you drive it more. <laughs> and so you get a really clear sense of that because these are all, of course, unbroken takes. So yeah. you get a sense of just that. How terrible yeah. it is. Yeah. 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 And how, I think maybe even how like a city like Rome just isn't meant for the modern yes, world. Yes, that's true. And, yeah. and you yeah, see all of sort these. sort of fissure between the two. Yeah, you see all these more ancient looking buildings mm-hmm. mixed in with cars, mixed in yeah. with with various modes of commerce and just people in yeah. general. So and it's sort of like the background of Otan and we're right. just sort of thrown into it. Yes, that's, that's similar. That's definitely true. Yeah. And I think for me, it, the central message is that if there is a central message is yeah. that economics and trade are sort of the primary motivating factors behind history yeah. and how, and just seizures of power and sort of thing. Yeah. And the, there's also a similar thing to that's with Otan mm-hmm. where there's the, where each figure has a different way of speaking and that yeah. thus sort of throws and the fact that they're speaking in modern times, but from an ancient <laughs> perspective throws a sort of doubts th- or shines light on their act on whether they can be trustworthy or not because yeah. of their, of their statuses of some, because they're obviously from different statuses and different backgrounds. Right. And the, and they're also shot differently, of course. Right. So some of them are more cut up. Some of them, the bankers, the, the lawyers filmed entirely in low angles. The, the poet speaks in one shot. And mm-hmm. the most important scene for me, I mm-hmm. think, is the the one handheld tracking shot, and it's the one time that the modern man speaks at length is right. when he describes this anecdote about of Caesar being beset by Asian pirates mm-hmm. and how he had established his reputation by sort of joking with them, becoming mm-hmm. almost not a captive at all and then crucifying them afterwards mm-hmm. right. so to show his will. Right. Where, and then the banker corrects him and talks about how it was actually sort of this misunderstanding or something <laughs> like that. And so and he crucified them to cover it up. Right. And so, right. so that sense of perception, that sense of how myths and legends have percolated and become history and how Mm -hmm. it's essential to go back and and figure out the actual history so that you can take the yeah take them at face value yeah yeah yeah. it's definitely there and there's very long discussions of um like slave labor yes and so that like also sort of like this deep acknowledgement of um sort of like yeah as you say like trade and economics are a driving force of history but i think there's also this idea that like efficiency and Mm -hmm. like speed and creating the most for a certain class of people while subjugating another class. Like that's a very strong acknowledgement of this film as well. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a straub, so it definitely yes. works through a lot of these yeah. ideas. Um, and you know, there's, we got another one yeah. too. And which literally begins with, picks the, up where yeah, it leaves off. I didn't close, realize yeah, that. With the closing shot of history lessons is of this face or uh, on a, mm-hmm. on a fountain. Yeah. And that's the exact shot of that <laughs> that opens introduction to Arnold Schoenberg's accompaniment to a cinematographic scene. And this is a 15, 15 some minute short mm-hmm. made both in Italy and West Germany. I'm right. putting a little bit more on the West Germany in color and in black and white. Right. And Straub and Hue actually appear as the, seemingly as themselves in right. the 
color sections and there's a there's extensive reading from Schoenberg's own writing and also a brief moment from Bertolt Brecht's a speech given by Bertolt Brecht. Brecht is played by the experimental documentarian Peter Nestler who who made quite a number of documentary shorts oh. and other things. Uh, the two I've seen are by the Dijkstlice and Essays, which are both oh. pretty interesting. And Schoenberg is played by Gunter Peter Strachik, a filmmaker and historian knowledgeable about film emigration from Nazi Germany. Interesting. Yeah, and so generally this film functions in the beginning. Straub talks about how Schoenberg's films were... Um, or his, his pieces. Or his pieces yeah. were choreographed and sort of um the sort of context around them and then right. it goes sort of directly into Schoenberg the reading of Schoenberg's um sort of discussion of his own sort of subjugation as a Jew in Nazi Germany and and Straub beforehand sort of gives the background of Schoenberg's life how he died in exile in LA um nice. after you know his accomplishments and his achievements in Germany he, he had to flee mm-hmm. um, of course and so then the film sort of goes to this black and white uh, reading in like a studio setting right. um, of, yeah, like the this letter that he wrote. Or, right. Right. Yeah, um, letters to painter Wasley Kandinsky written in 1923, so a little bit before he yeah, left. Even, yes. Yeah, yeah, and even before like the sort of like the true rise of Nazism, right. as we might see. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, uh, a very sort of, it's a film very much like about perceptions too and like um, perceptions of groups and um, how that, how like those, uh, how that actually like bears itself out in persecution right. and um, and then how, and the music sort of ramps up as right. like these letters are sort of read, while they're still read in a very sort of Straubian style of, you know, not, necess- not too much inflection, uh, let's say, and so the music kind of the letters are providing the context for the music to really like create this very emotional um, sense and like the, the emotions that uh, Schoenberg is describing. Right. And I'm pretty sure it's actually the entirety of accompaniment to a cinematographic scene. Yes. And it's the difference for this one is that there's very little actual direction or choreography given to the presentation of it right and the only things they wrote are a threatening danger fear catastrophe (laughs) so and i think i think the film kind of gets that yeah implicitly it's trying to create that right by putting it under the second half or so of schoenberg or the of the reading of the schoenberg letters and brecht functions as sort of a counterpoint she has this very short sort of intervention where mm-hmm. she's holding a cat <laughs> and she's talking about but when you're you, when you're critiquing fascism you also mm-hmm. have to critique capitalism yeah and right the, and, and how, then that yeah. i think that's the brecht letter that yes that's exactly starts yeah. that yeah. yeah and sort of talking about that actually practicing this truth yeah yeah and, and it, yeah i think it balance in strapier films is like the text versus like the film right so (laughs) this one maybe leans over to the text a bit more so but even so like it it, it's function as a film and as this sort of short work is really just like a fantastic uh, summation of all this yeah i just yeah i find it quite striking maybe not as striking as a full-length strapway film but there's still that sense of bite that sense of Mm -hmm. conviction that appears and there's a some brief archival use of footage of constructing and dropping bombs and yeah and not it's not clear what war could 
even be Vietnam. Right. And yeah. yeah and, and then the, the Auschwitz clipping. Right. Also. And the accompaniment with the music. Yes. Is, yeah. Right. Very drives the point home in a way that, yeah, their films don't usually do because they're, they don't usually have that music. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the next film is Rajam Padovani, uh, directed by Denis Arcan, uh, the Quebecois film. Yes. Uh, sort of detailing a sort of corrupt political scheme, a construction contractor. It's sort of a night from hell movie yeah. almost. <laughs> it's like di- displaying this dinner party and the sort of various um, complications that arise uh, in the sort of the ways that the corruption is corrupted <laughs> in a lot of ways. I don't think that this is a great film necessarily no, at all. No, it's uh, it's totally fine. I don't really remember i don't really remember much of the formulations of it except that like people you know like not even henchmen but like sort of um assistance assistance yeah accomplices were told to do things and they sort of bumble (laughs) bumble to do them and things come up but i don't i never really got a sense of what was being corrupted right people talk about this bridge that yes. i guess is being built but you never see that it's just it's at the end yeah, yeah it's just in the halls of power though so that right. kind of limits it but I, yeah yeah i mean it's, i don't have too much to yeah, say about decent. this one i mean it's sort of trafficking and sort of in the beginning it almost feels like it's trying to go for a rules of the game sort of interplay yeah between yeah that's the, what you think yeah between originally the, yeah, the bourgeois and the servants right and so 30 minutes before the narrative kicked in kicks in and the right. sort of narrative is centered around the right. autonomous regent of Padovani, who is the estranged i think divorced wife of this right. of this contractor who has his Fonsant yeah Padovani. he has the children right or yes something like that. so she yeah. wants custody something yeah like that. and it tries to interweave four at least four different stories of, yeah of Ansan, of rajan of the mayor right of, of this minister's assist, assistant and there's some involvement of like they, there's a subplot where there are these protesters that want are planning to protest at the unveiling right. of this highway or whatever it is yeah the, the next day and there's a very brutal raid <laughs> which i think even goes to throwing people out of windows yeah on the, yeah like on unnecessarily the yeah. yeah and I mean, it's, I sort of see what Arkan is trying to go for in showing corruption, showing the various facets of corruption, but it does yeah. not really come across. It doesn't, yeah. I mean, the um, it doesn't have, yeah, the humor or... I mean, it does, it's not a satire. It's not really like an expose either. It's just right. this kind of weird in-between where it is kind of like ridiculous, but yeah. at the same time, like, I, I don't even know. Like, there is corruption, but it's hard. To, <laughs> it's so, like banal it's not sexy corruption it's just like (laughs) certain contractors want to build the roads so they want the government money for it or you know the roads or the bypasses or the highways or whatever you know it's like infrastructure you know people want to build infrastructure so they want to get that sweet government contract but the links that they go to do it are not uh super clean i mean it's not like a i don't know it's not it was never surprising or anything like that yeah yeah and the Generally, the atmosphere, it's sort of, it feels very sterile, which mm. is, I think, sometimes a plus, sometimes a minus. Yeah. And I think Arkan is generally a good director. Yeah, I mean. Like just, he lays out shots very well. Yeah. It's very, very cleanly shot. And but yeah, nice I mean, pans, the, but it, the editing writing, between the yeah, stories kind of loses yeah. balance in a lot of ways. And there's just not really a balance to the actual stories themselves. Yeah, which is, yeah. They're all just kind of 
it's hard to even like tell why they're going the places that they go to yeah 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 it's it's decent enough uh, yeah n- continues to we continue to be not terribly fond of the canadian films on our yeah they're, our they're getting there i guess yes i mean we we <laughs> have we have some we have some great films we have some total stinkers from, yeah to expect from canada uh, yeah we'll, we'll get exactly. there when that comes <laughs> yeah we have one more Akanda later oh. one or two more oh wow yeah oh boy <laughs> <laughs> first film of this next segment is uh, another Joseph Losey uh, sort of returning director but I think as we mentioned before uh, working color again so sort of disorienting and uh, how he changes his uh, style and rhythms but this is his adaptation of the Heinrich Ibsen play A Doll's House uh, starring Jane Fonda as well as Edward Fox and Trevor Howard and with a Legrand score yes uh, may he rest in peace yeah a very intermittent score yeah, it's a pretty quiet film as far as I remember. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, also the great Delphine Seyrig. Yes, also. of course. Uh, one of the truly top tier actresses. Yes. Um, this film yeah, sort of follows Fonda as Nora, the yeah, sort of childish wife to Torvald, a uh, very serious banker um, <laughs> in Norway. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, of course, it's a Norwegian play, but it's all played in English yeah. by these by these actors. Yeah, Torvald uh, played by David Warner. Yeah, um, and so sort of the complications in their marriage as and this sort of uh, the sort of bribery um, as a woman from Nora's past sort of comes back. Oh, man. Or a man? Oh, the man has been—he's been here, but his right. his job is in is being threatened. Oh yes, he's yes, about yes, to be right, right. let go by Torvalds. Right, and he's trying to use this to blackmail her. Right, right, but the yeah. uh, the, the man approached that. Right, yeah, right. It's very much following in the acts of the play, and then mm-hmm. you sort of see that demarcated. And this also premiered on TV, so it yes. has a bit of that feel too of a sort of lower budget. Uh, you know, more of like a sort of Playhouse 90 feel to it right. as well. Um, you know, I didn't, this one didn't make too much of an impression on me. It's, it's, I think my recap can probably <laughs> convey, but, you know, there is some, yeah, sort of fine acting in there. It's interesting to see Fonda in this period doing something so stagey and theatrical and very sort of, you know, it's an Ibsen play, so it's a very, yeah, or very classic almost. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, Losey again, working in color, I don't think is nearly as 
good as black and white because I don't I don't even know. It's maybe just that there isn't maybe as much thought put into the shots um, as I think there might be. But there's also yeah, I mean there is sort of like a TV feel to it or a staged sort of feel to the camera work. Sort doesn't, of doesn't feel it feels a bit more hemmed in than his other films. Yeah, I liked it a lot more than you. I, it was have had you read the play before mm-hmm. or no? no? Yeah, this was my first contact with the material. Yeah, and it definitely does help the film that it is dynamite material yeah for, yeah at least for me the, it's very yeah it's a very strong play i think mm-hmm. yeah the though there were some semi-controversial additions or omissions to and adapt adaptations to the to the play made for for the film by losi yeah. and the casting of fonda was very controversial because this was in the midst of the hanoi jane right uh, right, right right controversy and that was actually the in the announcement of most of the films for the main slate, that was actually the headline that was, was about this film, which I mean, for all of its merits, which are not inconsiderable, at least for me, it's definitely it's not in, one it's of the interesting one to yeah, yeah. Have to be the center. Right. It yeah. Goes to show how much certain factors can, can affect oh, perception. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, this showed on ABC on December 23rd, 1973, a very fitting time considering this film takes place around Christmas, around though, the holidays. Yeah. Though this film, or the original play, it should be noted, it takes place entirely in one room, and right. over the course of a single day, I believe. But and for this one, Losi added a prologue, which is actually one of the okay, things that's that what I was talking about. I think <laughs> what, the the woman in that prologue. The, oh yes, oh yeah, that, that that's yeah. that's Sirig. Oh that's Sirig, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the prologue sort of jumps. Almost actually, the one that reminded me of was Sunset Song in sort of the uh, way okay. it jumps from... I haven't seen that film. Yeah, the <laughs> Davies film where... Right. So it jumps from this where Nora's about to leave her sort of hometown for mm-hmm. the city and then it jumps to her and she's about to get married So and then jumps to her getting married and having a baby and then right. it jumps again to her like now having two babies and they're about to go away because of Torvald's health. Right. And so it has that sort of quality that immediately suggests a lot about the relationship that I think provides Mm -hmm. a good context for how the film develops. Yeah. And the general arc, you should say just, (laughs) it's about, and what made the original play so groundbreaking, so controversial is that it focuses very much on a woman coming to terms with herself and Mm -hmm. coming to learn that, what's best for her is not to stay in the family unit, but instead to leave. Yeah, and that's right. that closing the door on her past. <laughs> yeah. It w- was so groundbreaking then. And it mm-hmm. dovetails of course with Fonda's own, own feminist, right. staunchly feminist ideals, right. things like that. Especially at this period. Yes, yeah. of course. And in general, I think it's just a very, very well acted and Fonda has, she has that range and she plays the shifts that require that are required. And, showing the very much the childishness and but and then also the slow realization throughout the of the film right and like there's some moments like when she the when she has to perform this dance that she learned in spain i believe oh yeah yeah uh, where she in the first iteration of that she's performing to distract her husband while her friend i believe is trying to get things sorted out with the with krogstad yeah so she's obviously playing it up very much there. Right. But then there are other moments where she's seemingly not playing it up, but it's 
very much in character where she's interacting with her children. Right. And there's a very playful sense, of course. And the film and I think Losi are able to adapt enough where Mm -hmm. those come off as even if in normal everyday life they would be jarring or startling. Right feel completely natural here yeah yeah they're they're yeah it does all feel sort of of the same piece and there aren't like sort of scenes that feel like any um set pieces or central um central moments or anything like that it all sort of feels of a very natural progression which i think even with the additions to the play it all sort of it's all very tasteful at the very least which it might be my just description of the film overall which (laughs) might be why i don't tasteful love it is that's very tasteful right yeah it it is restrained but then it does i think it gives way to these more wild moments the the dance is actually an italian dance the tarantella oh right 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 not spanish but it relies heavily on not just fond of other characters like Sirig, I think maybe right. I notice it more because it's Sirig, but she's right. so supportive. She's su- such a strong force in it, and it, it generally the female parts are maybe better than <laughs> and more convincing than the male parts. But yeah. they're, they're generally well acted all around. And right. I think just the Losi. I think he's more confident here than he was in Assassination of Trotsky. So he allows for more of the tracks that you might yeah. expect. The more careful and he delineates the home very well and yeah he sets off the office that that torvald has and he retreats too frequently mm-hmm. because he works a ton and he's right. very ambitious in that regard because he's just become the bank manager so losi sets off that space very well as right. its own discrete discrete space yeah so, it's sort of changing the temporality right. of it uh, and so in general yeah. i think it's just a it makes things clear in yeah. a way that doesn't feel necessarily like it's holding the audience's hand yeah yeah it, it doesn't um doesn't have that confusion that trotsky the assassination of trotsky right. had yeah it's would, a very clear film for for yeah. better and for worse yeah yeah definitely yeah, yeah. and definitely. if yeah if you're an ibsen fan then yeah. it's worth watching yes. <laughs> also some of the strangest for whatever reason at least where i saw it, the credits rolled just in the middle of the screen or they started from the middle and they like not not from the bottom like every other (laughs) almost every other credits i've seen yeah which is a strange choice and the actors come after the opening scene for every reason right yeah Yeah. it's weird those were weird choices but maybe that's part of the tv thing maybe that's true that's weird yeah i mean i don't even know what the production of it really was i I don't think it was produced as tv or distributed on tv I'm definitely distributed, but I yeah. don't know if it was necessarily produced for TV. Either way, it, it was released in 1978. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh. And it showed a can. Oh, okay. So it probably yeah, was produced out of independently. Yeah. yeah. The next film, world premiere, and the real breakout of oh, yes. one of the definitive modern directors. Oh, yeah. Martin Scorsese. Absolutely. This is his Mean Streets, his second third film third yeah his third film yes Uh, first really of his own yes yeah starring harvey keitel and robert de niro Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i mean it's i mean there's a lot that's already been a lot of ink has already been spilled over this film um and there's probably been a lot of podcasts devoted to it (laughs) specifically to this film as well so um you know it's i mean it's been a few years since i've watched it but it always is yeah, I mean, just surprisingly, like, electrifying yes. in how he, I mean, it feels a lot like uh, like Fellini's Evitaioni, which is oh. probably my favorite Fellini film, which is sort of these young men in this coastal town 
hanging around, doing nothing. Mm. Some of them are involved in crime, although the specifics of it are a little different. You know, they all, uh, some of them have these uh, strange relationships. One is a bit more explosive than the others. One wants to get away. It's a very similar dynamic transplanted to, you know, Little Italy, um, you know, uh, in New York in the 70s and Mm. specifically like with those sort of gangsters that you know Scorsese kind of grew up around observing as he was also watching films it's you know an extremely personal right <laughs> evocation yeah. and just like sometimes some of the most like masterful but not overtly so right. filmmaking you can imagine from such a young director yeah this is a for me the one that reminded me of is another sort of breakout film or not necessarily breakout film but another or very early film, but Wong Kar Wai is As Tears Go By, which oh, also features a sort of dynamic when right. one is more wild, the played by Jackie Chung, and the one is more reserved, played by Andy Lau. Right. And so you have that same sort of involved with gangs. And But yeah, this is a film that it has that sense of feeling, especially in the first half or so, where right. it feels like every single shot, every single moment, it feels like it's codifying mm-hmm. its, its own style, yeah. its own particular style that becomes so popular just how much Scorsese shoots his shot for lack of a better term mm-hmm. just with that opening when well, sans, yeah, sans I mean credits the, uh, the, sans, yeah, sans studio logo voiceover too. Yeah, yeah where Harvey Cotel jolts upright he jolts upright like, Scorsese speaks himself he jolts upright and then looks in the mirror and goes back to bed and then be my baby starts yes. and you see it's, it's like three cuts yeah three, three cuts yeah. of him going down and yeah and you know yeah it's definitely him uh, or it's scorsese kind of it does feel like that sort of film where it's like the turning point in a career i mean i think i've heard like moonlight sort of characterized this way too other sort of films in a director's career where it's like i am never going to make another film if i don't make this one right. so putting every idea that they've had that they've wanted to do into this and then you know i mean usually they're they're quite successful so then we can sort of see afterwards the development of those ideas so you know here like we got like the jumping jack flash shot with de niro's introduction is you know iconic for sure but you kind of see the construction of it too like you can in watching this version of it the sort of rudimentary version (laughs) well you know long before like other Rolling Stones cues in Scorsese films. (laughs) You can see how he's working with the song, like the different elements of the song, which is maybe my favorite part of Scorsese's music moments is how he takes the different cue moments, like the sort of build up to like the chorus of, or the riff of Jumpin' Jack Flash to focus on Keitel and then to bring De Niro in. Like it's always based around those sorts of ideas. And so you're seeing like the very construction of that here. I mean, his other his first film who's that knocking at my door kind of has that but it it doesn't really it's sort of that film's sort of just like getting the getting his grips almost yeah and it has one of the best opening credit sequences i've ever seen yeah just the home movies yeah the home movies and the way it's sort of this circling around a beat up old film projector yeah (laughs) before it jumps into it and the sort of editing of the clips is in time to the to the drum the drum fill before the right. the chorus of be my be baby my baby yeah, yeah exactly and, like there's such a sense of home of familiarity mm-hmm. to it that's really endemic to what characterizes the film afterwards and yeah the introduction to the and right after that the introduction to for the the 
I guess four main characters, but even though it's, right. it's really centered on the two, Johnny Boy on, and yeah. uh, and Charlie, Charlie, yeah. yeah, and the especially in the first four, I think that this is definitely a very loud, a very messy film, yeah, it's, which is yeah, part of his not, charm and yeah. part of what makes it's pretty it pretty shaggy. Yeah, it's too. very shaggy, especially as it goes along, as it gets further and further into the troubles that right that Charlie and Johnny Boy face, and the and his and Charlie's girlfriend Teresa, right. who's a who's epileptic, right? Which, and Johnny Boy's sister, right? Or I, I think cousin, 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 cousin yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And so you have a lot of different roiling mm-hmm. sort of tensions that maybe get a little bit too overheated at times, right? Though the and the ending itself is great, right? Yeah. And it is also just like a great sort of um, you know, guys hanging out. I mean, yes. guys being dudes. Yeah, movie where like they go rob a couple or they rip off a couple kids <laughs> yes. and then go yeah. to the movies. <laughs> Twenty dollars. Hey, let's go to the movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and it's yeah. I mean, it also it's like a great time capsule of uh, New York at that point, yes. and um, it's definitely like a sort of shaggy. But it's also yeah. I mean, it's a shaggy film that Scorsese wouldn't really make again. Like it's hard to think of a closer hangout movie. Right. That, Scorsese would ever make because the rest of his films are not if not necessarily plot driven they're very structured yes. in a sort of way and that's like part of the brilliance of them but here I mean it I mean I guess like maybe the Wolf of Wall Street kind of has that vibe to it but in a much different setting and you know here it's like on the ground it's right. sort of you know guys who don't have anything better to do <laughs> than just sort of shoot the shit yeah and get into fights and I mean yeah just speaking more on like the music aspect like the pool hall fight is like oh. soundtrack to please mr postman yes. and like it, it, it's one of the best scenes of the right yeah. and it creates this sort of <laughs> what's a mook <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah like that sort of thing uh, and yeah i mean creating like this connection between like extreme violence and uh you know sort of pop energy too yeah and yeah you just have but also the violence is structured by these rituals that right. they go through these and you get both actual rituals. You have, you have Charlie in the church um, right. semi-frequently. You have the ending, which is juxtaposes their almost jungle land esque and <laughs> arrest with like a wedding procession or something like that or a funeral. Oh no. Some, yeah. Or no, just some religious a, it's like a, yeah, it's yeah something, it's something a, like that. But then there's like, yeah yeah there's like some sort of celebration going on at the very yes. end yeah yeah and, and you I don't and remember you, if it's puerto rican day parade or not a uh, parade at the end yeah a parade or yeah. yeah and generally throughout you get a sense of there's also a very strong attachment to this italian heritage you have yeah. italian dialogue you sometimes have italian music playing right opera i believe sometimes yeah on yeah. the on the jukebox right <laughs> yeah and you have to, i was surprised by the sort of oniric quality to a lot of it, especially the red barn perhaps it's the most right. evident in the jumping jack flash scene right where the camera just slowly drifts towards robert de niro but right. you still have a sense of that vague casual surreality that yeah. sometimes typifies everyday life right and like Kaitel holding his finger to flames oh, yes. for those sort of very catholic purposes right. of you know punishing himself mm-hmm. and doing these terrible things and then just feeling you know like giving over to the guilt of it entirely and performing the catholic rituals um yeah it yeah it's sort of this film of its own ecosystem basically yeah i think maybe now my answer for a bad scene in a great film is the scene with the 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 two gay men like after they leave the 
But then again, yeah. it, it's part of the sort of messiness of the film. So maybe it's yeah. not a single standout, but you have more than anything else. It's very detailed and it's from a very yeah. specific point of view. Not right. necessarily Scorsese's own, but of these of these low-level gangsters, of these yeah. people not necessarily trying to work, aside from Charlie, not necessarily trying to work up the ranks, but just right. to live, yeah. basically. And that sense of living is present in nearly every frame. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is more, yeah, sort of more to the to the ground than the rest right. of Scorsese's yeah. films. And Scorsese himself, he's as much an intervening force as Godard oh, yeah. and Breathless. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's a very similar function, yeah. though he himself wields the gun this time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there, and just the ancillary details, like the tigers that the bar owner. Right, acquires that they're never mentioned again. It's things like that that so strongly characterized in color. Yeah, how the film operates. It's a real fascinating film. And yeah, I, well, I, or maybe it is and it isn't deeply embedded into the consciousness. I think just because of how right. much because of its place in Scorsese's career. And, yeah, but at the same time, I'm not sure if it's I think seen the, quite as much. Yeah. I think the film itself gets sort of lost in right. there. And yeah. And so then you can sort of forget about the weird shambolic qualities <laughs> of it, which are yeah. probably its most enjoyable aspects. Right. Yeah. A very strong choice for world premiere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Richard Rudd really nailed it there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next film is, uh, another Claude Chabrol film. Um, La Rupture or the, breach um in the english title um and it follows um woman helen played by stefano drone and her mentally ill husband um played by jean-claude derot uh yeah i mean like he assaults their child basically and then is uh in a very very strange uh very lurid sort of um outburst and then uh she sort of tries to figure out i'm gonna this, i saw this about a year and a half ago so oh, i'm gonna try okay. to piece oh, together i didn't know how, how long ago it was. what yeah i'm gonna try to piece together what i remember well at first before because we have two ship roles in this festival so i want to get something out of the way but mm-hmm. the they shoot pictures don't they update came out like oh, one of those yes. form to list for me right gathering all the films and i discovered or the it was brought to attention that there are no Chabrol films on the top thousand, which I think is heinous, yeah. <laughs> a crime, <laughs> because this is an absolutely amazing film for me, but I adored this film. What surprises me so much about Chabrol is that is how deeply he holds to genre conventions and yet how strange, how how much he always surprises me as it goes along. So mm-hmm. just the opening alone is <laughs> this utterly insane, yes, out of nowhere outburst yeah. where first Charles grabs and tries to choke Elaine. And then when their son tries to run, uh, tries to go, go uh, like just walks in and tries to sort of mm-hmm. help, uh, help Elaine. Right. He, grabs him and throws him against the cabinet yeah and then and then helen immediately picks up a a frying pan and just beats him over the head until he falls and the and it's just so that immediate kinetic force and coupled with the the opening credits which are which literally after the after the la rupture actual title card comes up it Mm -hmm. 
it splits apart yes. <laughs> the, on, on the, the actual graphic. And so you have, and the film as a whole, it it's largely predicated not on Ellen, but on the Paul Thomas, this right. uh, played by Jean-Pierre Cassel, this sort of family acquaintance and in exchange for for money basically they are right. they hire him to try to look up whether if Helen they they could find any dirt to dig up on Helen so that they can right. gain custody of of the of the child right. in, in the divorce and so he tries all manner of different things and this is in the same category of film as touch of evil and that mm-hmm. it's the kind of film that that you immediately want to take a shower after you've seen it yeah. because it's oh, yeah. that disturbing it's and that sleazy. disgusting. Yeah. yeah. But in a way that I think I find immensely, <laughs> immensely pleasurable. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's the strange thing about Chabrol is that he manages to make these things pleasurable, but not in a way that instant in a way that implicates you. It doesn't mm-hmm. make you just appreciate it for its own sake, but it's, yeah. it's a implicit in the sort of critique of yeah. the, of the people involved. And so, and it rests on this very slippery quality of Jean-Pierre Cassel. And because he, yeah. he moves into the same boarding house that Elaine is staying at, Elaine is staying across the street, I guess, from the hospital because she wants to be near her son while he's mm-hmm. recovering from this skull fracture or right. something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, she moves into this weird boarding house. Yes, yeah, this weird boarding house, which is populated by this very loud actor, another doctor at the hospital who seems to have some sort of amorous intentions, but it's not right. necessarily acted upon. Right. Uh, then these three older women <laughs> who play cards and yeah. Cassell actually joins them at, at some points. Right. And eventually the, the rabbit hole, they, it goes further and further down the rabbit hole until the Cassell uses the landlady's mentally handicapped daughter <laughs> and tries to, and he uses his, girlfriends and who dresses up as Elen to right. basically so they drug her and that's okay yeah, that's they, where the psychedelics yeah. come in well yeah they, they drug her and try to convince her that this other woman who's pretending to be Elen is molesting her right basically yeah. and in order to get get dirt on yeah Ellen. and right. you get this sense throughout of this sort of fate impending even though the scheme doesn't work eventually Cassell slips psychedelics into Elen's orange juice yeah that's right and the film ends in this sort of drug-induced haze as charles goes to the boarding house and an attempt Uh to reconcile with elen and he gets really mad at cassell and cassell stabs him in self-defense right (laughs) so you have this sort of cascading set of dominoes that all fall on one another and it's so disgusting and yet chabrol films it with such moral ambiguity that it becomes utterly entrancing yeah it's uh it's yeah i i see i see all that i mean it's been a while too but um yeah this was not my favorite i mean i think maybe when we watched Le biches i think i mentioned how the side characters the very strange ones right. are too strange for me to really get on the way oh, uh, Le biche Le Biche, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the yeah, and so this is basically like an entire film of that. Yeah, it's the, just, yeah, they, it's weird, but not in a way that I really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, they they are playing up the excessiveness of like the old women, yeah, who at the end uh, become they say, oh, we 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 have to protect her, and so yeah. they, so they wa- so they follow after her while she's wandering <laughs> in a psychedelic induced haze. Yeah, <laughs> so it's. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very lurid sort of film, but I don't know if it quite gets there for me somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and there's a, as always, there's a sort of theremin atonal score. Yeah. There's the, I think it's so key how the husband is immediately bedridden and almost, and mostly off screen afterwards. Right. And because otherwise there would be a very clear villain, but with setting him aside and introducing this very strange character of Cassell (laughs) makes it all the more muddied and purposely so and just the outrageousness (laughs) of it all it's really it's really strange and through it all Adron is at her most poised at her most graceful and she's as always (laughs) really terrific I, I, I'm still kind. Of, I'm still shocked that just two years later, uh, Cassell and Adron were able to play a perfectly credible husband and wife in the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's strange. Like I, I w- looked back at at it afterwards to just watch some scenes with them, and it's mm-hmm. strange to see them after this. Yeah, the, the acrid nature of this film. As yeah, a yeah. <laughs> Somehow the I don't know. Maybe this film didn't enter the consciousness uh, <laughs> of France at the time. Yeah, it's just <laughs> so. Louis was putting that other one together. Yeah, and the beginning is very disjunctive, and the editing is almost yeah. like Brisson, like focusing on actually not Brisson, but just cutting away to just a flash of light on the wall or something mm-hmm. like that while she's being interviewed by these detectives, right. and then it. But then the inexplicable nature gets transferred from the form to the actual narrative. Yeah. Which I think is an interesting Yeah, I remember it being very sensory, but at the same time, yeah, it's just something never clicked with me, unfortunately. I'll I'll, I'll come around on Chabrol, I think. Chabrol is just, for me, he's just so meticulous. He's so surprising, but Mm -hmm. there's always a bedrock of style. There's a lot of great long two shots that really draw out the characters and their the way they speak yeah so next is another french film uh very and how yeah oh yes uh this is jean eustache's the mother and the whore uh three and a half hour uh deep dive into just the worst people on the face <laughs> of the earth uh just horrible selfish um just horny horny un- unbelievably horny cinephilic uh assholes <laughs> who <laughs> offer no redeeming qualities or characteristics and yet somehow it's it's a just kind of astonishing work yes. um for for me that this can definitely vary and i could definitely see myself coming around on other films but mm-hmm. for me it's the first masterpiece of the new york film festival since the sixth edition with uh, with weekends oh wow yeah i'm appropriate enough because both films are about sort of the death of the new wave or of 60s of mm-hmm. 60s thinking but this one's in a very different register oh definitely yes this is sort of the opposite yes this is very languid uh it's it's like the aftermath of it basically yeah it's, i think what not Philip Carell's entire career is done, but much of it has right. been devoted to this. And, yeah. you know, Eustache did it with one film. Yes. But one very long film, yes. too. Yeah, this um, is his second film, I believe. Second feature film. He only made three in right, his lifetime. The right. first one, Santa Claus Has Blue Eyes, I think. Right. And third one, uh, which I've heard of. Uh, oh, yeah. Fantastic. My Little about. Loves. Yes. But this is the film that he's known for and sort of canonical it's you know it's sort listed of, high on, those, on the list but yeah. at the same time it's, it's hard to you can't find a, no yeah. one the rights are very ambiguous right. i remember that being which um, is a crime 
initially. Yeah, it's one of those films that sort of got swept up in the New Yorker films right. uh, distributor. Mm-hmm. And so those rights are very ambiguous now. And a lot of those films are just sort of languishing in these horrible, you know, either through VHS or... Um, or on you know early quality DVDs, so right. in these sort of bad states of um, quality uh, for how they're accessible. But you know, like sound like Larjon and other Bresson films have been taken out of there. Yeah. So hopefully, there's work being done hopefully. on this film, or it's possible to do that. But either way, um, yeah, this stars Jean-Pierre Lyot, who else? Yes. As Alexandre, uh, a young man who does nothing <laughs> in paris unemployed Un- no reason to be employed either <laughs> he has no desire to i mean it's not even yeah the film he is spends his days the, reading in cafes he spends his days saying that he's reading <laughs> in cafes. he does he doesn't at all he says you're distracting me from my reading when he like never reads he only just talks to people he pontificates a lot yeah, um, I, I, I'm thoroughly convinced that no character in the history of cinema has more dialogue than yeah. Jean, than Alexandra in this. Except in the last hour when he finally just shuts up. Well, yeah, the last 20 or so. Yeah, but yeah. Even then, there's three hours of it. Uh, yeah, where he just talks. I mean, it's, he speaks just some of the most, says some of the, I mean, pontificates on some of the most horrible <laughs> things you can imagine. Uh, it's extremely misogynistic. Ideas of how men and women should relate to each other. He lives with, um, I can't remember the... Marie. Marie. Um, Bernadette Lafont. Right. Bo- both icons in, of the of the new wave at right. that point. In just this filthy apartment. Uh, he wears horrible scarves. <laughs> Two scarves, always. Always just the worst fashion, <laughs> I think, imaginable. Um, and, you know, they both kind of have this antagonistic relationship with each other and they always wind up sleeping together. Yes. And it's this sort of very, yeah, sort of codependent um, hatred, <laughs> one of the mutual hatred. Yeah. And he meets Veronica, played by Francoise Lebrun, who sort of disrupts the routine because he, I wouldn't say that he cares for her, but he, he kind of likes having her in his right. ecosystem, yeah. basically. And basically, the film just follows the three of them. And Veronica is a night nurse, or yes. is a nurse and works and lives in the hospital. And, um, you know, she starts spending a lot of her time with Alexandre. And eventually, she meets Marie and they sort of connect a bit more. Right. But most Very of the, antagonistically as well. Yeah. But most, most of the film is just people hurling insults at each other talking about extreme like in extreme detail the sex that they want to have or the sex that they have had uh you know veronica talks about her time as a nurse basically saying that she'd like fuck every every (laughs) patient but a lot of the interns especially yeah and it's hard to tell like how much of that is real and how much of that she's just making up to sort of provoke alexon because he's always talking about you know (laughs) how how women should have sex with him how he should how he wants to have sex with women uh, with just the various women that he meets he's very like big on the fact that like veronica saw him and like attracted him that yes. way and you know like the politics of the petty little dates are, like very um attuned and his cinema cinephilic references are just 
littered throughout. Yeah. Um, but it's more acrid, which is yeah, really important. To, it's just more acrid than French New Wave. Right. It's is. yeah, yeah. The, and the film itself doesn't bear out those. You know, like you don't see influences of. I mean, he talks about Brisson. He talks about. I mean, you kind of can in some of the like scenes but not i mean not real it's really just these close-ups if any director if it reminded me of any director it would probably be rivette but i that's partially just like the willingness to make such a long film about such a like microscopic um subject yeah sort of romero to a certain extent as well but yeah it's more it's it's more straight on yeah Yeah. i mean it's very confrontational about that whereas romero wants to like have he wants to like sort of lightly interrogate like these pontifications that his protagonists give and their justifications for being like kind of horrible. Eustache just makes them fully irredeemably <laughs> just disgusting people <laughs> and gives them no outs basically. Absolutely. I mean, the end of the film is just, uh, you know, at the very end after this long, long uh, monologue yeah. by Veronica and just this endless sort of, this feeling that like they'll never escape this system or this um this setup that you know like eventually it's just Alexandre and Leo just sitting on the floor with like, collapsing collapsed basically yeah. just worn down and that's yeah. yeah I mean the last I mean it felt longer than the last twenty minutes but I mean he does stop talking right. at a certain point yeah. because he just can't say anything anymore <laughs> he's been so like everything kind of goes throwing back at him. Yeah. <laughs> It's a real cascade at the end, yeah. yeah. And the, but just the entire film is not necessarily building, but it's just wallowing in yeah. a way that I find. It, it's it's the only film that I've seen where, on like say a, like a Zama or Mike and Nikki or a right. or a Lamar Fu, where the insanity comes from the actual things that are happening. Yeah, the insanity here just comes from just how frank it is and yeah. how much it's willing to just openly confront the viewer with this particular with these people, with this, their mindsets, yeah. often very, very unapologetic in the way that they talk and the way they act. And at the same time, there is such a, because we just spend so much time with them, but not only that, but also because there's such a brutal clarity to the way that they yeah. talk, it just becomes utterly transcendent for me. Yeah. And, yeah. and just how much is evoked here, how much is discussed, like there's frequent, there's frequent mentions of of May sixty eight and right. the, that color the film throughout. Right, and it, it's yeah, sort of an aftermath. I mean, it could right. even be that like Alexandre and uh, Marie were like linked together, like through May sixty eight. Maybe feels like, yeah, but, like there's that. It's not like a necessarily an explicit suggestion right. of that, but it feels like that. Like this is their lives were, irre, you know, irrevocably right. changed and they don't know what to do with right. that revolutionary potential. Right. And the, we should say that the film begins with this, him unsuccessfully for the last time trying to court Gilbert. Right. Who, um, and, and, and marry her and try unsuccessfully. Right. And she's played by Isabel Weingarten, who's the lead actress in Four Nights of a Dreamer. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And she, disappears for most of the film after the first 30 or so and mm-hmm. she but she's frequently mentioned and it yeah. seems like she's a particular hanging out point for alexandra and she reappears in the last 30 minutes or so in a right. very brief moment and she's in the supermarket with jean Ustache, yeah. yeah oh acting yes, as yes, the yes. as her as her husband right with his long hair and his yeah. dark sunglasses <laughs> and the entire film it's actually based 
more or less on and because Ustash came from a documentary background and he made a lot of documentary shorts and I mm-hmm. think maybe a few features but I could be mistaken on that and so a lot of I think they say that pretty much everything from or most of the dialogue or at least the spirit of the dialogue mm-hmm. and the conversations and situations actually come from Ustash's actual life oh, God. yeah and the film is dedicated to Catherine Garnier who's his former lover and she's a crew member and Marie is based on her oh, and God. apparently she committed suicide after filming. Oh my yeah. God. And so, and this is Francois Lebrun's first film and she was also a former lover of Ustache. Oh, yeah, and so she's in some sense playing herself. Oh. Yeah. And so this it's, it's, but at the same time, like I can't fault this film for that because it's no. so it's like, and I think it enhances it in a way because yeah. it's so openly nakedly confrontational. Yeah. It, because it's so willing to let these characters speak in a way that it, to speak and thus both condemn them, but mm-hmm. also highlight their traits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there is like, there is a sense of what's appealing about each of these people, right. but because, they become so familiar with each other and they're so open with each other. You immediately see uh, like their failings and their, yeah. And, and then, yeah, like knowing that it's from Eustache's life uh, to also colors it. Yes. And just like makes it <laughs> that much yeah. more. I, I mean, it's such an honest, well, it's all sort of like an open wound almost, yes. but there is, but at the same time, it's not necessarily like an emotional movie. Not, no, all. not necessarily. Yeah. But though I think individual moments like that last monologue of Veronica's mm-hmm. really do get at something. And yeah. that last, so I think her monologue is something like 10 minutes long and yeah. the, it culminates with this five minute close up just on her face, nothing mm-hmm. else. Uh, we, we should this, say this film is shot on 16 millimeter, which adds right. this documentary black and white and in 1.33 to one. Right. And so it's just this face, just this close up as she's, as she's weeping, as she's talking about how there are no whores, uh, right. which even though the mother and the whore, that phrase, the, the Catholic phrase is not mentioned in the film. It's still, mm-hmm reflected it's somewhat evoked, yeah, yeah and the that she's saying there are no horrors in contradiction to the sort of i guess you could say worldview of, of alexandra yeah oh absolutely like it's really impactful in a certain way this film is ne- maybe not necessarily emotional but just mm-hmm. in how much it burrows into something like rosenbaum said that it's the kind of film where it feels like such a time capsule and yet it feels like something we're still living in. Yeah. And he yeah. wrote that in the nineties, I think, and still, <laughs> it I think still it's maybe even more true now. Oh yeah. I mean, if you think yeah. about how, yeah, like just the, it's a political film. And mm-hmm. at the same time, it's much more about the toxicity of relationships of yeah. humanity of just the entire human spirit, <laughs> in a way that's both despairing in it in how it documents it. Very honest, very, truthful yeah almost very faithful and if even though it's faithful to an incredibly fucked up thing yeah. <laughs> it yeah it's through yeah through its sort of dedication to examining these relationships it's right. very political in that sense and yeah it's i mean it's still something that like i don't know you can sort of see like these attitudes and formulations they're still very much present in right. the world and it's not even something that the film posits that we should 
overcome or anything like that. It's just something that people yeah. are. It's a given. Yeah. It's a priority. Yeah. And the fact that Eustache sort of gives um, the space over for Veronica to like have that monologue and for there's also like after they both leave at the very end, uh, Marie just sort of oh, lies on amazing, her bed. Yeah very silently listening to this repeated Dietrich record. No, it's a Edith Piaf. Oh, okay. The, okay. There's uh, another. Yeah. Let, let's a Monte Paris. Right. Let's a Paris. But yeah. Even, even that, like there's the thread, there's two repeated or there's two separate mentions of sort of imitators, perhaps mm-hmm. being more real than the actual. Right, there's, right. the, there's Alexandra's friend. He's a seemingly, he has sort of a fondness or an interest in Nazi Germany, sort of memorabilia right. or, or accoutrements and he says that after Dietrich left the they tried to replace her with Zara Leander and he says that she's more she's right. more interesting she's better like than, all than originals Dietrich. she's better yes. or like all imitators <laughs> yeah. she's better than the original and there's also separate when Alessandra talks about this friend of his who tried to who did Belmondo Jean-Paul Belmondo oh, impression yeah, yeah, yeah. that he became more he real became than more Belmondo. real than Belmondo yeah. yeah I mean and I don't think that's necessarily Eustache trying to say something about his generation about yeah. his the, or the so-called second new wave like right. P.L.A. and uh, right and and Luc Moulet and others but right it's, and Chantal Ackerman but it's not necessarily that but it's more just the general worldview yeah i think so yeah. that yeah well and also that i mean it also maybe justifies that alexandra and his friends and their whole milieu have nothing to offer <laughs> and like all these innovations have been made by people five to ten years older right. than them right even despite the fact that Leod was like a part of the new wave i mean he was mm-hmm. 13 at the time so he wasn't a creator <laughs> of like these films he was i mean he was in some sense yes. but but he was also sort of a participant, you know, he was like a participant in it. He wasn't a driving force necessarily. Right. He kind of came to fruition with it. And there's just such detail, such specificity to what it said, mm-hmm. not necessarily in the day-to-day progression, but it seems to like to be less than say three months or so, just yeah. the total yeah. run of the film and just the repeated return to locations. Like they repeatedly mentioned the, the two cafes, Le Dumagol and, uh, oh, yeah. and Floor. Floor, yeah. <laughs> and just this, that's, appeal or that evocation of a certain intellectualism that the film spends all of its time examining critiquing right so so (laughs) crucial the you you see you see leo in the few times that he does read he's reading or one one of the books he's reading is is la captive the last book of, of bruce in search of lost time right and even though there's an inordinate amount of drinking in this and leo Especially, he drinks swigs, a lot. He, he yeah. takes swigs from a from from wine and whiskey bottles. Yeah. He, he never gets drunk. <laughs> Only Veronica actually gets drunk, right. which is strange. It's yeah. yeah. Well, it's like sort of these um, bits of pleasure that just offer absolutely nothing. Right, right. <laughs> and just sort of keep the stasis um, of it. Yeah, I mean, and it's just interesting after like coming off of. It's an interesting coming off of two English girls to see just how differently yeah. and, and day for night to some extent, just right. how differently they're characterized. And I think this is Leo's best performance, probably, which I think makes it damn near as great as any performances I've ever seen Yeah, because I adore Leo and right. this is, it's entirely within his wheelhouse, but I think he's just given the most room to, to pontificate. I think he's yeah. even before the monologue, I think he has, 90% of the dialogue pretty much I think he still has around 80 or so percent of dialogue throughout the entire film which is yeah 
really crazy. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, he yeah. he yeah. It's sort of like the ultimate layered role because yes. he just fully yeah. inhabits this person that he's kind of been in other roles, and he it's kind of like these behaviors that he's had on screen, and they're just given sort of full reign here. <laughs> I mean, like the sort of obnoxiousness that he has in um, like uh, masculine feminine or some of the other films that he's been on, or uh, even something like Out One. Yeah, too. I mean, well, along with uh, the this and out one mm-hmm. are the I think the two masterpieces of the post sixty eight yeah, examining absolutely. post sixty eight what that means and how that's in the firmament. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we yeah. should say that this won the Grand Prix at at Cannes, but was not selected for the for the Palm, which is was it sort of was it somewhat controversial or I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, I, I think it was a mixed response, but yeah, you could uh, even then there were already people. Uh, praising it a quote from from pauline kale that i think really characterizes the film is that it took it took three months of editing Mm. to make this film seem unedited yeah yeah (laughs) which is very true yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah uh yeah i mean just like a sort of towering work for sure yeah and just the the length yes but it's certainly not an easy sit especially no. with how the characters behave but Definitely sometimes not. it is quite funny and yeah just in general just seeing just letting these mammoth these three mammoth performers all give it their all at every yeah. single scene whether that's in an obvious way or not is can't help but be enormously rewarding oh absolutely and yeah just the clarity of Eustache's writing direction just mm-hmm. how frank and how straight on the, the frames are yeah just putting these characters into isolated frames i think it's just really astonishing i yeah. i can't i think this I, I can't say enough for this film i it really hit me like a ton of bricks yeah yeah and absolutely that, and the ton kept piling yeah, more going. and more tons yeah and even as i think about it and talk about it more it feels like it's still working in my brain yeah. to that extent <laughs> it's really few films like it yeah oh absolutely it's yeah. very yeah it's a truly singular work you just get all the sense of everything that Ustash has been thinking about and mm-hmm. his but and it's not even in that same way as like a mean streets where it feels like he's throwing everything that they have into it it's this is his life this is yeah. exactly the film that he was trying to make and yeah in that it becomes just utterly transportive yeah yeah the next film is claude lundsman's debut film israel why sort of a herald of things to come this is his the film that he made before his monumental showa uh, which is his second film uh, of course there was a long period between that just because of production yeah. and things like that and this is also a, a long film a th- three-hour film operating i haven't seen showa so i can't really speak either. I, I think i've only seen very short fragments and extracts mm-hmm. and even shorter when you consider the scope of the film in yeah. general but it's a film sort of in the i guess almost the closest mode i could think of was like a chris marker visually my sort oh, of okay. mode yeah. where it's just taking on various viewpoints various subjects throughout mm-hmm. israel on the 25th anniversary of its establishment and should note that this was shown at nif the literally the day after the yom kippur war began oh wow <laughs> yeah this was not mentioned in the in the review for whatever reason i could see but it's in the new york times but it i wonder if it had reached that news had reached the u.s by that point and yeah. if that showing was colored by 
Hmm. Either way, it's maybe it's a little bit difficult to suss out exactly what what Lanzmann's viewpoint is at sometimes, but right. it's pretty it's pretty wide ranging in what in who it decides to depict, who it decides to focus on, right. and throughout he keeps adding in more and more viewpoints, and he keeps returning to viewpoints. So mm-hmm. there is so the structure maybe isn't as apparent as in say uh, visually my or right. or even a Marcel Ophuls film, but. And I, I did, I did like this, and I found mm-hmm. definitely some some things to to latch onto. But maybe I think it gets a little burdened in that question of viewpoint and that question yeah. of getting exactly a more crystalline view. Is it mostly just? I mean, I haven't watched it yet because mm-hmm. the length was yeah. prohibitive. But is it mostly just focusing on like is is it acknowledged like the Palestine? Yes, well, it has yeah. a few moments with Palestine's, but I think the right. maybe the more significant opposing force. I could, mm-hmm. guess you could say there's some moment there's extended time given to communists to right. to black panthers even uh, okay. I, I did not know that there was uh, a black panther party in in israel, in israel. oh wow yeah but huh. yeah, and but there's also time given to american tourists to this russian mm. family who at the who towards the end of the film actually moves back to the ussr <laughs> because the because i think the central question that the film revolves around is the question of israel as is it a nation of Jews? And yeah. so how, how does that color what the film, or like the sort of personal identity as juxtaposed with the national identity? Right. And so you get different responses to that. And I'm not sure if Lanzmann can find a single thing to coalesce that around, but yeah. there's still, it still documents the sense of tension, the sense of, of different viewpoints really well. There's extensive time given to intellectuals, which oh, is interesting. interesting, public intellectuals giving their views as well but yeah. I, as far as i could tell all of it was shot in israel or, oh, or interesting immediately surrounding yeah i'll probably get around yeah. to this one too just because i'm interested in how how it depicts the subject at that point in its history and like the and in sort of a heralding things come as well yeah uh, lonsman uh Lonsman, aside from french and english lonsman uses a translator and he uh, lets the and he includes the translations on oh, screen as he communicates through his translator who speaks Russian to the couple, for example. Oh, I see. I think usually a female translator, but I think there was oh. some scenes with uh, with a male translator. But hmm. And so I think those things are fairly significant part of show's length. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, where, where he includes that in the film. But it's, it is very verite, and you, yeah. s- you frequently, very frequently hear Lonsman asking questions, but you also see him semi-frequently on, on, the, um, on screen. And one one of the questions I actually have, which is not exclusive to this film, but is really noticeable, mm-hmm. is that whether these chirons showing the showing the person's name and mm-hmm. the and their occupation that, that was in the subtitles, but actually it wasn't on the actual video itself. So I'm wondering if it was on the actual print or not, if it was oh, included or if that was yeah. included or if that later. Was in the video, yeah. 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 Hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah that's something I don't know. Watch it. And find I've it. seen it a few times, but hmm. yeah. And there's, in general, the film is interested. One of the central scenes, I guess you could say, is mm-hmm. when the Russian man he goes, he requests to see the Western Wall, and he goes with Lonsman, and the, and the camera sort of films them from outside the fence or something like that. Right. And, uh, and as they're walking away, the Russian man says, "The last time I was here was two thousand years ago." And so I think it speaks to that sense of heritage. Yeah. And the that's not necessarily evoked in every single instance and sometimes it gets more 
it definitely gets more on the political side at certain points. Sometimes right. more on the just general, what does it mean to be Jewish in yeah. in Israel? That so hmm. it's maybe a little bit unbalanced and maybe a little bit unwieldy. Not only because of the length, but because of what is the wealth of subjects it's trying to tackle. Yeah, but it's yeah. interesting. It's yeah, and yeah. it's a, an early point in yes. the, in the history. So yeah, and it's still very much dealing with like the legacy of the Holocaust. So I yes. imagine that makes it. In yes, there that, too. that's definitely but, in there. And yeah. yeah, but there's also the. He also gives time to say there's this impressionistly edited market sequence where they, I think the American tourists, they, they say, oh, hey, look, there's these things. It's like the things that we buy back home. Yeah. Or, <laughs> and, and they talk about, I'm coming here because I want to see the things that, that were in the Bible. Yeah. Like that, which, yeah. I mean, I would not be, I would not object to seeing those one yeah. day as well, but it's very different. And th- that right. sense of difference, that sense of gaps being bridged is something that's pretty parents in the, yeah. in the documentary hmm. yeah. i'll have to report back yes but yeah. uh yeah the next film is uh, another herzog documentary this is land of silence and darkness and it um depicts these sort of group of people who are all um deaf and blind and it sort of depicts their ways of communicating with one another basically just how they live and um how they sort of go through uh, the world and it's actually pretty subdued yes. for Herzog. There's very little of his own narration. It's all in German too. So if it were, it wouldn't seem as you know like the sort of classic. Her- it wouldn't seem <laughs> Herzog voicey, you know. Um, and either either way, I mean, I, it's not like a pitying documentary no. at all. It's showing how these people live life and you know feel like have sensation. They have sensations other than just sight and sound. And right. so, how do you? You know, what are the, how do they communicate with one another? How do they relate to one another? How do they move through the world? Um, it's mostly just showing people's ways of experiencing pleasure uh, through their sort of, through these disabilities that they have. But, you know, it's a pleasant time. I wouldn't right. say it's a necessarily transcendent or <laughs> insightful work, but, but I, you know, as far as what I might expect from Herzog on this subject, it's, it's a lot better. Right. Yeah. It's definitely giving consideration. Definitely. It's very, attentive is very, very patient mm-hmm. in showing how they interact with each other's very verite as well yeah and the the narration is provided by wolf Elig. i don't think heard song as far oh as okay tell yeah i mean it's hard yeah. to tell sometimes yeah. sometimes but his voice is distinctive or at least parodied yeah. enough that I think yeah. yeah i was that's like true. i don't think that's his voice but either yeah way. but yeah, yeah it's hard you don't hear him speak in german that much either no that's true yeah yeah but it's it's very it's straight ahead more anything else but it's not necessary it doesn't necessarily feel conventional simply because he doesn't necessarily try to say explain the scientific effects it's very personal it's very focused on each particular person as they interact with each other interact with the outer world mm, some animals too some animals a monkey. yes <laughs> a monkey a monkey who actually pulls the the camera grate or oh or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or gate off off of the <laughs> off of it um, <laughs> off at one point <laughs> Uh, an elephant <laughs> quite <laughs> quite wonderfully oh yes yeah and it a lot of it just fo- focuses of course on faces on how they he puts i'm not exactly sure if it was him that put them in the situations but like he has them go up in an airplane films yeah. their reactions and at the very beginning there's this where the oh the quotes or well, the, not uh, not the quotes but a woman oh yes did, she describes something that she's seen in her mind then mm-hmm. talk films that Oh, that's right. I think yeah. if it, if it was composed entirely of that, then maybe it would this would be great. But yeah, I, I think, think that it's 
confined to that. For the yeah, most part. I feel like there was maybe because you know, like he worked with like these very strong personalities, like Kinski and Bruno right. S. And yeah, I mean Bruno S. Definitely was you know had mental like mm-hmm. issues, and so like I feel like there could have been a way for Herzog to like work with these people to create a film sort of of their perspective right. more so than just showing like here they are like <laughs> doing these things that right. seem normal to us. Um, you know, I feel like there could have it could have bridged that a little better, but you know, for what it is, it's right. yeah, yeah. very, he, very respectful. And he follows largely Finney Straubinger, one of the deafblind people mm-hmm. who who was born, I think, seeing and hearing, but right. but lost, lost her sight, yeah, in, a, yeah. in an injury. And it's interesting how she goes from place to place. Like a, I think there was a nursing home or something like that, and then there was a boys a boys school mm-hmm. um, for for deaf and blind boys, right, and it's just interesting to see how she interacts with them with people that she doesn't know and there's a lot of use of tactile signing on ta- yeah signing on the, yeah yeah, on yeah. signing hand, onto their hand which is yeah which i actually hadn't seen before no i've never seen in the film yeah yeah but in general it's just a very attentive document yeah even though it's less than 90 minutes it still gives a lot of time to just observing how they interact yeah and i found yeah. it somewhat emotional yeah yeah yeah. i mean it's not the helen keller story but you know it's 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 very sober it's very yeah restrained in its emotions which i think makes it all the better yeah it's inspirational in its own way yes without trying to be yeah exactly which is probably the most impressive thing about it SAG Awards started 15, 20 minutes ago. Oh boy! And so that so my locale is lighting up <laughs> with with the with the stars. Yeah, and, you'll have a fun commute home. Oh god! Yeah, <laughs> thankfully. Well, I'm we're on the west west. Is it in Westwood or? Um, no, we're more like West LA. Yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. West it's, LA. It's an generally. ambiguous yes. neighborhood. <laughs> it's not really Westwood. Right. Well, yeah, we're, we're there, so we aren't hearing the. No. Yeah. So, so we have no, we have very little idea of what the, the actual results are right now. But that suits us fine. We are, we have these very interesting films. Start yeah. one, in, the first one in this incredibly strange section is just before nightfall. Another film by Claude Chabrol. This is uh, from 1971. La Rupture was from 1970, and this film stars Adron again as another character named Len and Michel Bouquet as Shaw Masson. And the film opens with this incredibly strange 
sexual encounter in which a family friend, Laura, asks asks Charlotte to to basically strangle her while they're having sex, and that oh leads God. to and that leads and this is a this is I also really loved this film. Mm. It's and it feels different from other Chabrol films in that it's exclu- exclusively about the aftermath of a violence mm. and of a murder rather than this like the recurrence or the possible more violent encounters right. whether they be of the same kind or of a different kind and so it's exclusively about Charles come to terms with the his having murdered maybe accidentally maybe intentionally he's not sure himself mm-hmm. murdering this this family friend and Adrian is actually surprisingly for a lot of it she's not she's though she's present in the film she's not necessarily an active part and it's more about Charla and francois the the husband of of the of the dead woman and who designed their house which is this hideous modern sort of incredibly bougie house (laughs) (laughs) with all these just windows and things everywhere that make no sense and are incredibly tacky, which is entirely by Chabrol's design. <laughs> and it's a very ambiguous film, morally, mm-hmm. and, and as with all Chabrol's, but especially in this case, because it is so much about this one character, about his his slow implosion as he comes under more and more stress and yeah. more and more guilt. Mm-hmm. And he has this, and his guilt is of a almost masochistic nature because, and it's, the film reveals more and more his own perversions, his own just the, the reasons for exactly why he did this, yeah, and and why he's trying to work up the courage to confess. He first confesses to Hélène, and then he confesses to Francois. Uh, Francois, we should say, is played by Francois Perrier, and both of them they seem to shrug it off. They say, "Oh, it was an accident," and that only makes him more feel the urge more to offload his guilt to someone else. In many ways, mm-hmm. this is almost like Chabrol's Rebecca to oh, a certain okay. extent, or it has a very Rebecca-esque moment. Yeah, and the ending, and then the ending is almost Phantom Thread-esque. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds sounds sort of more up my alley than I, I thought think. You had seen it? No, no, no. I didn't watch this one. Oh, okay. Um, so the sort of. I mean, before, like maybe. Oh, yeah. Or... No, no. I've only seen like three or four Chabrols oh, before. Okay, yeah, we started this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit more. I mean, it sounds like insane, but maybe more in the realm of Chabrol that I like, which is sort of like the last ceremony. Right. Um, so it's sort of confined to one space rather than <laughs> kind of making the whole world <laughs> crazy. I think when it's like in a single environment, it right. it, can, it can be up more more up my alley. I can somehow get more in tune with it right yeah and it does focus it is as with other as with laboratory it's it's sort it has that element of a critique of this bourgeois society and right but and it is more but it's more centralized in a single person and it's more centralized in that in that register and it did take me a while to figure out exactly what the film was going for because it operates in a somewhat different manner from other Chabrol films, but it's still very much, but it, and it has elements of genre, but those mm-hmm. are sort of there, sort of not there, which, right. and it's, it's a film that has that sort of in between quality, which I find really interesting. And yeah. there's all these very menacing, very sharp push-ins on, yeah. on, which is, 
heightened more than the usual Shibos style. Yeah. Um, but sometimes he just has these amazing, one of the most incredible shots in the whole film is this long five minute long take mm-hmm. as Charlotte confesses to Francois about his, about his murdering his yeah. wife. It's in this almost silhouette sunset dusk mm-hmm. situation as they're walking down the road to Francois's house. Yeah. And you can barely see their actual faces. You just see by the way they walk, how they're just slowly walking forward as the camera tracks back. Mm-hmm. And Chabrol has this knack for just putting those things, putting those moments of clarity through ossification right. as he as he progresses that I find so strong and so unsettling about his general uh, about the way he operates yeah yeah I, I i feel like yeah this one sounds much more uh, in my wheelhouse right. <laughs> for chabrol and i think it may actually help clarify maybe what i do i mean i do like his like his style and it's it's just some of his films i just don't like that much <laughs> or don't respond to but i think i don't have anything against chabrol for sure right. but i think that this might clarify what it is that i like and what i could see more of uh, or look for the more i see right um, but yeah there's just the perversity is of a more insidious nature of a more yeah of a more creeping sensation yeah than like a not rupture right but and it's it's just funny how charlotte he his job is making advertisements so he makes a detergent ad <laughs> that you see it's very very tacky <laughs> And there's a subplot involving this money that's been stolen by this long-term associate of his and mm-hmm. how his occupation with the, with his, um, with his murder has affects his, like he's, he's very non-committal. He's very, right. And I think it's actually, it's tied together in a, this, with the same woman who shows up in both strands of it, but right. could be mistaken on that. But it's just the, it's just so... <laughs> The, another Christmas Christmas film, but oh, this one the it's one of the most elighted Christmas scenes I've ever seen. And it's just <laughs> these brief moments of children playing with toys. And That's how all Christmas <laughs> should yes. be, in my opinion. <laughs> the next film is another another very long <laughs> selections, yes. which might account for the sort of less amount of films in uh, this lineup. This is Andrei Rublev, the Tarkovsky film, which is a sort of epic, which I watched like an hour of five years ago, and I, I couldn't make the time for it this time. But uh, this is very much like a sort of towering work almost, I would, would you say? or In in the realm of, of Sinophilia, sure. Yeah. yeah. For, for me, it's it didn't quite get there. Uh, I, okay. I do... I do I th- I think on the whole mm-hmm. I love it and as I think of on as a conceptual as on what I was trying to doing as a grand scale macro scale yeah. I do love it and I think if I revisit it I'll, it might go higher for yeah. me but as a experience it is I think by design unsatisfying and strange mm-hmm. and it's a lot because it's, it's a, about the building of like this bell right no that's the well so it takes place in eight episodes oh okay okay uh, from i thought it was sort of one work no Mm. it's a eight episodes plus in prologue and an epilogue Mm -hmm. over a quarter century in the life of this very famous highly regarded russian icon painter in the 14th in the 15th century and it begins with this epilogue of completely unrelated in narrative terms Mm -hmm. of this 
man who constructs a hot air balloon oh, and he okay. flies it right. and, and it seems to be going well but then it crashes and kills him mm-hmm. which is and it and then that's followed by a horse on its back next oh, to a, right. a lake and so that's sort of showing the you know dreams and how they can be crushed very easily by right. the rhythms of life and you and then there are eight different episodes they're demarcated by chapter tiles and and showing when the, the just like the favorite <laughs> Just like the house that Jack built, yeah. oh, or yeah. Suspiria, or oh, yeah. Image Book, or twenty eighteen films, yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. Thinking ahead, Tchaikovsky was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Andre is played by Anatoly Solnitsyn, who was also in a number of other Tarkovsky films. And it's he actually does for for a film so well known for being about an artist and being about religion because he he's a monk. It's actually. A lot less about those than I expected, and it's oh, actually more in the for for me at least for what I perceived. It's more almost in the Miklos Janso sort of historical vein of showing these grand That's movements. Kind of of how I remember it too. Yeah, yeah. If, if you saw an hour, an hour is not a insignificant portion of yeah. it. Yeah, and it's a lot weirder than I expected. Also, because it like there's a the fourth chapter, one of the more delightful ones is this festivities where he gets swept up in this witch's Sabbath oh, <laughs> and he gets lost in the woods as many naked forms cavort in the <laughs> cavort around. <laughs> and, so, and you have the, this raid on this town called Vladimir mm-hmm. or this city fortress, which is incredibly violent and, oh, wow. and it has that sense of large scale devastation mm-hmm. that you would not expect for a film <laughs> of this. And in general, I think that, that's what threw me is that this is much less about Andre Rublev, a central figure, a towering icon mm-hmm. painter, more about how he is involved um, often very tangentially in this upswell in the 15th century. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely want to see the rest. I was hoping to, but you know, life gets in the way right, of, of uh, very long movies. <laughs> and, um, but I definitely want to make time for this one. I've I've had I don't necessarily love Tarkovsky's films, but I do think he's a very interesting director. Um, and so the film I like most of his is Ivan's Childhood, which is the one that just precedes this one because this was originally 1966. So yes. it could be the sort of clicking point of Tarkovsky for me because I'm interested in like the black and white sort of period of Tarkovsky and especially in how he creates this sort of historical sense because that's something I remember pretty well from what I did see of Andre Rublev was that I thought it would be the sort of painterly or yeah this sort of depiction of like the artist the painter's process but instead it's really like this sort of historical sweep and right. so which is surprising for me and yeah I think what's I think something that I realized while I was watching this about Tarkovsky and who I am sometimes kind of mixed on mm. or I'm divided because my favorite by a mile is Stalker. Oh and, yeah. yeah. And it's been too long since I've seen I was childhood when, so I can't really comment on it, but, but Solaris, I was not oh, yeah. extremely impressed, <laughs> right. but even though it has its merits, but I think what Tarkovsky does is he makes sort of very tactile films about the about these almost dream worlds or these imaginary sort of worlds and right that that works for stalker because it is such a strange place and such a place where you can find a lot of tactility for yeah. solaris like 
I don't think that the space station offered much in that regard. Hmm. But you see a lot, a lot of that tactility of, of that mud, of that soil, of that yeah. dirt in Andrei Rublev, and yeah. so it allows him to work well. And the but the episodic nature doesn't necessarily lend itself to that sort of sense of continuity that yeah. this sort of film needs. And some yeah. some parts are executed well than better than others. All right. Like for instance, the actual construction of the bell. I after looking back on it, after having seen where where that goes, mm-hmm. it makes sense. But the the young man who's tasked with constructing the bell because he claims he has this secret is way too demonstrative oh, in the way I he see. orders people and barks mm-hmm. at people and orders people around and there are things like that. And then the, Andre has this female companion, not necessarily mm-hmm. as a wife, but as you know, someone he cares for, right. who's seems to be who's categorized as a holy fool. Oh, and okay, I'm not right. sure if it handles that part too yeah. well. Hmm. Yeah. So it has but looking at it as a whole, looking at how people recur, like for example, the holy fool she comes back in right. the final in in the final unveiling of the bell, it that's done really well and I think connects things and shows the sweep of history and how personal histories collide with with national histories right. in a very cogent and coherent sense. Yeah. And I do think the last reel, which famously bursts into color after the, oh, like oh, where, and it actually shows, it shows the actual icons that oh, painted himself. Yeah. And it focuses first on very close-ups on, on tight close-ups mm-hmm. on various parts before it moves back a little bit. Mm. And uh, they're, I think they're edited together with fades, but it's, that does achieve that sense of transcendence that the film is trying to go for because it yeah. is such a, radical break because it shows the sort of mutability of the images and how certain how they can appear to be one thing right in actuality they're another and that the sort of sense of time passing of how they they are very weathered they are definitely very different they look very different from how they would have been but it's still so magnificent yeah so beautiful yeah in how they're painted so that all of that is conveyed in that final 10 minutes or so. And that is really powerful, but the rest on a moment to moment basis, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it totally held together for me. Yeah. Well, that's a, yeah. I mean, I think that's a good way of looking at Tarkovsky yeah. too, is the sort of very tactile nature of these sort of transcendent right. um, ideas. And, yeah. you know, the, I've only seen two actually. Right. So stalker and Ivan's childhood, and mm-hmm. those are very, very muddy films yes. for yeah. sure. And I do love his actual sense of direction. Yeah. I'm not sure about his vision as a whole, but his direction, just who he chooses to, f- to focus on in this, in his pans and his scope uses quite strong yeah i should say that this is uh so premiered in in 1966 in a 203 minute cut right passion of andre that was the final cut his sort of director's cut was 183 minutes in 1969 that was shown out of competition at Cannes, and this was shown in a two and a half hour version at NIF. Oh, it was cut okay. by Columbia. So truncated yes so which i don't think would have served the film well no but so it probably didn't was received very well like I, I think people they all the reviewers made sure to note that it was cut so yeah th- that account for some of the reservations but right they said that they would it would be uh, distributed by columbia but as far as i could tell it was not distributed until 1992 so uh well. yeah as, as far as i could tell but that was in the yeah. full cut wow. but it's a definitely I'm, I'm not sure if i'm totally on board with it but it, yeah. it is definitely something worth considering and 
odder than its reputation. Yeah. yeah. Well, There's a great passion play segment that transposes the crucifixion to Russia, which mm. it, it's moments like that. It's that sense of making a history mm. very, very rooted in something. Yeah. In um, something different that mm-hmm. characterizes the film, which I think yeah. is one of its strongest aspects. Yeah. So next is uh, another returning director, Sayajit Ray, uh, his film Distant Thunder, uh, about the 1943 World War II era famine in India, sort of a forgotten tragedy, I think. Um, I can't right. remember what region. Of Bengal. India? In Bengal. Okay. So very Something much. like three million yeah. Indians died. Yeah. I mean, just a huge, huge number, but not something that is uh, nearly as well known as sort of other national tragedies. Right. Um, and so it focuses on sort of a country doctor um, and a teacher who goes around and treats people during this time, um, basically just kind of just as the surrounding conditions just get worse and worse um, as it goes through. Um, and it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's one of Ray's best films, no, but I think as far not. as depicting this very sort of sensitively and not necessarily as a grand tragedy, but as something on the ground that, uh, you know, had to be dealt with and is sort of the feeling of helplessness as an individual in this grander scheme. I think it, or in this grander trans, you know, event, uh, I think it, it succeeds on that level. It's not necessarily uh, as strong, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a different mode from him for sure. Yeah. I, and it's, one of his, it's not his first film in color, but it's one no. of his first. Yeah. And it's, this one, The Golden Bear at, at Berlin. Which, oh, yes. Which is interesting. I right. wouldn't have expected it. <laughs> yeah. And it's closer, I guess, to, than his past films in the festival to, like, the Apu trilogy mm-hmm. in its documenting of the countryside, of right. people living in villages. It's very much at this very quotidian pace mm-hmm. and showing the slow unraveling even though it's 90 it's 100 minutes it's still very and it's for some reason it doesn't quite have that same spark of life that characterizes some of like the trilogy for me yeah and but at the same time there are still some quite striking moments and i think Mm -hmm. in general his color i'm not sure if it was the quality of the film quality that Mm -hmm. i that i saw but it looks and it looks almost like two strip technicolor at times. Yeah. It has that same sort of vi- vibrancy in certain hues, like especially pinks yeah. and, and greens. Greens that, for sure. That really are really gorgeous. Yeah. And and I, I, I think that the, generally the use of it for this particular setting, it works. It yeah. draws out sort of the what's being slowly broken down over the course of the film but yeah in general i don't necessarily the first 30 minutes or so are dedicated it's before the famine really really hits where yeah it seems like the doctor is parlaying his status as priest and to get more treatment to get yeah more, more to teach more you know right, things like that right. which is which develops further into him discovering exactly what his own privilege is yeah. because he gets rice even while other people others uh, are are, yeah. are left to starve. Right. And eventually it hits him, you know, right. the price of rice. It's the amount of rupees per, you know, bag of rice or something. It's just so absurd right. that even he can't pay it. And yeah, you know, it's, it's a film definitely, you know, like about a, a privileged person watching, you know, less privileged people suffer until it finally reaches them. Right. But as far as that goes, I think, I think Ray, you know, handles it pretty deftly. Right. Yeah. It's, I don't know why it's. I, I'm not as strong on it as I am on other rays. Yeah. Even though it is in its own right, 
perfectly solid. I think it, yeah, I think it just lacks a certain like anchoring figure. Yeah. Maybe, that, yeah, the like, rhythms might be a little bit off. As yeah. Well. It's, yeah. And even though the main character is played by Ray, regular Sumitra Chatterjee, mm-hmm. for some reason, just the way his character is written is a little bit more stiff. More yeah. Less, it's a little underwritten, yeah. sort of. No, but it's, yeah, decent enough and yeah. has. At, at the very least, gorgeous colors. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting evolution in Ray's career, too. Yeah. And it moves sort of in blips of violence. Yeah. Like, the there's a raid on the on the shop of, of Rice. Right, yeah, And there's right. a assault on on the main character's wife that's, uh, that's kind of odd, but right. it's sort of in the firmament of the film, which is unpredictable at yeah. times, which is strange. <laughs> The next film is Rainer Werner Fassbender's The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kantz from 1972. And this is a, another ex, a, another excoriating film. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's been too long since I've seen it. But. Yeah. It's, it takes place entirely in the apartment of Petra von Kantz, this fashion designer in Bremen. And... Almost the entire thing is set in the bedroom. There are a few moments which are slightly outside, mm-hmm. but it's pretty much just in her bedroom. And it follows exclusively female characters. Right. Some are some male characters are off screen or on the telephone, but you can't right. hear them. So all female cast. And Petra von Kant is played by Margie Karstensen, mm-hmm. who's not necessarily a huge Fassbender regular, but appeared in quite a few of his films. And... At the beginning of the film, she the film takes place in four acts plus an epilogue. Yeah. They're not necessarily delineated on screen, but they are very much in that theatrical tradition. And oh, the, absolutely. The set, the set, the performances, the delivery, even the way they walk and talk is deliberately theatrical yeah. in a sort of Brechtian vein, but it's closer to, again, the melodramas that Fassbender discovered just two years ago right <laughs> shows incredible pro- productivity and evolution of his style over yeah. such a small period of time and at the beginning petra is she's she lords over her servants marlena played by muse erm herman and it's a very domineering relationship almost a yeah. master slave relationship right. in how she has her basically serve her open her windows right and she does See, everything. Yeah, basically. it seems like she's actually doing the actual designs and drawing <laughs> that Petra von Kant is supposed to be producing. Right. She's, she's certainly filling in the colors, things like that. And the first half hour or so is dedicated mm-hmm. to Petra meeting with a friend and her cousin Sidonie, played by Katrin Schack. And Sidonie introduces her to Karen, who's played by an other Fassbender muse, Hannah Shaigula, mm-hmm. and quickly Petra von Kant becomes madly in love with right. Karen, who seems to return some, but definitely not nearly the same amount of affection. Mm-hmm. And so in the second act, they, they meet the next day in the apartment, and slowly Petra persuades her to, to, to stay with her because mm-hmm. she's been She's just come back to Germany from Australia, mm-hmm. and she persuades her to stay with her, and then the, at the midpoint of the film, it jumps six months into mm-hmm. this relationship. That's yeah. without, and that's only revealed very slowly. That's been six months, it, but it's clearly been a while. And yeah. at the end of it, Karen lives leaves to go back to be with her husband, and purposely 
devastating devastating petra yeah. and the last and the the fourth Final act, act yeah. takes place on petra's birthday right her 35th 35th right, birthday yeah. where, where she's where the bed that had been the centerpiece of this bedroom that there's there's no chairs around so everyone basically sits everyone on the bed sits when on they the bed. when yeah. they come and there's an enormous production reproduction of Nicholas Busan's Midas and Bacchus, which is mostly naked and partially clothed men. Right. But so at the final act, the bed is moved to a corner of the bedroom so that <laughs> so that Petra von Kant is just yelling at the telephone, <laughs> drinking enormous amounts of straight gin <laughs> as the as her as her daughter, who's been at boarding school, her uh, and her mother and Sidoni all visit and she's screaming (laughs) raging at them yeah and that eventually and then eventually i think she just orders them all to leave but they all all stay and she's just collapsed and then the final act she's in bed right and she has seemingly learned to accept her fate or accept her situation as she as karen telephone she says Mm -hmm. maybe we could meet sometime but not necessarily in a amorous way and she right and she's apologizes to Marlena who immediately then packs up her things and yeah, leaves. leaves and she's all alone yes. at the end. Yeah. yeah. And it's so crucial the way the film works in these discrete chunks mm-hmm. in this structure that through what they're talking about, because especially for the first hour it, it is mostly the characters recounting things that happened to them in the past and yeah. worldviews and things like that. And it's surprisingly discursive in that sort of way. Yeah. And in a way that kind of challenges the viewer in the, its theatricality, yeah, and it becomes more conventionally "quote unquote" dialogue in the second half. In the in the way that it proceeds, it just accumulates more and more this sense of frisson. Mm-hmm. The sense because all the characters are so openly manipulative, right? They and they seem to lie to each other so so much. <laughs> and very yeah yeah, and thus it continually destabilizes the viewer, um, trying to get them exactly what do they believe, what do they think is a genuine response and right. genuine emotion right and through that I, f- I find it just i found it just really scarring and moving yeah and it's in in turn yeah it's um I mean, it's been a while since i've seen it and i didn't have very strong impressions of it at the time but even in just thinking about it um it's sort of grown in my estimation especially as um a sort of i guess deconstruction of melodrama it's not i don't even know if it deconstructs it it just breaks it down into these sort of segments and just it may even be not like a deconstruction of the genre but a sort of breaking down of it to understand it and work through it so that in later films like um fury's the soul or you know sort of Fassbender's other films that sort of really work in that melodramatic mode that he has like an understanding of sort of each of the component parts and to sort of bring them together. But, you know, I'd have to watch the film to sort of flesh that out more. Right. And, it, and it's visible just in the way that Petra von Kant, she wears different wigs in every section. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, I I think a lot of it is sort of like yeah. his first stabs into the Serkian style. And yeah. So it, it's very much about performance, about yeah. the way that certain characters i mean it's also a great portrait of an artist yeah. in a certain way <laughs> uh, after a fashion and yeah it's very concerned with just these power dynamics with how certain certain relationships can be just so utterly all-consuming that yeah they, that they warp one's entire worldview yeah I, I mean i wouldn't be surprised if petra von Kant 
even in the ellipses never left the apartment yeah i mean it sort of is suggested that way right yeah yeah yeah, she's sort of doomed to Mm -hmm. that one area um well doomed to her own domain yes yeah Yeah. and we we definitely should say this is a one of the prime entrance in the smoke gets in your eyes oh yeah yeah Yeah. this is like this is really it this is like (laughs) where it i mean i can't think of any earlier examples i can't either but yeah it sort of begins here and yeah. I guess with 45 years, yeah, I 45 can't remember. Years, yeah, but I never also saw that. Ter- the terrorizers three oh, times. Yes, 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 Apparently, Fassbender's uh, another 2018 film, uh, Eight Hours, oh, Don't, eight make hours a day, Don't Make a Day, also yeah. uses it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and probably many others as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. This. Yeah. it's really... I mean, on that level alone, it's kind of devastating just because yeah. it brings out the emotions of that song so strongly right but it, and it's played at the near the beginning when, right when she's just dancing to it and then she asks marlena to right dance with her. it's sort of yeah. repetition of it yeah right. and then the changing i mean yeah like the changing of it i don't remember if it's in every part but sort of the how it, the emotions of it evoke different things through the different aspects and different times that it's played oh no it's only played once but oh there's, really there's two oh. other songs there's a the Walker Brothers in my room, and also oh. at the very end, the Platters, uh, the Great Pretender. Okay, as, maybe that. Yeah, maybe that was it. Yeah, but okay. also there's a non-diegetic use of, of Verdi at the end of yeah. the fourth act, as she's collapsed on the <laughs> on the rug. Right. Yeah, and it's longer than most Fassbender features. Right. Like, obviously, he had several, uh, several yeah. <laughs> very long TV shows. Yes. But, but also, it's longer than so. There's more time to really accumulate the sense of detail these mm-hmm. sort of asides like there's a phone call early to joseph mankiewicz <laughs> and at one point petra says i love movies pictures about passion and pain lovely <laughs> i mean that's sort of summarizes the the whole film yeah definitely sense. the yeah. mode it's in yeah and it's really it's extraordinary how petra and marlena's faces they almost mm-hmm. seem plasticine at times they almost become exactly like masks yeah and the way they look and that sort of freezing of expression for for erm herman it's more yeah it's more uh in the sort of powder that she wears mm-hmm. as well but for kashishin it's just utterly plasticized <laughs> it looks exactly in one shot like her face is made of plastic yeah and, and this is shot by M- michael ballhouse and oh, this yeah. is one of the great uses of a single set yeah, yeah. oh I mean, absolutely it's just how well fassbender chooses exactly when to cut which camera moves to he often uses these long circular mm-hmm. um, circular tracks this exactly when to cut to a certain angle that reflects a different change in the in how the film operates yeah and it's just and, and marlena we should say never speaks she she never right. speaks once in the whole film but in some ways she feels like the soul to me because yeah. she's so omnipresent you can just when Petra is first seducing Kyron, she's you can hear her typing away yeah. first at the typewriter. And right. You see just etched in every single person's face and their way of being, what their view is. Yeah. And it's really devastating. Yeah. The next film is the uh, only retrospective title in the festival this round. It's uh, Dr. Mabuza, The Gambler, the first of uh, Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabuza films, the silent one. Uh, the four-hour one, so really yes. in keeping with the long film theme here. <laughs> keeping with the long discussions. Yes. Sorry, but this is these films are that. 
<laughs> they are that kind of shattering. Yeah. Um, yeah, this follows Mabuza um, as he sort of kind of like manipulates the sort of gambling culture yes. in um, in Berlin. Well, it's actually one, one of the things that is so striking about Lang to me mm-hmm. in general, but is that sense of undefined place. Yeah, because it's just, yeah, sort of probably, German city. Yeah, probably Munich or German, but there's a mention of the, or there's a portrayal of the Folie Bergère, which is right. in Paris. Right, so, right, right. So it's kind so of you have that deliberate geographic. Yeah, it's sort of the city abstractly, yes. basically. And yeah, I mean, it, um, it's sort of the urtext for um, like Lang's criminal plots and yes. masterminds and what I mean every every sort of urtext for almost every villain in <laughs> films thereafter yeah. I mean um, cri- the crime films almost begin here yeah almost per, just about yeah um, yeah sort of all-knowing <laughs> mastermind of uh, manipulating good people to do uh, terrible things told over a very sort of long period and eventually they find Babuza but right well yeah this is of the Lang silent films, I've seen another one, which we will actually discuss in four, four or five festivals. Should be on it, but this one really surprised me mm. because it's clo- it's hewing very closely, even though it's a unwieldy but still vaguely theatrical format. It was released in two parts and right. just two separate features, but it feels most close in the sort of pacing as to a serial. Yeah, and it, absolutely. Each part is divided into six acts and. Each one just builds and builds as, as it's, and it's definitely, I think what really characterizes this for me and what makes it so strong and so all-consuming a portrait of society is that it's not only the ruthlessness and the control that Mabuza, who's played by Rudolf Kleinrogue, who is right. also in Spion and other yeah. other uh, length films, right. uh, one of the great silent yeah. film presences just the way it's just in his eyes right and it's not only his ruthlessness and his mastery but also the almost police state-esque yeah. nature of the of, of the crime yeah. syndicate basically oh, no of, of the police oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The, right no, his no. main adversary is is state prosecutor von wink right who's uh who is a very tenacious detective willing to use exactly the same methods as Mabuza. Like he goes to investigate by putting on disguises exactly the same manner as Mabuza. He cross examines witnesses for hours on end. Mm -hmm. He uses all the might of the police force in order to take this one criminal down. And Mabuza, one one of his defining traits is this unknowability of Mm -hmm. his opaqueness of his actual motivations. Yeah one of his main schemes is to and the one that puts von wenk on his trail is his hypnotism or power suggestion right. or to get people to gamble very badly and for right. him to request money from them but right. he doesn't seem to be necessarily in it for the money but more for the pure just the power yeah the power of it all and yeah. consolidating it you right know? that's sort of like how he becomes the sort of archetypal villain is that it isn't necessarily like a monetary motivation or even like a personal motivation right. for anything it's just greed and beyond even greed just like the the sort of grip that he can have on the city it was yeah sort of like the undefined that that's what i think laying yeah really excels at is that these sort of networks of crime and networks of power basically are basically <laughs> formed only through these sort of undefined uh <laughs> like ethereal qualities right. pretty much yeah and it definitely 
is concerned with Mabuza as both man and mythic figure. Yeah. The I think maybe the almost unfortunately for the film the best standout moment is the opening twenty minutes. Yeah. Which is this extraordinary almost black hat esque scheme to <laughs> to manipulate the stock market by stealing the, these commercial contracts, getting it reported that this stock is in jeopardy, and so people right. people sell and sell and sell. And Mabusa is there also in disguise, and he sells as well. And then he dis- and then he buys right before the contracts are discovered and yeah. the, and delivered, and so so he manages to get all the stock before the price rises again, and again yeah and then he sells right before the bell is rung right and it so is <laughs> sort of like manipulation of the markets and the right. system which you know lang sort of very very astutely kind of shows how that can yeah. be so easily manipulated right and it's not i mean it is kind of a political film and you know it's obviously been read that mabuza can be like hitler and mm-hmm. that's more in the testament of dr mabuza and the made in the 30s right which this is, one is of his final german films yeah and this is definitely a, a weimar film and it's yeah. very concerned with the fraught economy at that time yeah the, well with, yeah the yeah, fact that the, the market the stock market could be so easily right. manipulated it yeah. kind of shows that and the bourgeois how, how the bourgeois are susceptible even more susceptible than most to the to say his his hypnotism to yeah. his uh, powers of suggestion right how he can somehow influence a man across a room to start cheating at cards even though he barely picks up cards in his right. in his regular day-to-day life and there's just so many different little moments in here that like other lines that I, I really love there's so many linkages so many connections and yeah. the film is found founded on these contrasting ideas that are that somehow are married together in such a stupendous way like yeah. the the tactile versus the ineffable, the sort of material nature of his manipulation versus his mental manipulation uh, through hypnosis of these various people, how those can be reconciled into a single being mm-hmm. is that is I think what's at the heart of this film. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, that's definitely there too. Right. Um, and yeah. And then like, yeah, the sort of second half kind of changes thing, it sort of right. switches gears and sort of brings things into like the sort of takedown of Mabuza or sort of like <laughs> the, the finding of him. Although of course at the end, he kind of just flee or he, they put him away. Right. Well, yeah. Or, the yeah, the yeah. ending is maybe also the, the other best part of the film is right. the, is because he and what's so crucial to the thematic import of the film is that he gets trapped in a room that he constructed he yeah. he unwittingly traps himself and he's locked in this back room basically of right. a counterfeiting outfit and he gets slowly driven insane by the fact that he can't escape and he sees the and he sees the apparitions of his past of people that he's had murdered right. and of the of these machines coming to life and so you get that sense of when you lose power it's through your own machine it's through your yeah. own operations that and he's such a titanic figure that only he can really take himself down and it's yeah. not even the police though the police they manage to trap him because they send in literally the military it's, <laughs> it's four four or five guns of mabuzas right. four, four or five people and himself uh, fighting for him against an entire against the literal military <laughs> who are just invading this single single space probably nearly demolishing an entire city block in the process (laughs) so you really get that sense of two machines operating one aside each other yeah how how much 
this shapes society, how much, mm -hmm. whether visibly or invisibly, those that's evoked. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. Like, Lang is, I mean, there's no, like, search for the machinations of power yeah. just because Lang is showing it right, right it's there. So, it's so apparent. And yeah. Lang, I just, even though he's not necessarily say like a foyard in, in mm -hmm. which he, his power mu lies much more in editing but still he just knows exactly where to put the camera exactly where yeah. what to cut to it's and extremely it's, you know, precise it's very yeah. precise yes. yeah and then he's also willing to throw in these amazing touches like the this expressionistic sort of uh sort of mansion mm -hmm. In that scene, they ask, oh, "What, Doctor Mubuza? What do you think of expressionism?" And he says, "It's it's just playing, but isn't everything playing nowadays?" <laughs> <laughs> and and then there's these um, there's a new casino opening where they have a button where if the police are coming, they press it and the table descends and this woman doing a striptease yeah <laughs> uh, comes down as well and that's in place right. and these Chinese glasses that that Mabuza uses to influence or tries to influence Von Wenk with right. which is this, this phrase Jinan Fu which is right. the which is the a sort of transliteration of Jinan the, the capital of a, right. of a Chinese province Shandong <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's so packed and w which is of course to be expected with a four hour film but right. it's so filled with such detail mm -hmm. within this world that's both amorphous and yet jaggedly clear yeah and that contradiction is so what draws me so closely to this film I think yeah it's just I, I it's not necessarily i think the pacing of it is definitely lumpy and it's yeah, definitely i think so too yeah and but i do four hours kind of wears down right but too. It, it's a sort of different it's because it's relying on the rhythms of a serial so and yeah be, and yet still be within four hours so it is a little bit lumpy in that way but I just find it myself embracing it more and more. It's yeah. just absolutely stunning. Yeah. I, I definitely enjoy it too, but yeah, the other four hour runtime definitely <laughs> wears on you after a while. Yeah. And we should just say the part names, the great gambler, a oh, picture yes. of the time. That's part one. And part two is Inferno, a game for the people of our age. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At once the, their age and yet all ages. All ages. Really. Oh yeah. Yeah. Timeless. Interconnected societies always. Yes. The final film of this one is a, another. Uh, is it a closing night officially? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, it was closing night last time. Um, yeah. So this is a... this one did actually get two two showings. Um, okay. Like the other ones, except the two exceptions we already named. Oh, this is a very very notable debut. This yeah. is a world premiere. And a world premiere. Yes. Oh, okay. This is Terrence Malick's Badlands, uh, starring Sissy Spacek and uh, Martin Sheen and Warren Oates, and it's a very auspicious debut for his film. This is. Of course, the um, killing spree of uh, Kit Carruthers and Holly, of course. Yeah, I watched this like five days ago. <laughs> and basically, as Kit uh, sort of takes Holly under his wing, essentially, and Holly kind of just goes along with it, and he begins, he kills her father at first, burns their house down, and then they go on this sort of spree where he's really killing people. She's not doing much of anything. And they sort of flee society for a brief time uh, until inevitably he kind of, he sort of surrenders himself, but right. wants it to be seen as he was caught. I mean, I, I know a lot of people love this film. This film is so strange to me. <laughs> this is the, one of the weirdest films. It's very much unlike, I think, Malik's other films, but at the same time, I do think it, I, I, I mean, the aesthetic beauty is there, but at the same time, it, 
sort of chronicles this weird middle America mentality, conversational pace and way of life in a way that I think few other films ever even broach. <laughs> yeah, I do. I am one of the people who loves this film. I saw it. I rewatched it earlier this morning and it's the f- first time that I, I think I've really fell in love with it. You know, like it's yeah. maybe not necessarily, I appreciate a lot of the qualities a lot more, but it's more that sense of, that actual sense of viewing that I f- find more and more pleasurable. I know Pink, Nick Pinkerton has named it as one of the, the funniest films ever made. It's hilarious. And it is hilarious. The I mean, first line of dialogue is give me a dollar to eat this dog. And then this collie. Yeah. Eat this collie. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, his coworker on the garbage truck goes, I'm going to eat it for a dollar. I don't think it's a collie. Oh. I do think it's a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's like king of the hill level humor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's uh you're it's, the news kit it's all in the headlines you've been fired, <laughs> you've been fired. <laughs> yeah it's just fantastic on that level yeah. um and of course i think i mean i watched this with my girlfriend who was very uh frustrated by yeah. it in a lot of mm-hmm. ways because of holly doesn't react to events such as her father being murdered by kit um right. very forcefully or emotionally but that's i mean maybe because most of the film isn't acted in an emotional yeah. way at all and so cc spacek is not yeah, well, like, she's not she, an emotive yeah. performer Which necessarily. Which is part for greatness, but... Yeah, but, you know, I think the film kind of works on this register of sort of... It's always about the sort of tension between, uh, like, Holly's own ideals, and, or not even ideals, but, like, her dreams and her, her voiceover, especially... Mm which has this very romantic vision at right. the same, even though she so also confronts that too, by like saying that she felt just kind of blah and like <laughs> that she wanted to drown Kit just to watch him die. Yeah. That, um, I completely forgot about the line burst out laughing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, there are like those moments as well, but at the same time, and there are like these romantic shots, but then at the same time, the sort of boredom and, um, monotone almost uh, performances that are given uh sort of brushes up against that too so that you know there is like the scene of them dancing in the woods which would in any other case be this expression of freedom and it's just not that at all i think him just two-stepping he's two-stepping <laughs> she's kind of moving slightly differently and they're not even not even in each other's arms they're just dancing no they're just dancing other. next to each other this very strange just rhythmic moving yeah which i feel like yeah i feel like it's a very um underrated as like a uh portrait of the eisenhower era and Mm. just like how you know it's pre-60s it's pre-civil rights it's pre all these sort of uh traditions and like ideas about life being shattered but there are sort of recognitions of that too so you know kid is always compared to james dean and like he very much kind of puts that on too and he wants to like be a part of this great american tradition but he's just awful at it he can't he fishes with like this weird (laughs) net that he can't use and then he just starts shooting the water (laughs) he just crouches down just yeah just just aims with his pistol crouches and just (laughs) shoots randomly um so yeah i think that's the most interesting part of the film for me i don't and somehow other malik films don't quite have that the tree of life is a very different film oh, about a yeah. similar era it's just, same thing with to the wonder as well yeah it's just a completely different register basically entirely different style yeah. but as far as like this film goes it's 
I don't, yeah, I mean, I still don't quite know what to make of it. I do right. like it a lot, but at the same time, it's very, 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 very hard to define for me. It is. And it partly because it's so singular in Mal's career as well. Yeah. Ordinarily, with sort of these sort of films, you have some other kind of grounding to find, and you don't really have that with with this film. But that's what fascinates me about it. And I think that few films feel more quintessentially American than this. Yeah, I mean, this, this is very similar to like uh, the Night of the Hunter in a certain sense. Yeah, too, yeah. How, I actually thought this. Yeah, similar how, how much it represents the the diction, the way of speaking, the way, the sort of casual, relaxed way people act around each other, even though they're both very different films, of course, even though both feature serial killers, uh, yeah, <laughs> which sort of works. But one thing I did forget is that a full third of this film actually takes place before the they go on the run. Yeah. And how Malik is able to shift... F- is able to shift his style to account for these long stretches of time. Like he right. represents their, their, the blossoming of their relationship in this sort of not necessarily montage. Mm-hmm. It, it's much more loose than that, but yeah. he still manages to give such time and, and to represent time in, in such a strange way. And he shows them building this, just elaborate tree house yeah. even though it doesn't seem like either of them have yeah they don't have any skills yeah i can't imagine them actually doing that right, but i yeah. think that's which lends of, the sort of fairy tale quality of this yeah it's, it's I a think, very yeah i think that's the tension between like the the reality and the sort of dreamy quality too right. and like how it i think there's like a light surrealism to it yeah, as well that yeah it doesn't it's so because like the filming style isn't necessarily surreal it it has that it's almost like a flannery o'connor story or a (laughs) faulkner story in that what it's describing isn't necessarily fantastic but then the ways that it sort of gets there how they just sort of show up at this rich we just went to a rich man's (laughs) house we had to get supplies so we went to a rich man's house yeah they just know exactly where to go and like it all kind of works for them it all works in their favor even though kit dies of course yeah but you know but in a very romantic way yeah well, the way that that spacex voiceover says he was sentenced to die at the lecture chair on a warm spring night mm-hmm. <laughs> in this date he did yeah and that f- way of phrasing is so much different than if he said yeah you know, he, if he, it was, was more executed yeah i think it like has like a sort of like she's reading it almost like a tabloid magazine would it's definitely and it's definitely steeped in that sort of culture yeah it's like tabloid romanticism but you know of course ending with a shot of the clouds kind of gives it that you know it kind of drifts away too right and you just get the sense there's that very crucial almost newsreel sort of insert yeah where where they're talking about and she narrates that insert as well. Right. Where she's just describing the sort of national. Yeah. The national uh, guard yeah. was called. Yes. <laughs> children were pulled from school. Yeah. And it's so, and it's which just, is just such like, yeah. and it's not exactly sure how much they know of it at that time. They're no, clearly I apparent, think, but it's yeah, not. I think a lot of it is like sort of her trying to prom him up. So that's not just some loser who <laughs> killed eight people. Cause he sucked at everything. <laughs> Which is really how a lot of the film seems. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just it's a lovely film, and yeah. I don't claim it as one of as Malik's best film, but no. I could definitely see arguments for it. Yeah, for and sure. And it is really—I forgot just how beautiful it was, how well yeah. it represents these 
wide landscapes and partially shot by Tak Fujimoto. Right. Um, Although, of course, it's hard to tell which yes, cinematographer is doing what. Right. Also with Stephen Larner and Brian Probin. Yeah. But there's just a, such a lived-in quality of all of the performances, of yeah. all of the landscapes, just all the shots of them in the car just moving across the landscapes. Mm-hmm. I just find it really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I think it is, although that's sort of strange, very quintessentially American quality. Right. Uh, still kind of slips through. I, I, I guess I get why people love it, but then at the same time, it doesn't have that immediate impact on me. I can see it all, but it's still very... <laughs> Right. It's just so weird. That's what <laughs> mostly what I get hung up yeah, on. It's it's, a, yeah. I don't. I feel like a lot of the wider praise for it is more about like the beauty and not really acknowledging just how weird of a movie this well, is. I, I do find the weirdness intrinsic to the beauty. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's crucial to the film's sense of wonderment. I yeah. guess you could say the wonderment at this larger landscape that one hadn't really experienced before. And right. I think it's also important the, that Lauren Oates' character plays a. a billboard a painter painter and, uh, yeah, where, yeah. It, where it's where it's reflecting and th- literally there's a scene where he's painting a billboard and a section is removed so you can see the mm-hmm. sky beyond and yeah. so you get that sense of the film opening up mm-hmm. going to new horizons even if uh, a little light murder is involved along the way <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I forgot there was so much music yeah um, so much yeah. Not, not just only the the themes the classical also, yeah there's a mm-hmm. great scene where they're dancing to Nat King Cole yeah, in, the, in the headlines, yeah. which is its own ro- sense of romanticism. Right. You know, just this, for a, such a tight 93, or relatively tight 93 minutes, yeah. it's really suffused with yeah. so much. It goes it goes a long thing. way. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, I, yeah. It's hard to square this with the rest of, <laughs> knowing where Malik's so career went, yeah. it's hard to square this, but it, I could see like a sort of parallel career if he had been a slightly more conventional. Yeah. If, and this, but this is by no means a conventional film either. Oh, no. Yeah. No. And it's, I am really surprised that this is Malik's only film in the New York Film Festival, oh, well, which is strange. Well. And maybe just the way that maybe some of his studio funding, like yeah. Ben Redline would not have made it in or right. like a, or just, or just exactly editing, yeah. Or th- you know, when things got style, yeah, when yeah. things got released versus right. when they got picked up, like a Tree of right. Life, for instance. But right. this is such a wonderful pick for a closing night and for a world premiere. And yeah, really, absolutely. you cannot see this and not see that there is a new talent on the horizon. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, though this was actually released in '74, not '73. Oh really? Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. did not get picked up until then. Interesting. But yeah, what a what a lovely film. Yeah. Oh yeah. What a wonderful way to close.
think this has been a festival suffused with many moments of of pleasure and pain. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. And pain of large, mostly of the positive kind. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Productive. Productive pain. pain productive pain. Whether that be of the agonizing, of the pleasurable, yeah. just so much that this festival had to offer. Yeah. Is, yeah. And very i'm still very positive on like yeah. extremely positive on this festival I, yeah i am too i yeah. still don't think i could put my finger on it necessarily mm-hmm. but on the festival as a whole yeah on this one as a whole but i do think that there's a sort of finding some like finding directors maybe not they're not really in transition at this point i think that the larger cinematic trends are in transition right. maybe um so you know we're moving from the new wave to sort of the second wave almost, but that's way less well-defined than the new wave and way more. Yeah. You know, it's a looser grouping. Um, and you know, Fassbender's own work, Ray's work, American cinema too, kind of moving more towards Malik is kind of projecting where it might go slightly. I mean, where the better films will go (laughs) at least. Um, and Scorsese as well too, you know, two, I think major directors kind of, signaling some changes there ray working in color and um fassbender working with melodrama you know like there there are going to be some larger they're not necessarily the directors changing except for you know in a couple of instances but it sort of represents larger like ray is working in color because that's the dominant form now rather than black and white and you know uh, that like those changes I think are going to be seen more in the later films. Yeah. And you sort of see almost even in the retrospective choice, the of Dr. Yeah. Mabusa, which was released in 1927 in like half its form. Right. Like, right. Extremely truncated. So you're seeing more of a, even more of an interest in these silent films. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's just the, it's both continuations, new directions as always, but even more, it feels even more so with this festival which is, I think, what gives this edition much of its wonderful nature. And just yeah. the films themselves, they're oh, just yeah. so... They're they're great. Yeah, they're so great. Yeah. There's, I, I mean, yeah, no stinker. So yeah, no that's, stinkers. Uh, I think, the first for a while. <laughs> for for a while, maybe. At the very yeah. least. Yeah. I don't know if the SAG Awards are done by now. I assume no, not. Oh, no, probably not. They're yeah. probably going to go for a long time. Yeah. Uh, like us yes <laughs> yeah yeah but hopefully we're slightly shorter hopefully we'll see uh <laughs> apologies for the long two-part introduction but yeah. these those films are also are very worthwhile oh absolutely yeah, as as yeah. most films are as except for films. some <laughs> the bad ones <laughs> yes yes but thank you so much for listening yeah uh, we have very high hopes for this upcoming year yeah uh, for, for the podcast and uh, we hope that you will continue with us on this adventure yeah uh, hopefully we'll be back to just play an old one part introductions yeah, next time i think so yes i can't imagine anything special if we're not gonna do an oscar no breakdown or no, anything like that we're not, not interested yeah. <laughs> the only film that got nominated this one was day for night oh yeah, yeah. i thought you meant from the 2018 no no uh, a lot more that would be yeah that would be actually a lot of them now yeah i mean it. we can maybe mention that but we're not planning on doing nah, much no no no, no, no boring. Thank you. The bad ones got yes. nominated anyway. <laughs> anyway. Yes, but thank you Wrapping so up. much for listening. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you once again. Thank you. See you next right. time. Good night. Yeah.